Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. Okay, next up, let's talk about Conservator. Uh, yeah, powerhouse, longtime vintage powerhouse Conservator. So the this is a four-mana artifact. It's a mono artifact. The text is three generic mana, colon, prevent the loss of up to two life. This is another kind of card that if you were to kind of evaluate its printed text through the current lens, you would get kind of the wrong impression, I think. It's... The, the modern oracle text of it is simply three and tap, prevent up to two damage to you. <laughs> yeah, prevent up to two loss of life. Prevent the loss and, of up to two, two life. It's so such weird so, phrasing. Well, that brings me to a question, uh, Steve, is do you have, and maybe you don't, this is not the sort of thing that comes up too much, but in the alpha context, when you're playing like Alpha League or just looking at the alpha rules today, was damage prevention as opposed to loss of life codified Oh God! Um, My guess is no, so, but yeah, I, I could scour the you know the rule book again to try and find some answer to that. But yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think reverse damage applies when the damage it is essentially assumes the damage is successfully through, and then reverses that's true. it. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> and in the context of the simplest example, which I guess would be healing salve. It's, yeah. it's prevent up to three damage from being dealt to a single target, which, which is, is obviously why... not reversal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> I think that it's, it's interesting because the way that Conservator is worded... Uh, okay, obviously it applies to only you, right? So it's preventing damage just to you. But, but it's unclear. It, yeah. Well, in, in doing so, it, yeah, it, it elides a couple of things. Because for one, if you were to take a, kind of a textual approach to this in the modern context... This would not be limited to you. You could prevent Absolutely. the loss of life to another player, which is interesting and could be relevant in a like a, a team-based format, like two-headed giant or something like that, or just a, a multiplayer format. And to compare to reverse damage, the alpha reverse damage is all damage you've taken from anyone's source of turn is added to your life total instead of subtracted from it. So it's it's not damage uh, prevention or redirection at all. <laughs> it's just a retroactive oh. gain of life, as you said. Yeah, sorry, there's another card. So I, I was, as you were speaking, I was trying to imagine, is there a case in a duel where you might want to prevent your opponent from losing life? And the mm-hmm. two cards that pop to mind that interact would be Jade, Monolith, and Veteran Bodyguard. Um, there you go. So you, I, go. You, I'm, you, you could imagine if there was some enchantment on Veteran Bodyguard where you didn't want them to take the loss of life because it was somehow re- redirected to you. Yeah. Or you knew your opponent had a reverse damage. Right. That might be... Yeah, that's a good point. If you wanted to save the damage you were doing in some for some reason for a larger, a greater source, the thing that yes. was going to kill them all at once. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> as opposed to something incidental. Yeah, so you've got Psychic Venom on one of their lands, and they're at like eight life or whatever, and you're holding Fireball next turn. Like, you might not want them to... Uh, take that two damage and be able to reverse it with reverse damage when you're going to just fireball them next turn for their whole life total. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a really bizarre corner case, but reverse damage does those kind of things. So another thing that I find interesting here is that this, the way it's worded, it says pr- prevent a loss of life. That's not a yes. thing that we do in modern magic because right. loss of life has been codified as separate from damage. 
And yes. I think that's that's somewhat meaningful. I have a trivia question for you, Steve. It and it's it took me a bit to get to this Uh-oh. initially, but there's only one card in Alpha that in modern day <laughs> templating causes loss of life. In you modern any day, idea what card? Modern day. Oh yeah, in current Oracle wording, there's only a single card in Alpha that causes loss of life. Interesting. Hmm. It's and it's a very obscure one. I could understand if you would not intuit this at all. Um, well, give me a moment to think about it. So I, yeah. I'm going to rule out cases. So it's not Lich, because correct. Yeah, Lich is a damage. It's it's an alternative to taking damage, and it wouldn't have been life anyway. Yeah. It's probably and it's not any of the things that you think of as damaging a person at all. It's not a proactive yeah. damage card at well, all. Well, the thing, the thing, the things that pop to mind are something where there's some sort of penalty, like you didn't. You didn't pay for Lord of the Pit, or you didn't pay for Force of Nature, and they want you to take some damage. That's the first thing that that's. D- that's actually pretty close. It's the not se- any of those. But the second, it's not any of those Punisher kind of mechanics on upkeep, though. The second thing, though, would be something like you know one of these black spells that you know relating to anti or something like that, where you lose <laughs> you lose life. You know, yeah. And th- those are the two things that I I don't think you know neither Dark Pack nor Demonic Attorney, if I recall correctly, actually cause you to lose life, but. I'm, I'm thinking what I mean is like a doomsday type effect, you know. Yeah, there isn't actually anything in Alpha that causes you to pay life for resources. Well, There's Lich no is the predecessor to like it. it. It's not direct in that. Yeah, but that damages you. Yeah. 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 So well, so I, I don't on. need you to linger on it. You okay. were pretty close with the the force of nature, Lord of the Pit example, actually. So what is it? Personal incarnation. Oh my god, of course, yeah. <laughs> when personal great. incarnation <laughs> dies, its owner loses half their life rounded up. So in the al- what I'm getting at is in the alpha context, you could make the case that even though personal incarnation causes you to lose your life, that you could activate conservator to prevent the loss of two of that life. Yeah. There's contextually, syntactically, there's no reason why that wouldn't work. Right. Yeah. Interesting. But by the modern day wording, it would not function that way. And I, I looked at Alpha League documentation card clarification and they have i guess unsurprisingly zero <laughs> annotations <laughs> for conservator <laughs> yeah well that doesn't surprise we're talking about the interaction of two unplayable cards so yeah a, a couple yeah. things about conservator though it certainly falls in the category that we were talking about around celestial prism that i wish it was a poly mm-hmm. artifact and, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it would actually be interesting if it was a poly artifact cuz then you could just build mana and grind the game down a little bit. I mean, still, three mana is not cheap to prevent up to two right. life. But you, it's, it would be functionally similar to Force Field then. You know, it's oh, like, yeah. Force wait, Field, is, which... Is Force Field paying life, by the way? Isn't it, is it pay life? Not no. Loss. No, you prevent all but one damage from a okay. source. Okay, there you go. It's damage. Yeah. It's damage prevention. I completely agree with you, and I was going to go down a similar road, which is to say two things. One... It seems pretty clear to me that this card is extremely safely costed because they were probably a little concerned about building up a pillow fort that was impenetrable with a sufficient <laughs> amount of these effects. Um, and they, they designed their set for limited by any stretch, right? So I don't think that was really a concern. I just feel like they probably were concerned that if there's the, the defense in the game was too good, that it just wouldn't be any fun, right? Yeah. By the way, that said, they've imbalanced the definition of like offense and defense pretty hard in this set. So, <laughs> oh yeah. By the way, I just wanted to point out that the actual alpha text of Force Field is "lose only one life," so it's not phrased oh, as interesting. damage. Lose only one life <laughs> to an unblocked creature. Which yeah is a really interesting variant on and, what we're talking about. By the way, I mean when we get we can I guess we can save it till we get to it, but 
That's very ambiguous text because it's one <laughs> mana col- yeah. colon lose only one life to an unblocked creature. Well, what if it's a zero power creature? Yeah, what like if it's will an ornithopter? <laughs> yeah. Or will of the wisp? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Let's cover that when we get to oh, yeah. it, though. Okay. Yeah. There's one other thing I want to ask you, and that is obviously this conservatory is a terrible card, and it's not even good enough for like Alpha Card 40 and, and other low no. power formats. <clears throat> then my question to you is. How big would the number on the prevention have to be for you to play this card? <laughs> the because uh, I'm of the opinion mean, that or the or the the, the total the, up to. the amount that it prevents. Yeah, I'm of the opinion that this card could say prevent the next twenty damage. Whoa! And it still wouldn't it still wouldn't be playable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so imagine your opponent okay, has a merit that, lage, that makes it a fog <laughs> a merit lage token, right? And you could activate yeah. it to prevent all that damage. No, it, so. I mean, obviously, the point of comparison then would be it would be a maze of Ith, right? Something yeah. that, but and even that, I think juxtaposition illustrates how over overpriced this is because <laughs> because maze of Ith is just a land drop with no mana activation, and you can prevent up to twenty damage from an attacking so- creature. Now, not from any yeah. source. I mean, obviously, if 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 it could be up to twenty damage, you could turn off fireballs, which would be much more yeah. powerful. My guess. My guess is that probably for three for a three mana mono artifact with the three mana activation. Sorry, four mana. Jesus, this thing is even worse. It's a, yeah, it's a four, cost four to cast. Good God, how embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. So some, I mean, I guess I was thinking about Celestial Prism. And by the way, I I think people, I th- I think I've seen someone get these two cards confused. <laughs> In any case, uh, um, I can understand that. Yeah. So so for a four mana artifact with a three mana activation, I think. God, you're probably right to be playable. It probably needs to be something absurd like 8, 9, 10 or more. But my instinct is that this probably needs to be like 6 or 7 because for for 4 mana investment with a 3 mana activation that taps, unlike Force Field, right? Which yeah. which is a 1 yeah. mana activation as many times as you want. Granted, Force Field is a rare, so it presumably can have a higher power level. I think you, it should be basically prevent damage from any kind of source that you want up to a reasonable amount. I think this needs to be at least probably seven damage, up to seven damage <laughs> to get to get but me interested. Do you I, you were alluding to the fact about making it from a particular source. Is that what you meant? Oh Is yeah, it prevent d- all damage up to seven damage from a source. It just says this prevent a lot. Yeah, you're right. So yeah. so your this opponent is not has to two, a source. Your opponent has two banalish heroes. You can yeah. prevent both of that. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. So, so that's interesting. So, so in that particular, sorry, I was I was conceiving of this card differently. Does the oracle yeah. text codify that that it's from as many sources as is possible? Oh yeah, it's prevent the next two damage that would be dealt to you this turn. Is so it's from all sources. Is healing solve work the same way? Is it up to th- prevent up to three dam? Uh, no, because it. Uh, oh yeah, sorry, it does, but it's to a target, of course. There you go. Yeah. So yeah. the target being yourself. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Caveats of alpha so, templating yeah. aside, so he, um, a healing stab is the same as one activation so, as the, of this, except so, for the prevention is three then two. So I think that pre- I think preventing up to twenty would be too generous in that case because it means that if your opponent has five attacking creatures, <laughs> it's just fog. It's just a yeah, fog on a stick. For exactly. Creatures, that's yeah. uh, that I think is over. That's way more powerful than, than maze of it. It is. It is. I think I think probably in that case. Five or six or seven is probably the sweet spot for four mana, yeah. three mana tap. What it means is that it, it, supposing you have direct damage and attacking, right? If I was attacking you with a juggernaut and a jade statue, you could prevent 
like say all of that, but then the way would be clear to fireball you. That seems, I think, relatively fair, although it probably puts it on the upper edge of power in Alpha Card 40 then. Not upper edge, but it, it makes it a far more powerful it makes card. it playable. Yeah, playable. There <laughs> yeah. you go. Making it playable is, yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thought uh, thought exercise. And by the way, what cool Aztec calendar you know, c- concept art for this card. It really is. It's pretty neat. <laughs> I don't get what it has to do with preventing loss of life, but Who I don't cares? Really care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. All right, let's move on to uh, a real headliner here, one that we have a lot to say about. This is Contract from Below. It's a black mana. It's a sorcery. It says, discard your current hand and draw eight new cards, adding the first drawn to your ante. Remove this card from your deck before playing if you are not playing for ante. Steve, you alluded to it earlier at the top of the show when we talked about Black Lotus. This is very high on the list in terms of power in the history of Magic. Yeah, I mean, I have so little experience either witnessing or playing with this card that it's hard for me to compare it to Black Lotus, but my sense mm-hmm. it probably is the most powerful card in Magic. And Kevin, now, I know you have a long history with this card, so I'm, I'm going to ask you some very pointed questions about it. Yeah. But before we do that, this is our first anti-card. So let's just talk mm-hmm. about the anti-mechanic for a minute, and then we can get into yeah. the, the nuts and bolts of this card. How's that sound? Perfect. So anti is a fascinating <laughs> mechanic <laughs> that was quickly jettisoned. And I don't want to overstate that because anti was printed as late as I, if I recall correctly. So certainly in 1994, certainly in 1995, in, I think the last the card in Homelands. Yeah. 90, so 96 or 90, late 95, late 95 was the last anti card. Uh, cause alliances was 96. Um, so. So anti was is a very curious and interesting concept. In Richard Garfield's writings, early writings, like in the Pocket Player's Guide and so on, he mm-hmm. explained that he thought anti was a balancing mechanic that would allow players who had accumulated the most powerful cards to to redistribute some of their cards over time. Now, that concept is very odd to me and counterintuitive because you would think that the player who has has the most powerful deck and the most powerful cards would have the highest win percentage and therefore accumulate the greatest number of additional cards through ante, and therefore there would be a, a reinforcing positive feedback loop to that, right? But mm-hmm. I think in their testing experience through Gamma that the opposite was the case, that that because of randomness and magic, even dominant players would lose games, which, I mean, is still the case today. I mean, the best vintage players have a sub- you know, 70% win, to, win percentage. And mm-hmm. so so by losing matches, they will occasionally lose powerful cards. I, I still think in the end, that's a flawed conception. I think that that in a, in a gunner, highly competitive context, anti will make the powerful more powerful over time, not less. That said, that said, anti is, is something that I find to be incredibly fun, not in the formal original version of it, where you yeah. actually can lose a card. It's terrifying in that context. But in the fake ante, where you flip a card over, I find it to be fascinating. And I I really enjoy the Alpha League format, not League, but Alpha 40 format, where you play with fake, fake ante. And so I, I'm going to ask you some questions about it in five-color context, Kevin, which is where Contract yeah. from Below has was really kind of revived. But what I find interesting about fake ante is two things. Number one... When you have a 40-card deck and you flip a card, you get a little bit of interesting information about what your opponent's playing. 
right? Yeah. Which is interesting. Like if it's a basic land, it can be pretty solid. You know, spell obviously, artifact less so. But the other piece of it is that it can be a very significant card. So if, if for example, you're playing a deck, a blue deck, and you flip over Brain Geyser Ancestral, and you can only play one of those, or Soul Ring, that's a, that's a pretty mm-hmm. intense moment, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and there's such a power di- dis- differential often between the ante. Like your opponent flips over a terrible card, and you flip over a powerful card. That feels very strange, and I think fun. And it enhance it creates an intensity level to the to the moment um, that I I personally enjoy. Uh, I just wanted to point that out. So Kevin, yeah. Kevin, let's let's work on this card backwards. First, <laughs> talk about your what is your feeling or perception of anti, and then I want to I want you to talk about how your personal experiences with this card. But start with anti. I agree with your assessment about how terrifying it is, both from personal experience, but also how imbalanced it is. The anti provides interesting variance for the reasons you said, and I think it is mostly balanced when the two players that are involved, assuming a, a duel, are operating on a completely even playing field. Yeah. And I don't mean to say that it's a mirror match, that's one no. element of the equation, but just if both players have access to the same card pool and are building decks in the know, you know, an informed decision, there's lots of mechanics with anti. There's lots of ways you can navigate it. You can potentially avoid certain power spikes in your deck make your deck more homogenous right to to manipulate it's like it's like it's its own metagame which has some mechanical interest to me and if in the sense of ownership especially in the modern day expensive magic cards obviously it's terrifying and i'm glad it doesn't exist in practice however as it's just a purely game design exercise i find it interesting mechanically the ways that various peoples and formats and communities of peoples have have instituted variations on anti as you alluded to have been pretty successful in my opinion right the fake anti and variants thereof give you some of maybe not the most extreme versions of the excitement that you were describing but some of that excitement and some of the mechanical elements especially when you factor in other anti cards which we don't really need to talk about but it's relevant we will get and to. it also yeah i mean cards outside of alpha this is what i was really thinking of but um and so you can recreate some of that excitement and some of the mechanical and some of the metagame. And so if from my standpoint, from that standpoint, I think it's a valuable thing to experience in the game. I definitely wouldn't wish it upon everyone. It's not for everyone that can create some feel-bads, and so it's not perfect. In five-color, you played real anti, though, right? Out of a 250-card deck. Like, you, you uh, lose the, the game, you lose the card, right? Yes, but there were a lot of cultural variances that, that sprung up. Lots of agreements among friends and play groups lots of uh you know alternatives to r- the worst feel bads right yeah so if Keep it's like a that rare fi- or a high value card well five color at its height allowed the power nine yeah and so it was possible to anti your lotus <laughs> well the most famous so, the famous example of five color was when kai buddha <laughs> jewel yeah. bird his opponent <laughs> in the invitational <laughs> i believe that's the last high profile endorsement endorsement's a strong word but use of anti Anti. that wizards can (laughs) be can be credited with right i i in my memory though the nightmare 99 event this past summer was hilarious in terms of anti because the top eight players had accumulated through winning additional force of wills additional moxen you know so it was like 
Randy Bueller had like I think five or six force of wills at one point. You know, it's just <laughs> hilarious. See, and that's the man. That's the mechanical and metagame elements I think working as intended. Inside of an insular community, I think it it creates interesting narratives and interesting yeah. effects, right? And I think that part is valuable to a degree, but uh, you know, their economic factors can't be escaped, right? Yeah. No one was actually losing hundred whatever dollar force of wills in that example, and the simple fact that that Magic's economy has blown up to the degree that it has makes anti just an impossibility in any realistic way, unless you're just. Uh, a glutton or playing Iron Man with your other <laughs> high rolling friends. God, you know, which hey, if if you want to, more you, power to you, I guess. You know what? It's a vague memory, but I I vaguely recall, seem to recall that at the Wizards tournament too, which is you know the ancillary alpha tournament to NoobCon, players were talking about a, a kind of Scandinavian sub format where okay. where you had to build a deck that had a certain dollar value, and I think they played for anti. It was like an Iron Man format version of that. And I can't mm-hmm. remember. It was like mm-hmm. I think it was like five grand or something was the minimum. Some multi-thousand dollar minimum, you know, like maybe three wow. grand. And then it was all for anti. It wasn't absurd, you know, but it was yeah. still it was it was <laughs> impre- It was is enough to make it, you know, exciting, you know. <laughs> Risky, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember someone was talking about how they were trying to build the deck for that. That was that was really fun to to hear about. I just can't remember the specifics. So Kevin, talk about now. Your experience with this card, what is the risk-reward balance to you? Is it just always you go for it, or are there times you don't? And is and what's it feel like to play a black, pay a black mana and draw draw seven? Well, I can tell you it's thrilling. And <laughs> the short answer to your question is yes, you do always go for it. However, I would posit that there are there have been a non-zero amount of times in my life when I haven't gone for it. But that's because a calculus so that you do. Well, or or ahead. I mean, it's usually ahead where you wouldn't necessarily do it. Um, if your hand is good enough that discarding four quality cards is not necessarily the right exchange rate for you, or if there's just no reason to Got risk it. losing another card at some point, yeah. So the five-color format, while all the anti-cards were... Um, not all of them were legal. The ones that are straight-up theft were not legal, right? The, the <laughs> Tempest of Freet and the Demonic Attorney. Not Demonic Attorney wasn't, but Dark Pack wasn't, right? The ones yeah. where you're straight up taking your opponent's ante, those were banned. Anything that messed with ante otherwise, though, basically your own, uh, was allowed. And the best example of that is Jeweled Bird, right? So for those who don't know, Jeweled Bird is a one-man artifact from Arabian Nights that you cast it, and then you activate it, and you exchange Jeweled Bird for your contribution to the ante, and then you put your ante into your, your graveyard. So it's a way to just give your opponent a ostensibly low-value card, <laughs> this Jeweled Bird, instead of whatever card you had in ante. Uh, Jeweled Bird was a staple of five-color. Most people played four contracts. Most people played four Jeweled Birds. And so what that meant is a number of things. It had a number of, of impacts. One of them was that there were lots of cultural standards that came into play uh, around ante and how it was treated when you, for with cards you lost, but there were... There was a one big carve out for that scenario, which was Jewel Bird itself, because because of the nature and function and also cheapness of Jewel Bird. We've got, let's be honest, uh, you never gave back your your opponent's Jewel Bird if you won it. <laughs> so it was it was a bit of a badge of honor in the community if you had a collection of Jewel Birds, right? Because those were the things that you kept out of all the anti cards in the world. Those were the things that you actually kept were people's Jewel Birds. 
And it helped a lot that the card was printed in Chronicles, and so it was incredibly cheap. If that wasn't the case, I don't think that cultural element would have sprung up necessarily. But that's just one example of the cultural variations and things that come into play when you're trying to mitigate the economic impact of anti, but still keep the, some of the flavor of it and some of the mechanical elements of it. Um, I, I want to. We've you've gotten back to talking about anti. I want to focus on this yeah. card though for a second. So oh, mechanically, sure. No, yeah, no. I want to. I want to. I want to talk about the strategic or tactical feel of this card. So, so oh, yeah. So, so it's you don't it's play it on turn it, one, right? It's not a turn one play. You want to empty your hand a bit, mostly, right? Because it's it, not in symmetrical. In a format, so. so in a format that powerfully features contract from below the rest of the format is warped around it. Okay. (laughs) Five color inherently was a format warped around contract from below, but it made certain otherwise unplayable cards really, really good. Such as recoup. Ah, because it targets sorceries. But, but uh, what I'm trying to get at is in nightmare 99, it's a turn one format. So obviously Mm -hmm. you go for turn one contract, but in a format where you can't empty your hand on turn one contract from below's value is, I mean, do you want to use it kind of like a refiller, or do you want to just burst it immediately yeah. and try and hit more? What's the yeah, what's the? I've point. never played with it, so it's it's well, this is so totally the, novel the short to answer. Me. Yeah, the short answer is it can still be a turn one play, and there's really two scenarios. One is you're playing a, an actual combo deck, and there were a couple of combo decks. They were mostly inconsistent though, because it's a 250 yeah. card format. It's hard to build a reliable turn one combo deck, but decks that do have combos that were trying to end the game, like, like say World Gorger Dragon. Okay. Uh, well, Battle of Wits is banned because okay. of the nature of the format. Yeah, because it's a one-card win. Um, but combo decks like World Gorger Dragon, for example, would frequently contract on the first turn. If you just fanned open a hand that had like deep, uh, you know, a, a good land, like Got a City it. of Brass and a contract, and the rest of it wasn't any good. But remember, this is pre-London Mulligan. Yeah. So what are your odds? You're gonna, lo- you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, it wasn't even. This was pre-Vancouver. This is like Paris Mulligan, right? I'm gonna go down to six cards or just play my turn one contract and go to seven cards, right? So you have you saw a lot of turn one seven contracts just to get a better mulligan at the time, or been a been a world gorger. Well, and that's the other thing too is if you had any kind of graveyard based combo, you're right. That's why world gorger was was pretty good in the format. Got it. The other thing is is that you're talking about a format that still even back in the day had lots of mox in. This was a four mox diamond format. Oh yeah, as well as the power nine, as well and as mox other crystal kinds of accelerants. <laughs> yeah, and mox crystal, which was a rarity but still a thing. So it was completely reasonable to go land soul ring. Uh, Mox Diamond contract. Like, I did oh, that. Oh, I would do that. But I just meant, like, yeah, if exactly. you just have a Bayou or a City of Brass and no other play, that's right. Would you contract? Right. So, it's, certain decks probably wouldn't because there were also the aggro variants in the, in the format where there was a big category of aggro variants in the format, which were called 3 2 1 contract. Yeah, I remember and that. The, the point, yeah, and the deck name is a is a you know it's a it's a play on the the TV show from the eighties, three yeah. two one contact. But the the point is it's a, also a play on their mana curve. The point of those decks was to go one drop, two drop, three drop, and on the next turn contract. Got it. Refill. That's how those decks were structured. Refill. Yeah, and so to your point, some decks were exactly trying to you know derive every little piece of value out of the contract. You you said that there were two broad uses though. Did you get to the second? Well, so I was differentiating between the the high the, the maximizing every last card out of it kind of deck, where you really are trying and to combo. make it the last spell you play, yeah. Versus decks that were more combo oriented and aggressive, Did, and saying I don't need the value, I just need to find a certain combo. So there was there was obviously a ton of recursion, even by the you know the early aughts. Oh yeah. When, I mean. Oh yeah. And I'm not just talking about like the ninety three ninety four cards or ninety five cards like Forgotten Lore, Regrowth, Recall, but I, I assume cards like Eternal Witness and Restock were probably printed by then. 
nostalgic yeah. dreams, recoup, all of those cards, yeah. it seems to me, would, would all be reasons to play contract. Were they all played, <sighs> by the way? Uh so the, there was a lot of downward pressure on mana cost in the format. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't like EDH where your deck would have some sixes and sevens and eights and Eldrazi in it and stuff like that. There was a lot of downward pressure on efficiency, partly because of contract and the associated impacts on combo and aggro. So the short answer is that a lot of those cards were played, but usually only the most efficient ones. And so you were searching, you had a healthy mixture of cards that would find contracts. Remember, your deck has four of them. Yeah. So it's going to be better to tutor for another one than it is to, you know, regrowth the one you had. I guess it, forgotten, the costs are all the same. I guess forgotten lore isn't very good after a turn one contract no, because you've not. got a lot of cards in the graveyard. But so we definitely played regrowth and we definitely played recoup and things that would find those cards and we definitely played a couple of other dreams. regrowth effects. Yeah, nostalgic dreams. I had one copy of in my deck for that very reason. Yeah. Would, was would five color have been a better format, a more intriguing, entertaining, overall well-rounded format if they had just banned contract? I mean, I understand that was kind of the reason de Atrey, but... Yeah, so in the later years of the format, after it was it was fizzling out for a number of reasons, we did actually ban Contract, and, and not everyone better? played by that. Um, it, it's too hard to disentangle the improvement that that might have brought from the other problems that the format was having. And the, a, a perfect example of that is uh, Fetchlands, right? God. Just like Fetchland yeah. screwed up every other time of Magic, they, really they screwed, screwed up Five, up five Color, five color. That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And so then what happened was they started printing more things that just undermined the nature of the format. Hybrid Mana was a big one that undermined the nature of the format. Split cards oh, yeah. were another thing that completely undermined the nature of the format. Because remember, you're, you're required to play a certain number of cards of each color, but Fire and Ice counted as a red card. Yeah. Which meant you really only had, you know, X minus four red cards in your yeah. deck and you had four ices on the blue side. Well, you side. could have created and supplementary rules to deal with that, or just made five-color an old-school format, like no cards after well, Onslaught or Elite and that's, and that's that's that did end up happening, so there were variants of rules that sprang up, but not every... The, the, the community Got splintered at that point. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's basically the, the textbook case of what old-school experience is, right? It's that different people want different things, and so that's why I said earlier that I think that five-color is actually one of the original kind of old school formats in a sense, and it really should come back. I, I predict that within our lifetime, there will be a revival of five color and the, you'll call it some kind of variant of old school five color because it'll be before a certain time period when printing started to really trash the format. It'll be before hybrid mana probably, but maybe before split cards even. There will be some kind of retro revival of five color back when it was really good and when the limitation on deck construction led to interesting things. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, and there. By the time that the format really fizzled out, you could have a mono blue deck in the format and still meet all the deck construction requirements. Because between cycling and hybrid mana and split cards and other things, yeah, you, you could, could just play. have. Even if you had to have, and we upped the number of cards for each color from twenty to twenty-five right. to try and combat this. Still, but you still could have a hundred non-blue cards in your deck and still just have a deck with all islands Jesus. if you wanted. Yeah. yeah. So the, the the fundamental nature of the format broke well, down well, I, because I, of because I, of the I size understand. of the card. My tool. question was, yeah. I, I really wanted to get at what it was like. Like how obviously it was defining. Yeah. Obviously, the presence of contract in any format is defining, right? Yes. But my question yes. is really, um, I, I, to understand what contract feels like. You, I mean, look, you probably have more as much experience with contract below as anyone I know and probably will ever know. <laughs> yeah. you know? So I've cast a lot of contracts so, in my time. So my my question is really, can you compare and contrast a format with it without it? 
because obviously we've never played a vintage format with it. So so what's it like with with contract compared to without it? What's the salient differences? The salient difference is there isn't that looming threat that your opponent is just going to either come back, yeah, or just pull so far ahead. That was the thing that the tension every game was their contract was looming over that game, right? If if your opponent went like land go, you're like, okay, they didn't contract in the first turn. All right, what does that mean, right? Every play (laughs) your opponent makes in a format like that revolves around the presence and influence of contract. Your opponent. You know, your opponent casts an almost game-winning spell against you, but they've got one more card in hand, right? Yeah. Do you counter it? I have to say... <laughs> I mean, that happens all the time in a, at every point in the spectrum. I have to say that it, it it seems less, not oppressive, but less um, domineering, if that if I can make that distinction. Because I think it's, it's incredibly warping. Well, maybe it's no less warping, but, but less domineering in a time when you have misstep and force of negation... And spell pierce <laughs> and fluster storm, right? To deal with turn one contracts. Yeah. So I assume, so, I assume that, that, you know, obviously misstep would have been a four of in five color to deal with the contract. It would have. If, if the two things had ever really coexisted, yeah. it would have. Yeah. And, and force of the negation. Really, and, by the way, how funny yeah. is it casting, how funny would it be to cast mental misstep on contract from below? That's like <laughs> jarring and it's. <laughs> I know. It really, really is. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's just no good version of five color that can really exist and also have mental misstep be legal because that, uh, that brings with it all of the sets that have come before mental misstep and all the problems. <laughs> it brings with it uh, Phyrexian mana for one thing, which yeah. is just another in a long line of things that compromise that format. So. Well, you were completely right about that, that if we had the vintage suite of counterspells right now, they would keep the format much more in check, but uh, you, you can't have that. It's too convoluted of a hypothesis at this point. Um, I, think we've, I think we've gone pretty deep on this. Thanks, thanks for giving us a sense and our audience a sense of a card that many of us will never get, get <laughs> much experience with, so I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I do want to add one more thing to the end here, and that is the, you know, the, the Nightmare 99 event that you're talking about which allowed for contract and was a turn one format that's its own thing and that's a valuable thing and it's fun the fact that contract was so dominant in five color it comes with a big caveat that the format was purposefully depowered such that you didn't just lose because your opponent resolved a contract right the game frequently still played out now sometimes it didn't but the point is there was still play even after a contract in my opinion any format that can set up that scenario where a contract resolves and you've still got some game in you, I think that's a sweet spot. And that's one of the reasons why Five Color was so attractive is because it was huge and omnipresent and potentially oppressive, but it didn't just end the game. Got it. And that's part of what made it thrilling. I, I think, so there's a couple more things I wanted to say about Anti. Um, that, that I realize we're yeah. jumping from Anti to Contract to Anti to Five Color <laughs> to Anti to Contract to Anti. Well, yeah, um, I mean, they're hopelessly intertwined. Yeah, but um, what I wanted to just make sure I understood, so so... Obviously, from a design perspective, the notion that you would have to ante up another card outside of Magic, you know, ant and poker, ante is the dominant mechanic, right? I mean, I, right. I'm far from a poker expert; I barely play. But my point, my point is that 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 is not really functionally how it plays out or is experienced with contract. It, based upon what you've said. You, you give almost no no thought to the additional ante. That's just like... I, I see your point, and that is basically true. Yes, okay. the, the fact that you're risking additional resources uh, from a monetary or economic standpoint and or the function of your deck 
because of five color, the function of your deck was very diluted, right? That that was almost a non-issue. Um, it was almost a non-issue all the time. There were very few corner cases where you were either so far ahead or so far behind that you would opt out of it, but it was almost never really a consideration. Got it. Um, I, I do want to contrast this card in terms of anti with the other two anti cards, Demon- Dark Pact and Demonic Attorney, but I'll wait until we get oh, to yeah. those cards because they're more, I think, interesting in terms of that contrast, whereas this is just uh, yeah. you know, not, not very interesting yeah. at all in terms of that issue. But the last thing I wanted to just, n- just note is that the of the nine or so cards that have anti, uh, is, mm-hmm. is it, it's, it's, is it ten or nine? Whatever it is, um, it is notable to me that in Alpha, all of them are black. And then Arabia Nights artifact, and then Antiquities, of course, mm-hmm. artifact. And then they're all over the place. Green, red, and then in Homelands, back to black. What do you mm-hmm. make of that distribution of anti in the, in the color pie, does it mean anything to you, or does it just random? I mean, obviously there were different teams working on different sets, but what do you make of that? I feel like some of it is top-down design, and there's no denying the fact that in Alpha, all the anti-cards evoke evil of some brand or another, <laughs> right? I mean, one of them is contract from below, and there's a, a, a ostensibly a devil pointing to a contract, right? You're making a deal with the devil. One of them is demonic attorney, which couldn't be more on the nose right and then dark pact it's the same thing. all of them are top-down designs of the same concept which is i'm i'm consorting with evil for the purposes of power <laughs> and so while so i consider those concepts obviously to be directly evocative of black but the notion that anti was a balancing mechanic i think in contract is in my opinion a little bit of a coincidence you could easily have developed a blue Wheel of Fortune type card or the Time Switcher type card that involved anti yeah. with this, a similar kind of balance to it, right? Yeah. Uh, it, there's no denying the fact that Contract from Below is just Wheel of Fortune. Well, and it's asymmetric. All it is is tra- it's <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, you're, uh, you're right. <laughs> I didn't want to elide that, but it's it, it's functionally Wheel of Fortune in, in its design. Uh, but it's just for you, and so you get the double benefit of it not being symmetrical and it costing a whole bunch of less mana. And anti is meant to balance that. Cards like Demonic Attorney, though, they're, they have a huge, <laughs> a huge effect, you know, in concept. There's no other card in Magic that says if your opponent doesn't concede the game immediately, right? <laughs> Obviously, that's not in the Oracle text anymore <laughs> because conceding the game is just kind of implied. You can do that anytime you want. But this card was structured that the first part of the card is, are you going to concede the game now? Like that is how that card was intended. When, in, when and there's a reason that's the first words on the card. And then Dark Pact is is similar in the sense that you're just trying to get a very very valuable resource. And in this case, I think the conception is that the most valuable resource in the game was your opponent's ante, right? Uh, yeah, I want to I want to so, save our strategic analysis of those cards till yeah, later. But let me but, ask you this question about. But what I'm getting yeah. at is just that. The, the the ante is associated with power, and all the cards that are trying to balance their power by in, invoking the ante just they just happen to share this that they're balancing their power with evil concepts. Um, were did the were the other two anti cards ever played in five color from Alpha? Just out of curiosity. Uh, the the dark pack was banned, and demonic attorney wow. no was never was not played. Okay, it's just garbage. Well, let's let's explain why it's banned when we get to dark pack. Because I'm curious yeah. about that. Yeah. Fascinating. 
Well, Contract from Below is a fascinating card, and I'm, I'm sorry to much of our audience that they'll never get a, a legitimate context to really play it. I would encourage you, if you'd like to, talk to your friends about if there's a way that you can manufacture an environment that you want to play Contract in. It's, it's totally reasonable to come up with some kind of league format, right? Your own old school variant, whatever. You don't have to be millionaires and play Alpha Card 40 or whatever for anti, right? Revised contracts are like a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> the card itself is, is it's so cheap because it's not useful, right? The val- magic cards are valuable due to their utility strongly, which is why even an alpha contract from below, it looks like it's only a couple hundred bucks. Like for an alpha rare, that's on the low end, isn't it, Steve? <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. So I would say if you're excited by this notion, you'd like to feel the thrill of casting a contract from below. I don't know. Talk to a couple of your friends. Maybe just, Maybe just build together two two decks and ask one of your friends to duel for Ante. It'll be fun. Love it. Yeah. Shall we move on to Control Magic, Steve? Control Magic is <laughs> another fascinating card. Two UU, Enchant Creature. You control target creature until enchantment is discarded or game ends. <laughs> you can't tap target creature this turn. But if it was already tapped, it stays tapped until you can untap it. If destroyed, target creature is put into its owner's graveyard. It's ironic that we're reviewing this right after contract from below because there's a whole bunch of language on here that speaks to the fact that this is not a change in ownership. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think the most puzzling thing about the alpha text, we've talked about, well, before I make this point, we've talked about at least engaged with alpha templating, right? We talked Mm -hmm. about targeting. We've talked about loss of life versus damage. We've, or, um, what was the other? What was the force field use? Lose damage prevention. Lose one. Yeah, or you, says, lose all but one. <laughs> yeah, lose all but one. We've talked about um, certainly discarding versus destruction. Targeting destruction. Yeah, and targeting. Yeah. It's so curious to me that the first sentence uses the word discarded, and the last sentence uses the word destroyed. So yeah, and they it's completely inconsistent. It's completely inconsistent, and yet it's, they're clearly using them interchangeably. So the only yeah. way that there is a difference is if how could you discard from play a control magic in a way that it wasn't destroyed? I can't even think of an example of that. Uh, you know, so it's like I suppose unless you interpreted disrupting scepter as you know including permanence in play, there's no way yeah. that this could be quote unquote discarded. So that's just so odd to me that they that they <laughs> use both. I mean, it would it's still odd to see you know, the use of the word discard to refer to destroying a permanent from play, you know, going to the graveyard. But it's uh-huh. doubly odd, maybe more so, to see it used and then have the, you know, more familiar vernacular of destruction on the same the same text box. <laughs> Especially in a set and format that features regeneration, right? Yes. Regeneration, which ostensibly protects from destruction... Yes. But in the alpha context, does it protect from discarding? Don't think so. But what is that meant to mean? <laughs> right? Yeah. Very odd. <laughs> yeah. So, so this, well, this card is, I mean, the thing to say about this card is, first of all, it's, it's, at the very beginning of the set review, I said that I think that like uncommons kind of anchor the set in some way that, you know, not the foundation of the set, but the working kind of machinery of the set. And this is one of those uncommons. This is clearly yeah. a very high operational, high frequency card play, you know, play card. It's not without entire downside. You know, there are things you can't control magic, starting with Jade Statue, 
and direct damage spells or or no direct damage threats like black vise copper tablet or fireball right, but right. um but it's a very this is a very high powered card and i i personally played it in and i played it plenty in type 1 as you remember i oh, yeah. i've control magic some strange things kevin in type 1 <laughs> tournaments i played control magic on ally from cairo i played control, nice. control magic on uh cert you mean you mean in the 21st century? In the 21st century, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have. Uh, I, I used to play... I played plenty of Control Magics on Phyrexian Dreadnoughts. That's one of my favorite uses, of course. Nice. Um, lots of Control... And sometimes before you even knew they were Phyrexian Dreadnoughts. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know what you meant. Um, yeah, I mean, so Control Magic is a great card, and it was something that I... It, it, genuinely enjoyed playing an accelerated blue at cyborg because you can play a Fidian, play the control magic clear out there it's it's basically a two for one in a sense because you can use your opponent's card against them which is really nice it's not yeah. with it's also phenomenally powerful in in old school 94 in my experience and very good in alpha league in fact in yeah. alpha league the main use is just i'll steal your juggernaut and start killing you with it um in in 94 it's I mean, it it just scales up and down. It's so good. Take take Juggernauts from Workshop deck. Take a Urnum Jin. Take a Juzum Jin. Probably that's the best use is taking like a Juzum out of a black deck, hippie. But it's it's just a high power card. I, it's you can go back to you know Type One decks from 2000, 2001, 2002 and see plenty of Control Magics in the sideboard. Now I remember Control Magic was superseded at one point, but was it Threads of Disloyalty, Kevin? Is that the card? That is one of the variants, yeah. Yeah, that that was in Betrayers of Kamigawa. I mean, so there is there are a lot of a lot of Control Magic variants over the years. Treachery was never as good, in my opinion, as Control Magic at that additional cost because you the efficiency is so important, and especially yeah. in mono blue, you really wanted to be able to go, you know, a mox or two and get that double blue and 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 hit this off so you could stem the bleeding. Um, but just an immensely powerful card. Do you have specific memories with this card, Kevin? It's interesting. I, I didn't ever play it in the way that you did in those vintage eras, right? Because it was so good in mono blue, and that was never really my deck. So I don't... While I have a lot of affection for the card, and I, I think it's really great from a historical context, I just kind of don't have the experience that you have with it. I've never played Alpha Card 40 you know, or the Alpha League with it. I never was playing it in vintage in that those brief time periods when it was a, a pretty good answer to things. So while I don't have as much nearly as much experience, I still think it's fantastic and I love the genre of card that it has yielded over the years. <laughs> yeah. It is cool. Yeah, it, it firmly puts blue in the steel, not just copy. I mean, we've talked about clone and Vesuvian and copy artifact, but it also has yeah. this not just emulation, but I'll take that component to well, it. Well, and that last bit, I think, is worth reinforcing, is that we started the blue theme with Animate Artifact, right? Which manipulates an artifact, yeah. turns it into a creature. We just recently talked about Clone, as you said. Now we're on Control. So this further cements that triumvirate of ways that blue, even just in Alpha and then throughout the rest of Magic, gets to manipulate things in play. It can change them, it can copy them, it can control them. And as we're going to get to later on, it can return them to your to your hand, right? So this is one of the mechanical things about Alpha and that was carried forward through much of Magic history, which I think is genuinely beautiful, 
is that blue, while it's the best color, significant, has significant issues with removing a permanent in play. And that is very much true within Alpha, yet blue gets other creative answers to things. It's just that sometimes controlling a thing is not the best answer to it. Yeah, agreed. I uh, I don't know. I don't think I have much more to add about this card, just that in old school there is a high-risk reward function because you really don't want to get hit with a... Uh, a red blast at the at the wrong moment, but otherwise it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's really powerful. I do want to point out that the this card is similar to clone in a sense in that it is still the model for modern day creature game controlling enchantments. However, unlike clone, which they've had to ratchet the power up on over the years, they've actually had to power ratchet the power down. down a little yeah. bit, but not much. In, in the most recent set, M twenty one. There's another control magic. It's called Enthralling Hold. It costs three blue-blue, and it says, uh, you enchant creature, you can't choose an untapped creature as a spell target as you cast it. So it's a pretty significantly powered-down one, but that is very clearly for limited purposes, because this card at four mana is just a little bit too good at uncommon for limited. To but there have been a number of other four-mana variants over the years. To your point, now that I'm looking at this, it was printed in ABUR 4th, and then disappeared after 4th edition, like Mana Vault. So it was probably... For a long time. Yeah, it, it came back with... Um, it came back in Master's sets, but, and, and it's only been it's only come back in reprint sets, basically. No, but what I'm saying is it's never come back into a standard legal set. That's what I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. Which means it's it is overpowered. It's been reprinted a few times. It's, it's dim- it is. Yeah. It's above the power curve. The last time it was printed in a set that was really intended for limited play was in Eternal Master's. And that's because that was a much higher power level format, and so it fit with that power level that a, from a limited was standpoint. Was that a paper set? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's the last time it was in a set that was really intended for limited play. What a cool card. Very much what so. What a cool card. I hadn't seen the other arts, the art variants on this. They're interesting. Yeah. All right, so next up is Conversion, <laughs> which it falls under the heading of crazy what they weren't afraid to... Built, uh, built you with hosers in alpha. <laughs> Two WW enchantment. All mountains are considered planes while conversion is in play. Pay WW during upkeep or conversion is discarded. So, um, just ridiculous, ridiculous color hosers. Yeah. <laughs> so what I wanted to point out is that in alpha, there is a tranche of cards that are intense color hosers that you don't quite see to the same extent these days. <laughs> and in, so in totally. the design philosophy, it's clear, it's also explained what this is about. And what this is about is that Richard Garfield wanted players to avoid hyper-specialization. And specialization can mean more than two things. But one thing it means is, is it can mean a particular strategy, like land destruction or discard, right? Or just all burn, right? Yeah. But the other thing specialization can mean is just being in a single color. And so... Cards like these were included to try and dissuade players from going all in on a single mono color to try and get them to branch out to two colors. And um, obviously, in a in a format where people aren't necessarily playing with sideboards, that's a little harder to do. But I think the idea was that you know if if there's a player in the league who's playing a mono blue deck and they're just consistently winning, you know, or whatever, then players will eventually start adding tsunamis or whatever the case may be. So yeah. this is just the first of these, as you call them, powerful color hosers that we that we'll encounter. I would like to kind of, as we go through them, Kevin, kind of do a mental ranking of how power what, what the most to least powerful we think is. Um, mm-hmm. I confess, way back in the day, I probably played this once or twice in like '94, '95, 
um, to, to just just hose mono red decks. I think it was probably in my sideboard, maybe one of at one point, just to test it out. And I do remember playing yeah. it, and it was quite powerful. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it was more powerful because of its continuous presence, despite the upkeep, than the kind of one-shot cards like Flashfires or Tsunami. You have any? Yeah. You have any experience yeah. with that? I've never played with conversion. I don't think I've ever cast this card or really been party to it. But I can tell you that it, what you said about the intended effect would be, I'm skeptical about it being truly effective in practice. But I think part of that is because I never really played magic for any significant period of time with a significant, uh, limitation on cards that I had. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started playing, I had a starter deck and a couple of boosters, but we didn't know anything about anything back then. We were just kind of playing these decks that were, here's all the cards I have. You know, there was, there's no point in time. Here's what I should say. There's no point in time in which I was really constructing a deck such that I felt like I was limited to a particular color or anything such that conversion in particular out of revised at the time uh, was really impactful. And I never saw anyone else play it either. That said, there were some other cards that we're going to review that were definitely played in my play group and or had stronger effects. So I guess what I'm getting at is simply that I, while I think I had opportunity to experience this card specifically, it just never was the right thing to do for me or my play group. It's also worth noting that in Alpha, there's plenty of ways to sidestep. Even if you're ostensibly playing mono red, there's plenty of ways to sidestep this. So it's not a sure thing. But this really hurts something like goblins. You know, a deck that's designed to churn out threats that cost red mana, as opposed to a deck like a burn deck, which could still kill you with its one mox ruby, maybe. Yeah. No, I, I don't remember the specific circumstances in which I tried this, but I think it was probably like against a goblin deck. Or maybe like yeah. a proto sly deck. You know, where I was just sick of, <laughs> sick of getting drubbed, you know, down. And I wanted something that just hosed it. And I, I remember being quite effective in that, in that capacity. But it probably only, I only probably played it once or twice in that, in that role. Kevin, I also wanted to point out something. So, um, it's interesting, by the way, there aren't a, a ton of cards that have an upkeep cost, but there are a number. You know, mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, the upkeep is mainly used for things like copper tablet stuff, but, but in terms of paying, it sets, this is like the first one we've seen, sets that temp, establishes that template. But the other thing I wanted to point out is that the art here is Jesper Meifers, who did planes, and the art is basically the planes art with a little mound yeah. in the middle. <laughs> yeah, with some extra Mounted. stuff for context in the, on the, the periphery. Yeah, you're right. It's very, it's very simple. <laughs> well, it, I mean, specifically, if you look at the A and B planes art, yeah. It's basically it's, this. It's art. very much that planes. Yeah. yeah. Except with the that tiny would make some sense. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing those responsible for art and during the development of this probably thought of that and thought, well, if this is going to act on mountains and make them planes, let's use the planes art right. as a reference. Well, Jesper was the yeah. art director and also the artist here. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Win win. Yeah. So let's move on to copper tablets for two mana, a continuous artifact that says copper tablet does one damage to each player during his or her upkeep. What a very simple card. And also it's ironic that the templating is not too far off of modern day standards in the sense that now it says at the beginning of each player's upkeep, but one damage to, the, to each player during his or her upkeep, that's actually pretty straightforward. Doesn't ha- it's, it's not a great template, but it doesn't have a lot of the tactical pro- or syntactic problems that we've had with so many other cards. This is a really interesting card. It's not a card that I ever saw people playing back in the day. 
Nor can I recall from, you know, the deck lists I pulled, people playing it. But if I'm not mistaken, it does occasionally appear in old school 94 decks, ATOG decks, Kevin. So, yeah, you mentioned that before, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting card. I mean, the other thing is in Alpha, they moderated this card because I guess they don't want players playing. I guess it could get out of hand if you had like 10 or 11 of these. Um, <laughs> you know, which you could easily do, right? In, in Alpha League. Yeah. And, um, it would kill your opponent first, which is pretty amusing because they take. That's true. The, it's it's like Howling Mind, the inverse of Howling Mind. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say go for it. Let's, let's do it. So let's just do a little bit of math on this. So assuming you start with turn two and then play a, a copper tablet every turn. Do it like Plague Rats. What's the math? <laughs> How long does it take to kill your opponent? <laughs> well, it's just that it's just they take one and then two and then three. So one, three, um, five. On turn four, you get eight. to play two of these, though. Oh, right. You're playing two a turn. I yeah. forgot. Oh, so I'd have to do the math about how many, how many cards are in your hand. So assuming you get to play one every turn, then... So the, the, on turn two, they take a single damage. Then you play a second one. So on turn three, they take two damage. They're, they're at 17. Then they take three damage. They're at 16. Then they take four damage. They're at 10. Then five and then six and they're dead. So it was one, two, three, four, five, six turns. And it's also pretty hard to interact with in the alpha context, right? But unfortunately, one way that interacts with it positively is just doing your own damage, right? Cause this is right. symmetrical or, in practice, it's nearly symmetrical. So if they just played Llanowar Elves on turn one, you st- you uh, unfortunately lose that race. <laughs> right. So that's funny. I love This the... card is in it. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I love the Rosetta Stone art. Amy Weber, as we've been reviewing this, she just has some of the best art. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. The high And this card is also in a unique uh, position in the history of magic as being a card that hasn't been reprinted since unlimited ah, but is not is not reserved. reserved Ooh, yeah so this card could be printed tomorrow and in fact it was in one of the master sets to get it in the magic online environment but uh yeah so it's not reserved and it's only ever been reprinted there's only a few thousand copies of this card ever right well it's uncommon there's more than a few thousand several thousand but by today's standards it's exceedingly uh rare <laughs> But yet an unlimited copy is only 10 bucks. <laughs> yeah. It's just interesting intersection of rare and yet not that useful. Kevin, it's also notable that it's a continuous artifact that did not receive power level, uh, or rather restored functionality through. Uh, oh, right. It should have turned off when tapped, shouldn't it? Yeah. 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 It's such a strange, inconsistently applied rule vis a vis cards that really matter, now, Howling Mine and Winter Orb. No, I should say. Turning off when tapped is, is easier said than done with this card because <laughs> this, it will trigger still during the upkeep. And even if you tap it, that it, the resol- the trigger will still resolve, presumably. You you would need to icy it on their end step. Exactly. You need yeah, or, or, you or like it stasis it. Tap it with stasis yeah. to keep it tapped. <laughs> Copper tablet. Let's see if it ever makes a comeback. We could be having to, we could be doing this show another hundred episodes and, and copper tablet still hasn't been reprinted or played. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you can design a card that's so simple in design, right? And yet, I mean, th- that's what I love is that some of these cards are simple to the point of simplistic, but in the cumulative effect, in the interactions, the, the board states they create are so complex. So, I mean, it's like, 
right? Plague Rats is very simple, but the scenarios that it generates are enormously fraught and tangled and have to be puzzled through, right? It's like, okay, he has three rats. If he plays a fourth one, I'm going to take X amount of damage. If I play this lightning bolt now or this fireball for three, I can kill the rat, but I'll take this much damage or should I play this threat instead, right? It's like, it, that's what's that's really the beauty of magic in my opinion it's not from in my opinion the most beautiful thing about magic is is the emergent complexity from simple components which is the opposite of planeswalkers right and i think copper tablet very basically embodies that right we just talked about the math around it you said it's a six turn clock if you can keep playing copper tablets right, <laughs> right. but but the game i imagine the game states become darn complicated because if you did happen if you were in some sort of strange format where you were permitted, allowed, to build the Copper Tablet deck, you would have to take into consideration a lot of variables. And your opponent <laughs> would have to take into consideration those variables as well. Including, but not limited to, do I try and accelerate my clock, or do I try and answer the Copper Tablet? You know, do I do I pick a spot? Um, you know, those those that's that's difficult. Especially if your opponent then can, you know, the Copper Tablet player can do something about it. I mean, if you're holding up, let's say, a Juggernaut, which you could play on turn four, or you could shatter or disenchant one of these things, that's that's a difficult decision, which route to go. I don't think that's so simple to answer. And the, the hypothetical Copper Tablet deck would have to make a lot of concessions for what its opponents were trying to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> that you can't just expect a win when you're killing both players at an even pace, right? It probably effective that that archetype effectively relies on being undamaged by their opponents. Yeah, it probably start wants to start with turn one black vise and then play some tablets. There you go. Yeah, yeah. The symmetry of this thing is strange. Let's put it that way. It's simple, effective, but also strange. All subsequent printings of this kind of effect, and there haven't been very many, but there's a number of things that do damage for different reasons during upkeep and are sometimes symmetrical, but they've all had more power to them since this card. They've all had more caveats or ways that you can dodge the damage or this, that, or the other thing, right? Yeah. Armageddon Clock is the card that comes to mind that's a little bit more top-down in design, but a lot more complexity. Yeah, there you go. And let's let's put a pin in this idea, Steve, because we're going to call back to this discussion when we do our next set review for Zendikar Resurgent. I guarantee it. Sounds good. (laughs) All right, let's move on to from from a a weakling to a powerhouse, and we're talking about copy artifact. One U, it's an enchantment. Select any artifact in play. This enchantment acts as a duplicate of that artifact. Enchantment copy is affected by cards that affect either enchantments or artifacts, Enchantment copy remains even if original artifact is destroyed. The fact that this is so interesting. There is, I've already referred to this card in this verbiage when we talked about clone because clone specifically says you can't play it if there's no creatures in play. And copy artifact and Vesuvian doppelganger don't have that limitation. So in the alpha context, well, in, in any context, you could cast an art, a copy artifact and have it not copy anything. Have it just be a two mana blue enchantment sitting in play with no text if you wanted to do that. And it's interesting that this little bit of text that says um, enchantment copy is affected by cards that affect either enchantments or artifacts is interesting because in the alpha context, they definitely did not have strong feeling for what it meant to copy something. And so 
the implication just by design, top-down design of this card is it's still an enchantment while it's also an artifact. But that's not a given. Modern copy cards become exact copies of things, and it's not normally the case that the thing would still be an enchantment. So I think that's noteworthy. And in fact, the modern um, Oracle text of this card has the the tagline, except it's an enchantment in addition to its other types, which they had to add to to maintain that functionality. I think the the textual question that this alpha text raises is if you put play it and you and there's no artifact to copy um is it does it still count as an artifact that is to say is the second clause that follows the semicolon in the second sentence a dependent one on successfully copying something that's interesting it's certainly you could certainly read it that way right because these could have been separate sentences yeah but because they're and the fact that they the fact that they're not certainly suggests dependency. Yeah, which if and I uh, like the little bit of tactical advice here at the end. Enchantment copy <laughs> remains even if the original artifact is destroyed. Thanks. So, uh, Steve, I love this card. It's a personal favorite of mine. I've I've had black bordered copies for years and years because I used to play it in my casual decks. I early on I quickly realized that two mana to copy most artifacts that are worth playing in Magic, except for in the straight up vintage context, two mana is just way too cheap it's to a copy great deal. artifacts, right? Like, a lot of artifacts cost three or more and are really good, and paying two mana for them is way too good of a deal. That's why this card is becoming increasingly uh, noticed in EDH, is because it's just far too good of a deal. But in the alpha context, the specific alpha context, we've already alluded to the fact that um, Juggernaut and Jade Statue are such good, high-quality cards. They're tactically strong and efficient. And the fact that this can copy those for two mana, in my opinion, would make this card a powerhouse in just the average uh, alpha metagame. Have you experienced that? So, um, not not actually. I have not. I, I think I think it's absurdly powerful in in alpha forty because there's just so many like soul rings around. You know, you could just turn this into a soul ring, and, and people are playing a lot more juggernauts and, and jade statues in alpha forty. It's a little bit more dicey, I think. It's just not, you know, you're gonna, it's, the game could unfold where you, they don't play any artifacts for a while, and then you're sitting on the copy artifact. Um, but I, ha- I don't really have enough experience with, with copy artifact in Alpha Rules to know for sure. So also, Kevin, it's restricted in Alpha League. Oh, that makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah. It's one of 12 cards that is just, just restricted, not including the dual lands. So it, Okay, so there's obviously a cap on how good it could be, and therefore how good of a blue or mono-blue archetype it can support. Right? My favorite, probably, use of copy artifact, though, in old school, not in alpha, is in the Guardian Beast decks that that are built like around Chaos Orb. Things can get really ah. funny. I love I love that transmute, you know, <laughs> transmute with with Chaos with copy artifact. That that's some fun stuff right there. That's fun. That's cool. Do those play, decks play trike? What's their yeah. What's their end game? Yeah, I mean, basically, their end game is blow up your opponent's entire board and then attack with yeah. Guardian Beast. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then your artifacts aren't protected. Come on. Yeah, you well, you, 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 gotta, you gotta play multiple. Um, <laughs> no, but but in competitive old school, it is absolutely true that Workshop Land Dude Turn Two Copy Artifact, you know, is is brutal. You know, it's yeah. that's that is a cumulative effect is is just brutal. Although I I also much like control magic, have very much enjoyed letting my opponent play copy artifact and then I respond with shatter 
and they get to copy nothing. That's that's fun times too. <laughs> yeah, this card is fantastic. I predict that it it's unfortunately it's reserved, and that mean the price has already like doubled or tripled in the last year or so. It's going to conclude continue to be just ridiculously expensive, unfortunately, because it's going to get better and better in EDH as more and more artifacts are printed. There were already fine 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 copies the average game of edh features many many good targets for this i think it's gonna i predict that players are going to desire this card more and more as years go by unfortunately and it is it is puzzling that or interesting i guess that despite the fact that this card has basically seen almost no play in contemporary or even historical type one just a minimal amount it the the phyrexian metamorph has been widely played so so the, the the uh descendant of this card the decedent, not the decedent, but the you know the subsequent yeah. iteration of it has has been has had quite an impact. Yeah, the Phyrexian Metamorph is a perfect com- uh, comparison to this one. The big difference there, though, is that Metamorph can copy a creature. Yeah, my favorite it can't copy artifact at Gristlebrand. My favorite example of that is exactly that when when Rich Shea yeah. copied Gristlebrand and drew fourteen cards. I think it was in the top eight of a Vintage Championship a couple of years ago. That was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that was sweet. Yeah. That that was a prototypical example of that play. Yeah, love me some copy artifact. This is another Amy Weber art, and God, it's great. interesting to me how... So, Steve, this is obviously a pretty... There, there's two things going on with this art. One is it's simplistic, and it's a little bit literal, but to your eyes, which one of these artifacts is the copy? Yeah, exactly. I, I can't tell. Yeah, I think it's intentionally unclear which one is the copy, which is fun. I like it. Yeah, and it is it is clear and like, but it's also got a a bit of mystery about the image, which I love. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. All right, let's talk about uh, the one, the only, except no substitutes, counterspell for UU. It's an interrupt, which we talked about a lot before. Counters target spell as it is being cast, and I just now noticed, Steve, that this says target. Target. If you compare spell. that back to, <laughs> yes. if you compare that back to. Blue Elemental Blast, which says counters a red spell being cast. This one says counter target spell so, as it is. So being I'm going to look at the other ca- the other counter spells. Power Sync says target spell. Now let's look yep. at Spell Blast. Spell Blast says target spell as well. Jesus. <sighs> <laughs> oh, this is this is so interesting, Steve, because that calls into question. There's an alternate universe where the Alpha Blue Elemental Blast could very readily have said something like destroys a red spell or card or, <laughs> right, or maybe right. target red tar- uh, a red spell Destroy. or card is discarded yeah god can you imagine if it said a red spell or card is destroyed is, is discarded i mean god that is one possible alpha wording for blue elemental blast that would have been hilarious good luck teasing that one out yeah <laughs> but this one by contrast, is actually pretty close to the mark, even by today's standards, right? right? Target spell countered as it's being cast is obviously implied by today's standards, but uh, you know the modern counter spell simply says counter target spell, and that's fantastic. This is an example of a card, the type of which you alluded to before right. in its uh, simplicity, right? right? Uh, it just so happens that the simplicity here is also very powerful at, in contrast to a copper tablet. I I just want to say a, a couple of things about this. This is probably the most iconic blue card from the set. I mean, sure, you could point to ancestral, blah blah blah. I think this is the most iconic. I mean, it's iconic. I would agree. Yeah, the most kind of recognizable, most widely used, blah blah blah. You know, um, 
it's it's it you know very much solidifies blue as the color permission and establishes permission as a deep concept. I want to say two two things about it. Number one is that we haven't talked about it, but the the limited edition blue card frame is really gorgeous. And oh, yeah. and I don't know why, but Counterspell really makes that that shine in a really interesting way. The 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 alpha and beta Counterspells just cannot be beat. They're just so beautiful. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I yeah. you know, there's you can say nice things about the Mirage Block ones or the Ice Age ones or Unlimited, but they're just that. Now there's some weird printing errors where almost all the alpha ones have like these incredibly thick margin on one side and thin on the other. But yeah. um, it's a gorgeous card. It's just a gorgeous card. But the other thing I wanted to point out about a counterspell is that by s- putting counterspell, just flat counterspell, no conditionality, in blue, blue, has been so fundamental to Magic's development over the years. You know, that that, mm-hmm. that blue, blue, holding it up, whether it's counterspell or mana drain, is such a big bluff thing and a defining thing in Magic and also that, you know, for years it was about, especially in Type 1, Type 1 was all about trying to get your spells either into play or on the stack before your opponent had blue blue up, or, you know, or or get them to tap down with a bait spell so that you could then resolve your spell through blue the blue blue. Um, and I just, I'm sad that that's gone away on some level. That that now you know I, the real sea change card initially was was with Zendikar was Spell Pierce. That was the that was mm-hmm. the moment that changed everything, and made Mana Drain <laughs> really. It was the it was the moment where Mana Drain kind of faded away and disappeared, never to return. Really. Yeah. Um, yeah. The simple truth is is that holding two two mana up, the only reason you do that is to Snapcaster your mental misstep. Right. right? These days, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. And this is such a beautiful iconic card. And it's fu- it's fun to get to re- redo that, but also it's it's not cost free, right? That that it, especially in something like Alpha League, um, and occasionally in old school ninety four, that the blue blue consistency without fetch lands is such that sometimes power sync is going to be better or spell blast. That oh yeah that you know counter spell isn't always the end all be all, um, which is the mana system working as intended exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wonderful card. I think also a very balanced card. I mean, hyper-efficient, but I think in its power level, it's basically balanced. Um, Ken, I'm trying to remember my, my old school type one, my type one mono blue deck, you know, from circa 2002, 2003. I certainly play with four mana drains, and I think I played with four mana leak. I'm guessing mm-hmm. I played with four counter spell too, but I, I just can't remember. I'd have to go back and look. I don't. I don't think you had four counter spells. You may have had some quantity some. of them, but I remember Mana Leak was so formative to the function of that deck. Right, Mox Land. Yeah. I. I don't know. If, I probably I don't know if did. You had more, I probably had it maybe one at most. You're right. Yeah. I don't think you did. The um, your comments about balance for a counter spell. While I think I understand your reasoning there. The card hasn't been properly balanced for like standard magic for years and years. I thought they brought it back. It's not even back. legal in modern. Didn't they bring it back at well, one point? It, well, it it was reprinted in almost every core set for years because they mistakenly thought that it was the correct balance for counter magic and magic. So it was in revised in fourth edition. It was in Ice Age. It wasn't in Mirage, but it was in Tempest and then 
and 6th edition and then masks all the way up through 7th edition. It was at about 7th edition that they realized, wait a second, this is actually a little too efficient for what we're trying to do in standard. And so it hasn't been in a standard legal product since then. Okay, well, I stand it's corrected. That. <laughs> it has been reprinted a few times, and it's been in Masters sets. Yeah. So it was in Eternal Masters, which I just alluded to with Control Magic. And it was in um, also in M25, and then reprinted in Mystery Boosters. So it's been in reprint products since 7th edition several times. But it hasn't been in rotation in a booster product intended for regular old limited play since 7th. And it's still not legal in modern. It's it's too good for modern. It's above the power level for even that format, wow. which is saying something, which is saying a lot. Yeah. Fascinating. And obviously, it's still the mo- they're still chasing this tail when it comes to the cost of a counter spell. They're still looking for that sweet spot in variations of two mana counters, right? We got negate. We got all the way back in Legends, we got remove soul. And so, and there's been plenty of variants of those in different iterations over the years, but. The simple truth is two mana is, is good for a counter. It just has to have limitations. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Still, you're right. Iconic. Fantastic. All right, speaking of iconic, <laughs> let's talk about Craw Worm. Now, Craw Worm is a common. It's 4GG Summon Worm. It has no text. It is a vanilla 6-4. And I have to say that in my youth, Craw Worm was very formative on my impression of what a creature can and should be. Right, and part of that is because it was common, which means yes. you saw them frequently. Yes, <laughs> the the sh- the Shiv and Dragons and Lords of the Pit and Force of Natures of the World were rare. rare, both in title and in practice. And so, Crawl Worm was a thing that you could just do. Right, you you played out some land of war elves, you played out some lands, you played a Crawl Worm. That was basic magic back when I started, and it still has a kind of a warm place in my heart, even though by today's standards it's underpowered for a six drop. You, you get much more for your money on this one, and now you get the omnipresent, um, shoot, what's the joke creature that's printed in everything? Colossal Dreadmaw. So now you get Colossal Dreadmaw for this cost, which is much better in multiple ways, and now is the new standard. Colossal Dreadmaw, of course, is this same mana cost for a 6-6 six, six trampler. So the simple truth is, is that 6 mana for 6 power in green is still a standard, which is why Colossal Dreadmaw is the way it is and jokingly reprinted in almost every set these days but the point is is that this card while underpowered still provides the model in much the same way that clone did in and in control magic does still fair enough i i, I love i love me some crawl worm steve do you have affection for it the way i do you know what i have affection for is is the flavor text of crawl worm actually oh yeah yeah i love the last line um I have seen people play this in Alpha 40 before because it's, you know, like an all-common deck, mostly common deck just for affordability. I, I have to say I've never been impressed by it, though. So okay. it hasn't has not left that impression. One other thing that I like about Crawl Worm is that it begot in Legends Craw Giant. <laughs> With Rampage. Which is, yeah, which is one more green mana. So this is what 7-4. But it's 6-4 Trample and Rampage 2. And I remember when Legends came out... Well, I'm, Legends was already out when I started playing. But when when I was picking up cards and finally got myself a Craw Giant, I was just so happy because I loved Craw Giant so much. <laughs> You're right in the sense yeah. that this probably is the first big creature that people see. Which is Yeah, which that's, is that's kind of part of the point. Is of common creatures in Alpha, this is actually the biggest one, isn't it? I think you're right. I mean, it's the, the, the biggest power, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so this is when you're just opening boosters for the first time and you're experiencing magic through its as fan. This is the pinnacle. Yeah, this is the pinnacle of creatures, really, barring rares and uncommons. And even at rare, it, it takes a lot to get bigger than this, True. right? There's not much that's bigger. Even Mahomodi Jin is this is smaller than this on offense. Even Shivan Dragon's smaller than this on offense. So it's it's still pretty big, even by the rarity standards. Great point. Yeah. All right. Anyway, let's move on to Creature Bond. <laughs> this is a fun one. I always remember looking at this and thinking, should I? Creature Bond costs one U. It's an enchant creature. If target creature is destroyed. Creature Bond does an amount of damage equal to the creature's toughness to creature's controller. Note the use of destroyed yep. as opposed to uh, discarded. discarded. <laughs> yeah. Or or when revised comes around buried. Yeah. Um, this, this is, is some concise... quality top-down design, right? Yeah. Just just not not structured strong enough to be of any use. No. It it wants to be the psychic venom for creatures, but it's just not. <laughs> That's right. How long was it until they printed a card that functioned like Psychic Venom for creatures? I don't really, I really don't remember when that came along. Not, I, I don't expect you to know off the top of your head either. But if this had been whenever this creature becomes tapped, it does two damage to you. There you go. That would have been a better card, yeah. right? That would have been a downright good card, especially in the alpha context with Land Worlds. Oh, and with Icy Manipulator? Yeah. Gosh, that would have been such a better card. I guess they wanted some variety, though. And obviously, there's something to be said for the fact that this scales up, right? You play this on your opponent's Force of Nature, and then you're talking about some damage. Uh, this goth lady is in, is very much enjoying this dragon. It's like her her dragon. <laughs> it's it's a very enigmatic-y art. It's it's yeah, cool. it really is. That emo Pe- people 90s. with no people with no pupils. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, not much to say about Creature Bond. It's very weak and not very interesting. This next card is interesting for a number of reasons, and we've already talked about it a little bit, and that's Crusade. WW for an enchantment, all white creatures gain plus one, plus one. Steve, we've obviously talked about the practice of this card kind of a lot already, especially in reference to Bad Moon and the various creatures that this pumps in the alpha context, especially on the low end of the curve. This card obviously has some Sturm and Drong associated with it recently for policy reasons, but what else do you want to add about the function of the thing? Well, in in old school '94, White Weenie is one of the has won at least several notable tournaments on the back of Crusade, you know. And and the thing I remember back in historical Type One, Kevin, frankly, was that the there was a massive efficiency around Thunder Spirit. The Thunder Spirit was like this card that everyone's like, "Ooh, Thunder Spirit," you know. Yeah. And and yeah. Thunder Spirit just I think was basically you know paired up with Crusade incredibly well. Um, yeah, I, I mean. I think I think that's basically what I would point to is just that once Fallen Empires comes out, both mono white and mono black become upper tier decks. I don't necessarily want to say type top one top you know tier one, but certainly close. And Crusade is much Bad Moon I think to a lesser extent, but Crusade is certainly part of that. I think the reason white so so black has Dark Ritual for its mono black deck, right aggro deck, but white has Disenchant and Swords and Armageddon if you want that. And I think Crusade is part of that part of that story. Yeah. It, 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 in terms of the art, I just think it's this is a fascinating piece of art in a number of re, number of respects. First of all, much like Unholy Strength, this has reference to kind of Judeo-Christian iconography symbolism with the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, much like the pentagram is on uh, Unholy Strength. Um, 
but the, the art here is cool because it's it's what's interesting about the art is it's kind of got I mean it's kind of got a whole narrative built in. There's like the you know these these people who are on a crusade yeah. in the background. There are these other people lined up, and then there's like this you know burning wreck in the back. Um, it certainly does tell a story, as you yeah. said, in a narrative sense, way more than almost any card in early days does. Yeah, it's got foreground characters, it's got midground characters, it's got background activity. Yes, and you're right. That's pretty unusual by alpha standards where some cards have no context at all, many cards. And also the flags have different imagery. So one of them has a bunch yeah. of crosses on it and the other one has a dragon on it. Yeah. So Well, and there's no denying that the fact that this card depicts religious violence is one of the reasons <laughs> why it was recently banned in all sanctioned play across the game and no longer is reflective of the messages and images that Wizards wants to convey in their game. Well, I would say there is some doubt about that. It's unclear whether this card was primarily banned on grounds of of race or religion or some combination. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly a possible contributor to that decision. Yeah. I do think the racial connotations are there contributing as well, yeah. Well, we've already drained a lot of the the art, the metagame implications of Crusade. Uh, I I would like to add to what you said that the bolstering, one of the bolstering differences between white and black in the context of those weenie decks going against each other and against the rest of the metagame is that, is that white has Armageddon and black does not, yeah. right? <laughs> but, but black has Hypnotic Spectre and Juzam, you know, with Dark yeah. Ritual and white does not. Yeah. And, and yeah. Black Knight is pretty good against swords, but sorry, I mean, uh, yeah, Black Knight is good against swords. No, but you're right. You're right that, that, uh, there are some clear advantages that white has as a weenie color in order to deal with certain things. Yeah. All right. Anything else on Crusade? Nope. All right. This, this next one's funny because I know you've got something special to add. I've got a lot to say about this card. A, a alpha shockingly, context, yeah. I have a shockingly large <laughs> amount of discussion points on this card. So, so go so, for it. <laughs> this is Crystal Rod for a single colorless mana. Or generic man, I should say. It is a poly artifact, which is very noteworthy. It says one colon. Any blue spell cast by any player gives you one life, <laughs> which is a hilarious phraseology, right? The it's the spell is giving you one life, <laughs> not the crystal rod, which is obviously chemical by today's standards. Um, so the the function of this card is obviously up for debate, right, for the historical context, and so I think that's strongly. What you have to say about this card is how it works in practice. Yeah, uh, I did, before I get to that, th- this this language, this the the verbiage here is so odd. I mean, we've talked about what was it? Buy back with Clock, Clockwork Beast. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You know, uh, it gives you gives you. I mean, it's just <laughs> we, the yeah the gives you is hilarious. <laughs> it's awesome, and also that that's the ambiguity of. The man, the activating this ability, and then what is the scope of the ability? Okay, well that's what, like you're you're, you could, you're getting to what I was yeah, just about to get. Yeah, you could make a legitimate case about many interpretations of what this ability that's, is even applying that's to. That's what I have a lot of a lot of things to say about. The first, yeah. first, first, first. The main thing to say is that this is the first of the cards that we've encountered that is a a cycle that is, I think, colloquially known as the Lucky Charms: Ivory Cup, right. Crystal Rod, Throne of Bone, Iron Star, Wooden Sphere. Um, each of those associated, they're uncommon artifacts that trigger with a particular spell of a particular color being cast, right? Um, they're all poly artifacts. So 
Lucky Charms, obviously the the cereal that has the you know the <laughs> the various uh, <laughs> items in it. So so here's the thing, what you were just getting at, the alpha text of this is ambiguous beyond repair, and when you, you can go so deep on this, I think that there are at least <laughs> at least four or five possible interpretations of how to apply this card. I don't want to spend a half hour on this card like we did with with uh, a contract, but I do want to at least surface a few of these possibilities, okay? Are you ready, Kevin? Yeah. And this one, Please. this one in particular creates the most problems, I'll just say that. Uh, okay. And you mean the, the blue, the blue one, one as opposed one to the other colors? The most, the, I'll explain okay. why in a moment. Okay. okay. So, so the first possible interpretation is that you can... Well, let's just start with this issue. So it's a trigger when a player plays a spell. But what's unclear from the text is whether you can activate it any number of times per spell. So let's say I have 20 islands in play, and I cast a counter, I cast a, uh, a creature bond, since we just did creature bond, on your creature. Can I spend 18 mana and gain 18 life, Kevin? Yeah. So th- Well, it's a poly artifact, and... Um- it appears based on the activation being just a colon. Obviously, there's no tap involved at this point. So it certainly seems like it's possible, especially the poly artifact nature of it really points exactly, to that. Exactly, exactly. Now, here's the, here's the nuance. There's a number of nuances. But the first nuance is this. Should you have to pay that? Let's say you're the one casting the spell, right? Let, it could be, let's say it's an instant. Let's take out interrupts for the moment because that's another ball of worms. Let's say it's right. a, a sorcery, enchantment, enchant creature, whatever, or creature... Just a non-interrupt spell. Do you have to activate it upon announcement of your spell, or can I say, okay, I'm going to pay, uh, I'm going to cast this spell, I'm going to activate it once, and then see what you do, and then decide to activate yeah. it more times if you play a spell? Like, let's say you play another spell in response. Do I then have another opportunity to activate it, or do I have to decide all up front? That's another ambiguity about this because the 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 word is spell cast, right? Does that uh-huh, mean as it's uh-huh. being cast, or does that mean you know around the time it's cast, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> unclear, unclear. The third ambiguity, though, is, and it's less of an ambiguity in my opinion, but the Alpha League rules people have decided to go, I think in the direction of making it more useful, even though it directly contradicts the rules, can you activate this in response to an interrupt spell? Now, obviously, the alpha rulebook says no, that you can't activate a fast effect. Um, So I assume that you can't play a counter spell and and activate this or respond to your opponent's counter spells with this. But in fact, the alpha league rules permit you to do that, which means this card is massively (laughs) powerful. In, in Alpha League, because a mono blue deck, number one, mono blue is the color that has the least life gain potential, right? I right. mean, green has, doesn't really need life gain, red's more aggressive, black, you know, has drain life, green has a stream of life, um, you know, white obviously has lots of life gain potential, uh, blue is, is being the color of control is the color that can use the life gain the most in some sense. And especially if it's a huge swing. Right? I mean, if I've got, if I've got a 10 land up and I play a psionic blast, I can gain, I can gain, you know, seven life off of it. Um, yeah. but if it's a counterspell, I can play blue, blue 
and then gain eight life off off of it. So um, I I say all that to say that there are lots of possible interpretations of this. I think the main questions are, can you respond to interrupts? I think the only reasonable answer to that is no. The second ambiguity is, can you activate it any number of times in response to a spell? I think you're right. I think the textual interpretation is yes. The, The third is, do you have to, you know, basically pay upon announcement of the spell? It's obviously different because if you're playing the spell, then basically you hold and retain priority in modern terminology when you decide to do that. But what about if your opponent's playing a spell, right? (laughs) That, (laughs) that's different. I, I got to ask you something here because it's not entirely clear to me, and maybe I'm missing something, but the alpha wording on this doesn't imply even at all that it is a triggered ability. Yeah. This is, at face value, an activated ability. Yes, you're right. Because there are triggered abilities in alpha, like Ankh of Mishra or Dingus Egg. Yes. You know? Like, Dingus Egg says, whenever anyone loses a land, blah, blah, blah. This doesn't say that. Yes. This says a blue spell cast by a player gives you a so life. So potentially so you're saying... So my interpretation of this in 1993 would have been, I have to activate it before the spell is cast. <laughs> After the spell is cast, the window has already passed. Which means that in that interpretation, you wouldn't be able to activate it when your opponent plays a spell. You would have... Well, sure you would if you did it beforehand. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> you'd have to know that they were going to play that spell. And, I mean, if I've got if I've got twenty islands in play, I'm gonna you can better believe I'm gonna pump fifteen or more of them into this on your upkeep. Not, but not <laughs> if you're holding power sync or something like that. But but yeah, well, you're right. But my point is, it's it's still a mana sync to gain life. You know. So here's what here's what the Alpha League rules specify for this card. I'm gonna read you there. Yeah. May be activated any number of to- any number of times per spell cast. Period. Mana must be spent at the time. The spell being cast at the time of the spell being cast alongside with the spell's mana cost, period. If the spell is countered, then any mana spent this way is considered expended, and no life is gained, as well as the spell was not <laughs> successfully cast, period. Can target interrupts as they are cast, period. I think you could <laughs> reasonably argue with every single one of those sentences <laughs> yeah yeah I, I completely agree which just shows you how nuanced this is we, i i highlighted three ambiguities but they just added another which is what happens if the spell is countered i think that's that's not i think it's that's, that's i think clearly, that's indefensible yeah, there's, i agree there's, there's nothing about that I, I i was surprised steve that you didn't mention another ambiguity i guess i feel like we collectively are reading way more into this card given our our modern lens than is appropriate. Explain. Number one, there's no connective tissue to this being a trigger in alpha yeah, at all. Yeah, you're right. This is just an activated ability. Any blue also, spell cast by any player gives you one life, yeah. which means you have to you have to play it before spells are cast. <laughs> right. Also, also, and I know what I'm about to say is ridiculous, but alpha is ridiculous. There's no end to this effect. I know. Other, I know. <laughs> other activated abilities in Alpha say until end of turn. I know. This is such other a legitimate activated card. abilities is... do end at the end of turn. I, yeah. I, like look at look at hold on look at by comparison. Um, just a moment. I had the card and I lost it. Look at Helm of Chetsuk. One colon. You may give one creature the ability to band with un, band until end of turn. And look at um, yes, Jade Statue. Until Jade end Statue of turn. becomes a creature no, for the duration com, of the current combat, attack. Yeah. yeah. Other activated abilities of poly artifacts have durations. 
but these do so not. So you're saying a pure, text, strict textualist approach to this is that at any point in the game, if you activate this, whenever a player plays a blue spell, you will gain a life. <laughs> yes. However, <laughs> now I want to caveat that by saying there's nothing else in the rules of alpha that suggest abilities last until the end of the game. Yeah. However, but however, then I want you to compare this to Chaos Lace, right? Which ah. is the first lace we reviewed, which in alpha says changes the color of one card either being played or already in play to red, cost to blah, 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 the other cards remain entirely unchanged. There's no reference to permanence on Chaos Lace, right? So the laces, at least, and some other cards by association, provide a, a, te- a precedent for the fact that permanent effects don't have to say they're permanent. They just don't have a, an end date sp- you know, specified. Yeah. So if you think that Chaos Lace is permanent, then that sets a precedent that Crystal Rod is permanent. Wow. You're not, you're not wrong. Um, obviously <laughs> there are competing considerations that have to be weighed yeah, in, in deciding how to make a card work. By the way, your interpretation would allow you to gain life with interrupts because you're not responding to the interrupts. You're play, you're activating. So essentially under your envisioned way this would work, which is a very, I think, logical reading, anytime you have free mana at your opponent's end step, you're going to activate this and just track how yeah. many times you've activated over the course of the game. <laughs> okay, if, okay. Yeah, if if the card I'm picturing was implemented today, it would say, put a counter on this. Anytime a blue spell is cast, gain a life for each counter on right. it, is what the card I'm proposing right. would say. Functionally. So I want to yeah. throw a little wrinkle, one wrinkle, into your analysis, and and the wrinkle is the card Soulnet. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. So Soulnet is not technically a charm, but it's 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 in practice. It's really a yeah. Charm. It's a charm. Yeah. <laughs> it says you gain one life every time a creature is destroyed, unless it is then generated, regenerated. So you would be, in my opinion, that is exactly same the same thing. as Crystal Rod. Yeah. Yeah. It's no different. There's no end date listed. There's no implication that it's a trigger, like that the ability is is a triggered ability. But that's the thing is, in the alpha context, there aren't any cards that really are triggered abilities where they ask you to do something. There really aren't. Like that. I guess maybe we can go back to the whole Mana Vault comparison, right? Because Mana Vault says, um, like, at a particular time, you can do this. Mana Vault says... You may pay, it doesn't untap during untap, pay, may, uh, to untap it, you must pay for, you know. So it's, it's, we've already talked about how it's syntactically ambiguous exactly when you can pay the mana to untap a mana vault. And that's kind of the equivalent here with a crystal rod. And so I just think that there's a lot of, we're bringing a lot of historical baggage to the table when we interpret these cards yeah. in the alpha only context. But that's the nature of the beast, right? It's really hard to disentangle ourselves from, how these cards were reinterpreted over the years. So I think this is hilarious. It is hilarious. And it's it's I think this might be the deepest subject that we can go on in terms <laughs> of alpha alpha text text because there's so many ambiguities. You know, at least five, you know, uh, uh including whether it applies to an opponent's spells or just yours and so on and so forth. But a couple of quick notes. Number one is I'm looking and it appears that all the charms except Soulnet were printed through eighth edition. Whereas Soulnet was only printed through 7th edition. So, curious that they decided to, to reprint all, all <laughs> of them in 8th except Soulnet. 
I guess so that that is interesting. That's I don't know why that would be exactly. I also have no conception of why the the Lucky Charms lasted as long as they did. Well, right? Yeah, they're such weak cards. <laughs> so, but I guess I guess they must have resonated with players more than they ever resonated with me. So here's the other thing I want to point out. Oh, by the way, and it's funny if you go into Gatherer and look at the the community ratings on this card, people are just <laughs> slamming on this card. It's got one out of five <laughs> ratings, about thirty votes. Per, per version, but here's the interesting thing. So the revised version of the card adds one line, can only give one life each time a blue spell is cast. The fourth, <laughs> the fourth is right. So it's so it doesn't actually fundamentally change your interpretation. It doesn't specify until end of turn. <laughs> right. It doesn't specify that you know when you when you can activate it. That, that it's not a trigger or that it is. They get this when you go to the. It's not until you get the fourth edition that it says right. for six. It, it clarifies it has to be successfully cast and specifies that it says use this effect either when the spell is cast or later in the turn, but only once for each blue spell cast. So, so <laughs> it, it says then this the fourth edition version is the opposite of your textual interpretation of the alpha. It's saying you can use it that, after the spell's cast. The fourth edition one is completely indefensible. But, <laughs> There's just no reading of reality or the game of magic that would allow you to use this ability later in the turn. There's just no way. <laughs> There's weird. no possible reading of the alpha version or even anyone after that 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 works that way. It's not even close. I just want to say, I want to put a pin in this. And for anyone who thinks yeah. that magic is a progression of improvements... Fourth edition is a glaring <laughs> exception, both in terms of the complexity of the rules of fourth edition and in terms of templating. And this is just well, it's possible. It's probably the worst of all the templates. Honestly, is the fourth edition. <laughs> you and can- you don't want to know what's even more indefensible, Steve? What? Is that is that the the fourth edition Soulnet doesn't have that clause. Oh my god! <laughs> That's awesome. What is the fourth what is edition soul that just is it? It just says one colon gain one life when a creature is put in the graveyard from play. Use this effect only once each time a creature is put in the graveyard. So it even it. it even specifies. It, it's so weird that given as you said already, you know they already have triggers. The concept is established. Yeah. Anka Mishra, etc. It why did it take them years to realize these were triggers? <laughs> and the fact that they weren't designed as triggers, I can understand how it could lead someone to think, well, maybe you can play this you know, after or before, right? Well, and, and the funny thing is, to your point, Steve, is that look at the 5th edition Crystal Oh, God. Rod. All oh, it God. is is the 4th edition. It's just the 4th edition one without that rider about when you can use it. <laughs> wow. It's just it's just the it's just the 4th edition Soulnet are, uh, language, basically, is what they used for 5th, and it wasn't until 6th edition when they turned it into a triggered ability. My That's God. That's so wild. That's so wild. This who who knew that such a simple thing <laughs> could, could yield such a complicated result? I, I think. And now now these cards have just been replaced by the cards that say when someone plays a blue spell, gain a life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think this is probably the the charms are probably the most complex cards in Alpha to try and interpret and make sense of. I really do. That's such a funny not, assessment, not be- but I can't disagree with you. Yeah, not because. Not because, you know, they're, it's just because of the sheer possibilities of interpretation, interpretive yeah. Yeah. possibility. It's like, you, like, when we, we talked about Birds of Paradise, you know, there are like maybe two or three 
remotely plausible interpretations where there's like I suppose dozens of possible combinations of the, for each of these. <laughs> when you when you think about when we talk about all the possible <laughs> elements, yeah. it's crazy. This is so, this is uh, magic rules as Rorschach test, right? Yeah. So let me just ask you something very simple. If you were playing Alpha Forty, or and you were a league uh, rules official or authority organizing event. How would you make? How the hell would you make these cards work? I want to know your best best version, and I'll share mine. So, my my most literal interpretation produces a pretty ridiculous result. Yeah. So, and I'm sensitive to that. There's no reason to just be as purely literal as I possibly could be. I think it's defensible from a syntactic standpoint, but yes. I, I really wouldn't function that way. I also, I think that. I mean, th- taking that approach makes Birds of Paradise just broken. So. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to. We don't want to play a uh, a version of Magic that is so far afield of what we all know and love, right. right? So I'm sensitive to that. I'm also sensitive to the notion that these cards are garbage unless you amp up their yes. power. And so I I feel there's a tension between just just crafting a new card that I don't think actually exists, <laughs> and I I want to avoid that. So I guess what I would say is, in my opinion. It's a poly artifact, and you can use it in response to uh, any blue spell as many times as you want. So I think the interpretation of you can just pump all your mana into it is probably the best. What about what? So two questions then. The uh, no, answer. Yeah. So do you have to immediately, you know, putting in the context of priority versus non-priority, and we can we can take that out for alpha. But so when you cast this, do you have to basically then I'm going to respond to my spell? By activating this X number of times, is that how you would then play it? I think that's the best outcome as a fast effect that must be. So you would, I mean, so you wouldn't be able to then just I'm say. Still, I'm still reading a lot into it though to do yeah, that. Yeah, so you, so I you really wouldn't am. allow your, your yourself to cast Sonic Blast, allow your opponent to decide whether to respond to it by like activating, say, the Prodigal Sorcerer that you're targeting. And then you respond yeah, to that see? by by activating Crystal Rod to gain life from your Sonic Blast. You would not allow yourself to do that. Because if you don't allow yourself to do that... Well, according, according to what I said, you're right. According to what I said, no. But the more you talk about it, I tell you what I want. <laughs> okay. The thing is, what I, what I want is a card that just doesn't exist and never has. What I want is this to be a poly artifact okay. that you have to activate in advance. Uh, but you can't do that. Yeah. You can't. Why not? I mean, that's how it's printed. Well... So that is literally how it's printed. Okay. So so I think that's that's fine. You can do that. But here's the thing about that. That doesn't that doesn't that doesn't uh, that doesn't radically uppower them, right? No. It really doesn't. No, I think that's reason- it's, it's just it's my perfectly literal interpretation with the caveat that we're taking an assumed until end of That turn, is not honestly. unreasonable, but that's here's all, that's it. here's what I have to say about that. It basically yeah. means that that it's almost going to be impossible to use so so uh, we can we can handle all these charms together. But um, yeah. Iron Star is a is a very powerful charm because there's a lot of red direct damage, and mm. I think part of the tactical value of Iron Star is that you can have an Iron Star out, realizing that if your opponent tries to fireball you, you can probably gain more life than they can do damage to you <laughs> from the fireball. I see your point. And totally. so, and sure. so the problem with your version is that you you. You can't get that value against red with with Iron yeah. Star. And th- 
Which is which and is what you've fu- said is true, but at the same time, the problem with that approach is that you're bringing a lot to the table about what these cards are supposed yeah. to do. No, it's true. You, yours has a certain elegance, but a, it's not quite as powerful as so. So let me tell you what my preferred version interpretation of these cards are. My preferred yeah. interpretation is very close to your well, your what you originally said. So you, so just sorry, <laughs> restate your preferred version now because you changed your mind mid midstream. Yeah, so I think my preferred version is that you have to activate them before a spell. If a spell has already been cast, so you can't activate in response and get so the So what's benefit. the text? Just give me text. The text is one colon, when a player plays a blue spell until the end of turn, you gain a life. Okay, got it. So I think my... Or until end of turn, whenever a player plays a blue spell, you there gain you a go. life. There you go. Until end of turn, whenever... Yeah. Kevin, here's what I think this card should do. And I don't know how to phrase it. Maybe you could help me create text for this. Number one... I think that the the fact that it's a poly artifact suggests that you should be able to activate it X number of times. Um, yes. And so I think that's clear and gain whatever you know amount of life you're willing to to pay into this. Number one. Number two, I am of the view that you should not, given the fact that it is an activated ability on the card text, I do I, therefore a fast effect. I do not think interrupt should trigger this. And number three. Um, I think that you should be able to play this in response to an opponent's spells. So is do you have a suggested text that can synthesize all three of those preferences? The the part about that you said about interrupts not triggering this, it is really throwing me for a loop. <laughs> I didn't consider the fact that your opponents what you said we've been talking about counter spells this whole time, Steve. And now you're no. telling me that your opponent's counterspell shouldn't give no, you a life. No, all the examples I gave, I studiously avoided counter counterspells. Well, except you, you mentioned the power sink in the one example I've no. so, okay, no, I got. No, so I did. I thought you were. I said, t- power, you said I had a I had power sink. blast. Is what I said. Okay, fine. Yeah, the I came away with the impression that my counterspells would be able to give me life from my crystal rod. I came yeah. away with that impression. Now I understand that you don't mean it that yeah. way, but. I also don't understand why you feel that way. Well, it has to do Just with because it has to do with trying to make the actual text work without making reading the text too literally, trying to trying to make sure that the <laughs> functional elements of the text remain without reading it so literally that it it like right that it sh- you shouldn't be able to pay something in my opinion um too much after the fact. I'm fine responding after the fact, but I'm not I'm not fine with it being turns later <laughs> right that you can gain so gain life the 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 precedent for fast effects coming after interrupts is codified in the rules of yes. alpha that much we've covered it already yes. so that much is defensible in my opinion however so use for example the prodigal sorcerer example when when you've got an interrupt on the stack no or you've played i said the example sorry. i had was psionic blast targeting the prodigal sorcerer yeah, but I want to talk about activated abilities. Yeah, that that's what is, yeah, I'm talking about. Fine. I'm talking about interrupts. Oh. Interrupts interacting with activated abilities okay. is what I'm talking about. You have a counter spell on the stack and you have a and, and I have a prodigal sorcerer. I have to wait for your counter spell to finish resolving before I can use my yes, prodigal exactly. sorcery, right? And so you want this crystal rod to function in a similar fashion. Yes. If you've got a counter spell on the stack and I have a crystal rod, I have to wait for your counter spell to have resolved. And then activate this crystal rod? Is that what the, the effect you want? Yes, and I don't think you should be able to gain life from a counterspell. That's what I'm saying. I, I What I'm trying to do is okay. keep interrupts faster than everything else. Yeah. I 
the language to do that is going to be and to try to put that functionality in modern language is going to be exceedingly difficult. Okay. Because it can't it can't trigger. be a trigger because yeah. because there's no such thing as triggers interacting with interrupts yes. in this context. And it would have to look back in time to say if so, if a player has played a blue spell this turn, it would have to look back in time. That's and the functionality the, you'd want and that sounds like a terrible overreach yeah, in, the, in the way I'm this card to is working. Either. I'm trying to I'm trying to 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 allow it to respond within a very narrow window. I don't I don't want people to do it, you know, after this deck is resolved, so to speak, except of interrupts. Well that's the th- It would have to though. Well I mean like so if I play if I play Psionic Blast and you respond with counterspell. Yes. What do you want to be able to happen vis a vis Crystal Rod? Yeah. So so here's the that's the thing is the counterspell would counter Okay, so who controls the crystal rod in this example? Doesn't matter. Okay, it does matter because it's the same if, for both players. If you control the, let's say it's mine. Okay, then. If you control the crystal rod, I want mm-hmm. I want us to design the text such that you can cast crystal rod. Uh, sorry, cast ionic blast and say I'm you know and say basically I'm going to retain priority and activate crystal rod in response. So there is a you, fast you, effect in response to my ionic blast. What you said there is loaded though because in alpha context there's no such thing as retaining I know, priority. I know. There's and also you said fast effect, but interrupts come before fast effects. There's no way to accomplish what you're talking about in, with interrupts True. involved. You're right. You have to you have to, you have to enable it to look back in yeah. time. You have yeah. to give or make it an interrupt or let people this do it. Just shows advance, how complicated this is. is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but I'm confident in what I'm saying there is that those are your options. You have to make it an interrupt, or which you don't want to do, or you have to make it in look time. back in time. Which is terrible, in my opinion. <laughs> or you have to make them happen in advance, which is why my reading, yeah. I think, is superior in that so, sense. So there's three options. The, the whenever, for making it a trigger by having it open with whenever, it makes yeah. it the simplest and easiest to understand. But then... It, it really and, does. And then you could yeah. just say, whenever a player plays a blue spell, you may pay X. If you do, you may gain X life. That's pretty simple. Um, it's very simple. At, but, yeah. but I do think, I do really want to stress... At least in my vision, the superiority in terms of timing of interrupts, and I really feel like it it violates some integrity of this card to allow allow this to be able to to gain life from interrupts. So I I think I think it's very awkward, but I think my preferred outcome, while awkward, is to try and figure out some sort of backward looking like window <laughs> for this that you know interrupts yeah. accepted interrupts accepted. Maybe in order to accomplish that though. I have to allow you to be able to play this after the fact, as the fourth edition, the fourth edition version suggests. Well, and see, as soon as you get that that far down the road, I think the looking back in time part, it was a mistake to add that in the fourth edition rules. And I think that your reading of the alpha version is being colored by that. Yeah. I, I wish I could delete the fourth edition one from this context because I think it's straight up wrong and indefensible. <laughs> you, you've said and that I think about it's a lot of things. You've said of this that card. about most of the lines in the the Alpha League clarification it, too. It's true. <laughs> it's true. These these cards are functionally broken, so there's that is accepted. But I really do think the proper and better wording is that you have to activate these in advance. I yeah. just think there's no two ways about it. It's a poly artifact. There's no reference to a trigger in Alpha, whereas there are other triggers in Alpha, right? So, and it's just a simple ruling. It's a really simple ruling of the alpha text, and I can't believe more people so, haven't so adopted it. So we're, we're led to basically three three positions. Position one is yeah. y- you have to activate in advance, which is which actually retains this, these cards as fairly high powered, because if if oh, you yeah, know that you're gonna, it's actually better than the than your version. Yeah. Well, if if you know that you're gonna play, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not. It's not I'm sorry. It's not better than your version. No. It's better. Um, 
because it triggers off of uh, interrupt. Yes, it's better in that way. Yeah, but yeah. but what it means is that if you're planning to play a big spell, you know, a spell that you want to gain a bunch of life on, you can you still can plan that. It still works that way, right? So it just means that you aren't going to be able to reliably gain life out of your opponent's spells unless they're like a mon- That's you know, right. It's- you're, you're a mono blue mirror. Right, and you and you just and you don't it's, have any counter spells, yeah. and you don't you're not worried about getting power synced. You can just every of, of time your opponent's upkeep, I'm just gonna you know <laughs> sink sink a bunch of mana into this. <laughs> you could, well, there's no denying that it is much worse, especially in the that in fighting mono red in the way you said yes. earlier. That my version, but I again I feel it's like that defensive. is simply so so yeah. I, but I also think that the notion that these are that good against mono red is you bringing a lot of baggage, historical baggage to the table. No, I I. In my opinion, these cards were only meant to give you one life per spell, too. That's my opinion. I would have to but go. Look, not the way I would written, have to go look so. at the playtest cards to, to know that for sure. But or or, or yeah. ask Richard Garfield. I I don't think that's clear at all. Okay, but let's. I think let's just get back to the three the three main reasonable possibilities. <laughs> possibility one okay. is your possibility that you have to play these in advance, activate them in advance. Possibility yep. two, which is probably the I think the most reasonable overall, is is. Is it's making this a trigger whenever pay X gain X. The third possibility is is a possibility that you can just um it's it, you can you can pay into it after spells have been played and gain life. Um, I, I don't know if there's a way a, a fourth way to achieve my desired three objectives and and make this actually. A non ridiculously silly template. I mean, maybe there is, but <laughs> but we yeah. haven't been able on the fly to come up with it. So um, I don't really have a favorite among those three. I think maybe the second one, just making it a trigger. Then I'm still unhappy about the fact that it it triggers with interrupts. <laughs> uh, but I think I slightly like that better than your formulation. Okay, fair enough. I don't feel as strongly about the interrupt thing because I don't feel like that's codified in yeah. the alpha text really but uh, but i take your meaning yeah we we really ought to get off of crystal charm no crystal i was done Rod. i was done <laughs> all right let's move on and talk about cursed land cursed land is 2bb enchant land cursed land does one damage to target lands controller during each upkeep uh <laughs> obviously there's something about the which upkeep we're talking yes. about here that has been converted basically and i don't mean updated i really just mean changed from yeah. between alpha and, and later printings at what point was it changed steve it looks like um it was carries this wording all the way through unlimited and then during revised you get during his or her upkeep yeah yeah so at some point they realized wait a second this is not functioning the way we thought um in in Alpha League, they say does one damage during each player's upkeep. So this is um a one sided copper tablet. Well, <laughs> also with copper tablet, they says does they say does damage to both players during each player's upkeep. That's Wait, the league interpretation. Both players? Yeah, that's what it says. <laughs> Wait, how in the world did they I arrive have at no that? No idea. <laughs> that's that's completely indefensible. Well, I'm sure they would have a defense. Okay. It might not be a good defense, but. It might- <laughs> Well, I don't know. Even in the alpha context, target lands controller is um, unambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> but all right, fair enough. Well, that's weird. Is this so? Does that make this card better? I mean, it's obviously it makes it better. Does it make it playable? I think it is in alpha card. I, I 40? think it is. I think it's it is playable yeah. because it, it. I mean, it's two dam. It's it's two damage right every turn cycle. So yeah, 
Yeah, it's way stronger than um, than copper tablet, but it's also twice as much. Well, yeah. well, I mean, it it depends on which version, which interpretation of copper tablet. I think the more appropriate, <laughs> I think the more appropriate point of comparison would be something like, uh, let me think, warp artifact does. Oh, trying yeah. to think. No, it, not warp artifact. Something like um, power leak. No, no. Sorry, I can't think of the cards right now, but I think there are other enchantments that inflict damage that are not Psychic Venom, that have an upkeep trigger. Well, well, Warp Artifact is right. Okay. You were right on the first one. Yeah. And so Warp Artifact says, Warp Artifact does one damage to target artifacts controller at start of each turn, which is... <laughs> That's so weird. Inexplicable. It's <laughs> so weird. It's just inexplicable, <laughs> but it has exactly the same issue, though, right? Yeah. It's, it's each turn. And so is the 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 league ruling the same yes. for Warp Artifact? Yes, does one damage during each be. player's upkeep. Yes. But is it to both players? You know what? They don't say. It just says does one damage during each each player's upkeep. So not to both players because it's it's the Warp Artifact uh only yeah. does damage to the controller of the enchanted. Well, Cursed Land says the same, but you said it damaged both players. No, no, no. I said that um sorry, I I think I confused you. Copper Tablet Oh, sorry about that. You were that. reading Copper Tablet when you yeah, said that. Yeah, I was jumping. So oh. yeah, sorry. Uh, Cursed Land I, says the, the the league clarification on Cursed Land is does one damage during each player's upkeep. Same with Warp Tablet, uh, Warp Artifact. Warp Copper Artifact, Tablet yeah. says okay. does damage to both players during each player's upkeep. Yeah. Okay. That makes that makes a little more sense. Okay. So anything else on Cursed Land? This one. The art is interesting it's in this so one cool. because it's a little boring, but for some reason, well, it's oddly um, photo yeah, real, which is interesting. It almost feels as if this was like a sculpture that was photographed. <laughs> That's a really good point. I get that same sensation. Yeah. I l- That's so cool. I love it. Yeah. If I, didn't, if I didn't know the artist better, I would say maybe there's a chance of that, but I don't think Jesper has ever done that kind of thing, that kind of mixed media yeah. work. Okay, next one is one that I feel like we're going to have fun with, even though maybe not as much as a crystal rod. <laughs> this is Cyclopean Tomb. Uh, it's a mono artifact, and it costs... Question mark? Uh, and it has, it has the text, uh, two colon, turn any one non-swamp land into swamp during upkeep. Mark the changed lands with tokens. If Cyclopean Tomb is destroyed, remove one token <laughs> of your choice, each upkeep, returning that land to its original this nature. Card is so screwed up <laughs> on so many levels. <laughs> okay, so I just want to get one thing out of the way right off the bat, and that is the alpha version of this card was printed without a mana cost. It costs, it costs for generic mana. But in alpha, there's no mana cost. So that's why I said question mark. It's because <laughs> if you mark? just held the alpha version of this card, it would be completely up to your interpretation uh, as to I how would, much mana honestly, you need to play to get it, it into play. Honestly, as a strict textualist, I would assume it costs zero. Uh, no mana cost, the closest, the most, only, <laughs> obviously, no mana is not the same thing as zero, but um, the it's yeah. the absence of mana is also, in, in math, sometimes considered similar to the concept of zero. So I would I would just assume it costs zero. Which I'm fine with, by the yeah, way. I, I, it's a card still balanced yeah, zero. Exactly. Um, but uh, I think that is one potential reading. Obviously, I'm bringing a lot to the table in terms of my uh, what we know of the game today, where there are cards printed with no mana cost. But yeah, I think that's fair. Or you just can't um, cast it would be the other textual interpretation. The, uh, yeah, there's another interpretation, but but there's nothing in the alpha rules that codify uncastable, right? Yeah. 
there's just no way there's just no way to glean that from the rules. This, this really. is a card that is like but, bridge from below. You just can't play it. You have to you have to right, cheat it into right. play somehow. <laughs> so, Steve, I imagine you've done some work on this card on interpreting actually, it. I so have, I don't I even actually, I don't even know where to I have begin. Actually, not. Um, really? I, I oh, jeez. Okay, so let's let's just talk about a couple things. It's a mono artifact, which means tapping is implied. Yes. So the ability should be you put two mana generic, you tap it. It says turn any one non-swamp land into swamp, which that part makes some sense, yes. even though there's a word missing. Uh, but then it says during upkeep. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> so, so there's a whole bunch of readings just of that first sentence, right? Yes. Vis-a-vis, is it, that, a, is that a limitation on when you can activate yeah, this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, is that does that or, indicate when the effect happens? Exactly. Does that if, indicate when the yeah. effect occurs? Does that indi- indicate when you can activate it, or does it? So, disrupting scepter on alpha does not specify <laughs> that you can only do it during so- its sorcery speed, right in the main phase, which is a big deal. Yeah, which yeah. is a big deal. Um, but but so but there is a kind of sense that that was, I think maybe among some people that was the intention, although I don't know where that came from. Um, yeah. So, is there any other artifact in Alpha that can be only activated during a certain phase of the turn that you're aware of, or any um, card next? Wow, in Alpha. Well, uh, disrupting Scepter, as you just said, is one example. There's all these combat tricks that you can there only you play Jade St- um, Jade's, during combat. Jade statue, yeah, Jade Statue, right? So, and there's a couple of other things that happen during upkeep, like for example, Rock Hydra. Well, disrupting scepter right? doesn't say you can. Only, it says you can only use it during your turn. Um, yeah. Right. And there's a so there's cards like Clockwork Beast and Rock Hydra that that depict when you and, can grow the heads and, back. And this brings right? back the whole discussion over over Time Vault. But let's let's avoid that. So right, right. so I think also by the way it says one non land swamp land swamp land not target. Just, not target, yeah. yeah. Um, Which I, I don't know if that, that's a difference, obviously. But it is a does it a difference that makes is it a uh, uh, the distinction without unclear, a difference? Unclear. Yeah. Um. So what about the only other card that's similar to this and changing land types is Gaia's Liege, and Gaia's Liege just says tap to turn any one land, so same same syntax into a forest until Gaia's Liege Liege leaves play. Mark lands with counter counters. So the difference here is... Does it, wait, does Gaia's Leash say counters or tokens? It says counters. Oh, God. Yeah, Gaia's <laughs> Leash says counters. <laughs> Jesus. You know how we said earlier that the Hive was the only card yeah. in Alpha that made we tokens? That, that's <laughs> wrong. Cyclopean... T- well, and it's relevant, too, because read reread Cyclopean Terms' a middle sentence with that in mind. It says... Remove one token. If Cyclopean Tomb is destroyed, remove one token of your choice each upkeep, yeah. which suggests that you could remove the wasps. Yeah. <laughs> God. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, they geez. really didn't. They just didn't says, have things figured re- out in Alpha. They didn't know what they wanted. Returning that land. They didn't know what. The, returning that land to its original nature. Yeah, it's, what a great, great finisher for a for an incredibly strange card. Um, so, <laughs> so I think, I think that the that the effect of this card should basically be, uh, you can activate this in an upkeep. Um, if you do, it's to tap, turn a land other than a swamp into a swamp. Now, I assume that this, because it says non-swamp, that means 
you know, you can only activate this on dual lands that aren't bad lands by you and so on and so forth because they yeah. count as swamps. That doesn't mean they are swamps, but I assume, right? I assume that they, oh, jeez. There's, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I, I'm losing energy to even argue with these things at this point, but <laughs> there's all kinds, there's all kinds of power level errata on this card, right? <laughs> For one, the, um, Alpha has established and codified that abilities that target lands can tar- that use the word target. The fact that this doesn't use the word target to me suggests that you don't choose the land until the resolution of the ability, which is one reading. Wow, also, yeah. yeah, that's true. Also, you read it. You read it in a way that I think is more logical, which is said during an upkeep. But the the current oracle oracle wording says your upkeep, wow. which is indefensible that's in my opinion. Rata, yeah, uh, yeah, and. Then the whole notion of what tokens are being referenced here is obviously they they just had to clean that up a whole bunch because because tokens aren't used they've been replaced counters. by counters right so they made it a Meyer counter <laughs> yeah and obviously the last sentence says that remove one token of your choice each upkeep returning that land to its original nature obviously there's only a comma between those which means it's pretty strong indication that they're connected. Um, and it's pretty strong indication that you're removing a token that was created by Cyclopean right, Tomb, not right? Not any token. There's a lot of yeah. there. There's a lot of evidence that supports that. But it, it's really funny that if you were to just take, <laughs> imagine Steve, picture this card, but you've taken off the activated ability and the first two sentences of it, and you just had an artifact that said, "If Cyclopean Tomb is destroyed, remove one token of your choice each upkeep." <laughs> God, <laughs> right? Yeah, that is a printable card, actually. Yeah, <laughs> and it would actually function but, in modern magic, which, upkeep, which is hilarious. Each of your upkeeps or each upkeep period, because the the um, I agree has the same problem as the original yeah. reference to the upkeep, which in the current Oracle text says at the beginning of each of your upkeeps. Yeah. Now so they've so interpreted both usages of upkeep to be yours. It's slower in that respect in terms of it's it's depowered on the front end, but it's more powered on the back end. In a sense, that's a really good point. So here's the thing I want I want to make about that that power down on the front end. That's actually a significant power down because it means that you cannot actually activate this until you've had it in play for a full turn cycle. It really is. It's a big power down. You're yeah. right. Optimally, you should yeah. be able to use this in your opponent's first you know upkeep after you cast this. So, but you can't. Yep. Um, I don't think we need to say much more about this. Uh, I this card I've never really seen it play in competitive Magic. I don't I haven't seen it in old school. I still haven't seen it in Alpha. I, I look forward to seeing it. I, I think there probably is a space for this. I think in terms of the the, the transforming spells, I think Gaia's Liege is probably better. Um, uh, Cyclopean Tomb is is I mean obviously it can it can do some serious damage by screwing up your opponent's mana base over time. Assuming they are, especially if they're not yeah. playing black, then you're in great shape. If they're playing black, then it's significantly less powerful. Um, have you ever seen people play with I'm, this, Kevin? The only time I've seen this, and it's only like third hand that I've heard about this, is it's it's a funny role player in some EDH decks where Swamp Walk is relevant. Ah. There are some you can construct some decks where handing out swamps is a fun thing to do. There's more than one way to do that, even inside of Alpha, right? There's three ways to do it just in Alpha. And so it's not, even then, it's not a great card. It's just a fun well, card. Regardless right? of, if you ever see this in an, an event, whether it's old school or whatever, just be sure to double check the Oracle because this card is very, <laughs> very far from the Oracle text. And I'm not even just talking about the Alpha <laughs> version, right? I'm talking about right. <laughs> all printed versions. So, <laughs> so Steve, you've seen Cormus Bell Karma decks in old school, right? Uh, not not have personally. You? I mean, I may have seen an image oh. of them. 
you know, uh, Living Lands, okay. I think I've, I've seen more than Korma's Bell. Maybe I'm, con- okay. maybe I'm confusing that with Living Plain, which you played. Uh, Living Plain is the one I played, but Karma Spell is the one yeah. that just makes everything a swamp. Well, no, Karma Spell and Living Lands are. Oh no, no, no. Karma Spell makes everything a creature, no, doesn't no. it? No, Karma Spell makes all swamps one-one creatures, just like Living Lands makes all forests one-one creatures. They're oh, identical. Oh, I'm sorry, I was, I, I was mixing things up. You're right. So I guess what I was getting at is this is a combo just within within Alpha with Karma as yes. well as with Swamp Walkers, yes. Wraith, and Zombie Masters. Yes. Uh, so. I feel like there's probably some people out there who have Cyclopean Tomb type decks that have some of these interactions. Yeah, they're playing a the zombie combination, deck. The net effect is pretty weak, of course, but it's a funny thing to do. Yep. Cool art, too. I mean, the art is actually awesome. The art is actually awesome. It's legitimately cool. It's it's a really, really evocative representation of an eye that's been mummified, and oh, it's just so cool. Let's talk about Dark Pact. We alluded to this one earlier. It is straight-up theft. <laughs> BBB BBB for a sorcery <laughs> without looking at it first swap top card of your library with either card of the ante this swap is permanent you must have a card in your library to cast this spell remove this card from your deck before playing if you're not playing for ante <laughs> hey Kevin is that last line which is on all the ante cards is that um Strategic advice, in your opinion. Because <laughs> it doesn't actually say uh, you you cannot play with this card. It's just saying... <laughs> Remove it from your deck. Yeah. <laughs> that, it's, funny. Um, it's funny you should say that. That does bring up some implications about deck construction, right? Are you allowed to sit down with a deck filled with dark packs? And then at the start of the game, oh, I gotta remove all these dark packs. <laughs> exactly. How do you actually do that? Yeah, it's that's <laughs> at funny. the start. Obviously, that playing. was before, what does before tournament play. Mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So there's so much I want to say about this card. It, it, it won't take much time, but I think there are a number of comments to make. One is that the art is super cool. It might be one of the worst cards with great art. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> in, in the that's set. totally true. It's it's cool art. I love it. You, you know, one of the things that you just notice is I don't know. This combination of colors, I don't feel like there's a ton of it in Alpha. You know, there's a, there's a, which is kind of like black and purple. Yeah, that's a good point. There's not a lot of purple in Alpha full stop. I mean, like Dark Ritual and and Death Ward have a little bit of purple in them, but, but this is a kind of very vivid purple. And beyond that, there's just not a lot of purple. There's purple backgrounds, but not unlike garments or objects, you know? Gauntlet of Um, Light is a big purple gauntlet. (laughs) um so the the main thing i just wanted to to focus on is is this if you were playing in fake ante is this any darn good um in my opinion yeah so so the so the weird thing about it is you can't actually look to see what you're replacing your ante with so the only time you would actually ever want to play this is if like the ante is awesome and you want to you want to draw that anti card, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And you're exchanging it with the top of your deck, so there's some relevant deck manipulation to be had, right? Yes. So it is a, a a sort of a sort of cantrip deck manipulation card in practice, you know, in effect. And there are some cases you, you and I alluded to it before. The economic factors of the game and anti mean that there are some cases where this is a, a win-win situation, right? If you've anti'd your lotus then Lotus is more valuable than every card in your deck, right? So you can't but win by trading up for your Lotus and putting it on top of your deck. 
Same goes for your opponent's Lotus, right? Yeah. And there's not a lot of ways to do it in Alpha, but cards like Natural Selection would allow you to yep. know what you're doing beforehand. Right. And once you get to Arabian Nights, then there are many more ways to look. Right. So, so I just want to be clear. Jeweled Bird is also a swamp, a swap, rather, <laughs> yes. with your, with your ante. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is what do you think is the rationale behind this? Do you think it was that they wanted to give you a way to get your ante back, and that that's what this was? Because this is the only card that really does that in a meaningful way, right? I mean, <sighs> jeweled bird. What happens? So when your ante goes to the graveyard with jeweled bird, your original ante, yes. right? Whereas yes. this this is really the only way to get your ante back, if I'm not mistaken. I would be speculating an awful lot. But the way this feels is that Ante was intended to be another axis of play. And and it was intended to be part of the metagame, but this card brings it right into the game, right? Yes. In a way that Contract from Below does also, in the sense that you're increasing the risk to yourself to increase your power. This is more like, I might lose this game, but I can manipulate in a downward ah. trend how bad this is right ah so it you th- so there's two this is kind of like the inverse of contract in that sense yeah to me to me the ante is an incidental byproduct or cost to contract whereas this card seems to be designed to say you know you've got this card that's basically become out it's basically exiled from from the game and we mm-hmm. want to give you a way to get it back but I think I think your read, which is equally plausible if not more so, is you're going down. We want to make this less costly for you. So I'm <laughs> gonna, you know, we're gonna we're well, gonna get your good your good ante back, and you can give up something much less valuable. Which which think about it for a moment. In either, so in the in the latter case, this card is basically a card that assumes you're losing and tries to mitigate the 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 cost of your loss, <laughs> right? In the, in I, I don't the, entirely agree. I think that's one outcome, but it's not the only one. So it could be both. Well, because you can use this proactively to steal your opponent's Lotus, right? At that point, it doesn't matter who's winning oh, that game. Oh, because it says either card of the anti. Yes, right. right. Yeah. That's the theft part of this card. Yeah. Is this, <laughs> Sorry, this, that's I, the, I and that's the serious problem, that right? Yeah. If this functioned just like a jeweled bird, only like a jeweled bird, kind of, then it would have a different meaning. So it would have yeah. only the former meaning. So this, but this allows <laughs> you to say, I don't care if I win this game anymore. I've got right. Lotus. <laughs> right, because the, it goes directly into your library. It's so obnoxious. <laughs> it's so obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. And so there is. It, it's 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 like sleight of hand, except for slide, instead of sleight of hand, you're you're looking at both the anti cards, which you already see, you know. Yes. And you get the one you want. Which yeah. also could, I mean, in that case, it's actually re- not insane to have more than one Dark Pact in your deck. Because if you're playing a duel, there's two anti-cards to choose That's from. That's true. That's yeah. true. And in fact, also, as you continue to swap, they could you could continue to try and get those cards back. So It also plays a funny interaction with Demonic Attorney. Because if I resolve Dark Pact, take your Lotus and put my other card on top, and then pass the turn to you, and you okay. play Demonic Attorney, you know that your Lotus is on top of my deck. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so I was going to ask a slight indulgence of you, Kevin, and okay. since you brought it up, since we've been talking about all the anti together, let's just let's just review Demonic Attorney right now. Skip okay. just a little ahead and do it with it, with Dark Pact, and finish our discussion of both of those together. 
Okay. So Demonic Attorney says, it's it's 1BB, sorcery. If opponent doesn't concede the game immediately, each player must ante an additional card from the top of their deck. Remove this card from your deck if you're not before the game if you're not playing for ante. So this card has... It, ostensibly, there's some randomness to it, right? As I've alluded to before, you don't know the top of your deck very much in alpha. Just full stop. There's very little way to do that yeah. in alpha. However, Dark Pact, as we just discussed, it happens to be one of those ways. And so this is just increasing the, the, the risk to both players. The way I see it, there's basically three sides to the same effect going on here. They're implemented in slightly different ways, but there's Contract from Below, which just straight up increases your risk while giving you an effect. Huge, powerful effect. Huge, huge effect. advantage, yeah. Yeah. There's Dark Pact, which I think in most applications is reducing your risk. Well, let's be clear on risk. It doesn't have to. It reduce. I I don't think that. Let's be. Risk does not refer to cost, right? Risk, risk, cost. It you know. Risk about what's in the end. Yeah. I okay. And and the risk of losing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was speaking economically. (laughs) (laughs) And so Dark Pack has a little more play to it than I'm. I'm oversimplifying, but it's ostensibly about adjusting what's. And you you have a little bit of. hidden information involved so it's not a sure thing but it adjusts the risk in your favor yes and then demonic attorney is just about increasing both players risks and that is so that is bringing more into into question the notion of do you think you're going to win this game or do i think i'm going to win this game right Right? because if i want us both to annie some more that suggests i think i'm going to win so so here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. <laughs> I think, I think, as between Dark Pact and Demonic Attorney, I think Dark Pact is the better card. I'd like to get your thoughts on this too. So, so Dark Pact means that you can basically get, you know, the best of the two cards that are out. Which, in my experience playing with a lot of fake anti, there's usually one decent card at least out on the end. <laughs> like, the chances of them both being basic lands is not super high, you know. I mean, it's not low, but yeah. it's usually there's a spell and then a, a land, or maybe a spell and a common or something, you know. Yeah. Um. So I think I think especially in Alpha Forty, where it's like you know people don't have too many basic lands, they're usually really good cards. I think Dark Pact, assuming it's you know still fake, anti. I think there's an operational que- operational question here, which is that can an opponent concede faster than this spell can resolve? <laughs> Which, in all in all realistic versions of Magic today, the answer is yes. There's yeah. basically no context in which you'd be playing Magic today where that wasn't allowed. But I think, I think though the the intent of the card. So so maybe I mean, if if the if the real purpose of this card is to be able to optimize your situational tactical options, then your opponent shouldn't be able. I guess they if they scoop, then they're losing the game anyway. So that should be fine. So they would be losing no, they're, they're the. They would be losing the their an- ante. What? Yeah, they're forfeiting their ante. Yeah, forfeiting the ante anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if you're playing for real ante. Um, I think so. To answer your question though, whether or not Dark Pact or Demonic Attorney is better has a lot to do with your win percentage, both in the game in question and in the meta game that you're playing in in general. If you have a super high win percentage in your meta game, the Demonic Attorney is actually a better card, right? Well, because so, you want to you want to increase risk for your opponent as much as possible. Well, that's what I wanted to get at. So, just assume yeah. three scenarios for a moment. One is that you're playing a match in which you're hugely advantaged. One is a match in which you're significantly disadvantaged, and another match is where it's basically even. It, yeah. When you cast Dark Pact, 
Um, assuming you, let's assume you draw one of these cards. Which card would you rather have in each of those scenarios? In the case of, in the case in which you are significantly behind, I think you want Dark Pact. Yeah. Because you want Dark Pact in two out of the three scenarios. I'm sorry. You want Dark Pact in two out of the three. Yeah. In the one in which it's even or you're behind, you want Dark Pact because it gives you a lot of ta- tactical flexibility. If you're far ahead, then Demonic Attorney just induces a concession, in which case I'm not really sure it matters either because it's it's weird. It's a card that doesn't help you actually, in a sense, win games <laughs> because you're already going to win anyway. So it its value is low, I think. Does there I not go... I feel like you've set up a tautology there. If you're already going to win, then you're going to win. Exactly. Games of Magic aren't really like that in practice. Yeah, if your opponent's dead on board, like if you have their life total in power in play, in pre-combat you play Demonic Attorney, well, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? So the idea, that situation is not very interesting because they're going to scoop in response to a Dark Pact also, right? So in those kind of situations, those two spells have the same effect on the game. No, But But as soon as you get past the obvious, then they start to to diverge. I think what I'm saying is Demonic Attorney is a pro forma effect in the third scenario. It, it takes the 80% advantage to 100%. Oh, I which, see your point. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's subject to interpretation, subject to your opponent's skill and reading of the situation, and subject to hidden information, too. Right. For sure. It's subject to all those caveats. But I'm yeah. saying in general, what I find very problematic and I think actually contradictory about Demonic Attorney is that it really doesn't help you win the game. Of course <laughs> it does, not. It does basically not. What'd you say? Of course not. Yeah, it does that, basically I mean, by nothing. By definition, it doesn't. Except for, I guess, the psychological impact, right? Yeah. You can make the case that if my opponent is willing to spend three mana and a card to increase <laughs> both of our risks somewhat you, you, uh, equally, then there is an implication that they be, feel their position is so strong that they're going to benefit from it. There is, so there's a sorry. psychological effect. There is one small way in which it actually can advantage you, which is you if you deck know, your opponent. <laughs> yeah, you deck your opponent or you know your opponent's top card is amazing. Then, you know, like you have a field of dreams in play or something, I suppose. Or they game. resolve dark pack on their last turn. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> is that the, is that the only card in alpha dark pack that you can actually know what the top of your opponent's library is? That's a really interesting question and I don't know the answer offhand. I'm inclined to say yes. I think it is. That's natural really selection. Can you play natural selection on your opponent's library? I would be surprised. I would be surprised if it referenced the player at all. Let's check. It probably just says your, or or even something more ambiguous than even that. Yeah, natural selection says, look at top three cards of, oh, it says any, any player's library. <laughs> I didn't know that. You may opt. <laughs> you may opt to rearrange those. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> So in the middle of resolving this, I get to opt. Yeah. <laughs> I had I had no recollection of the fact that natural selection was targeted. That's fantastic. I love it. So so um, so that means natural selection plus dark pact is a as yeah. a mondo combo. Well, I think all this reinforces my initial point that I I actually think demonic attorney is a self defeating card. It's terrible because if you're in a winning if you're if if you have a strong deck, it dilutes your deck by making your deck actively worse. If you have if if you have an overwhelming advantage in a particular matchup, all it does is make that that high probability a certainty. And and so I think it actually yes, there's an outside chance that if you have a really bad opponent who doesn't read the situation, 
they'll add an additional card, and therefore you can actually get that additional card from them. But mm-hmm. I think I think dark. If you're going to run one of these cards, I think Dark Pact is just much more interesting. I actually I would love to play with Dark Pact in a fake anti alpha environment. I think it would be really fun to do that. And so hopefully maybe there's a singleton format out there that does fake anti. Um, I don't know if contract is is fair for that format. It sounds absurdly broken. But I think Dark Pack is, it sounds actually, the more that we've analyzed this, I've never actually played with either one of these cards, although I own, yeah. I own Alpha Dark Pack. Um, <laughs> it, it sounds like really fun to be able to, uh, to swap the antis. And of course, at the end of the game, you'll give, give the cards back. But I, I, yes, so I guess there's two cards that allow you to, to know, you know, what the top of your library Steve, is. Yeah. It turns out there's actually one other way, and it's Library of Lang. <laughs> of course. It takes a little bit of shenanigans because you'd have to know what was in their hand already, right? Yeah. So maybe you, you unsummon their Mahamadi Jin and then make them discard it and they put it on top. Then you would know at the top of their, their deck. If was. they only if they didn't have any cards in hand, yeah. And there yeah. Was that. Or if you somehow otherwise knew what they all were. That's great. That is great. So even in <laughs> Alpha, there's a little bit of library manipulation. That's just, just one of the bit. beautiful features of this set is that Depending on what you want to do, there's so many individual interacting pieces that you can accomplish a lot of diverse things. It's awesome. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have a really important historical card, both from the beginning and today, and that's Dark Ritual. For a single black mana, it is an interrupt that reads, add three black mana to your mana pool. Now, Steve, there are not too many cards in Alpha that can legitimately say that they have, for the for most of their duration, at least in the vintage context, been a pillar of the format, right? <laughs> Where whole archetypes are based around them, and in differing ways as the years go by, right? And Dark Ritual, just after Ancestral Recall, is undoubtedly one of the most formative of the boons, and continues to be impactful and really make its presence known in basically every format that it's legal in. And I know you have a little bit more day-to-day influence from Dark Ritual than I do, vis-a-vis old school. So <laughs> so tell me what you think about Dark Ritual up front. What's your first impression when you think back on this card? Well, Kevin, I used to have a saying was more glib than an actual you know, rule I live by. But I used to have a <laughs> saying that I only play formats where Dark Ritual is legal. <laughs> I remember you saying that. <laughs> and and at, at one point, that was just simply to make the point that I exclusively played Legacy and Vintage, and then later, uh, of course, old school formats became a thing and right. extended to those formats. And it's not actually far from the truth that Dark Ritual, I think formats that feature Dark Ritual are formats that I generally enjoy. And whether you can attribute that fact to Dark Ritual itself or to some other <laughs> right. feature that's associated with Dark, <laughs> Dark Ritual, I, I can't in, uh, disentangle for you. <laughs> Dark Ritual certainly it, isn't hurting the case, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it happens to be true. No, so Dark Ritual is a phenomenally interesting card, an incredibly powerful card. The first thing that comes to mind with Dark Ritual is the interaction between Dark Ritual and Necropotence, which, you know, for basically 1995 until it was restricted in 2000, was one of the dominant and format-defining cards in Type 1. That That Necropotence, Necropotence was so powerful that it basically shaped the metagame of any format in which it was legal. Mm-hmm. And its history is fascinating because for the first few years of its existence, mostly what Dark Ritual, what 
Necropotence did was it fueled <laughs> it fueled weenie strategies and then became a combo enabler, at which point wizards took it out to the woodshed and killed <laughs> it across formats, extended, type 1, etc. So Dark Ritual Necropotence is a incredibly powerful and synergistic play. The other, th- but before D- Necropotence, the play that was really defining with Dark Ritual was either Dark Ritual Hypnotic Spectre or Dark Ritual Juzem Jin. Mm-hmm. Right, you need a little bit of extra mana, typically a Mox, um, to make the the Juzem Jin play. But those were really the, those are the two plays that you see Dark Ritual spinning out towards in old school the most. So I would say, in my, you know, historical memory or whatever you want to call it, nostalgic memory, those are the main associations. When you when you go to vintage, which you know is the mid aughts, I begin thinking of Dark Ritual in, more in terms of Yogmoth's will. Dark Ritual, Dark Ritual, Burning Wish or Grim Tutor, Yogmoth's will, and you just need one more mana to really get that to go in a very powerful way. <laughs> so, and then Dark Ritual is still played in vintage today in the Dark Petition decks in Ad Nauseum and Doomsday. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing that Dark Ritual has this lineal existence in the history of the format that just takes us right through from alpha to the present where doomsday right now is one of the best decks you can play in vintage i'm glad you mentioned that because i was going to try and address that exact point and how fascinating it is that dark ritual that we stressed we addressed earlier about ancestral recall about how the the quest for ancestral recalls lineage has been to find a version of it that's properly costed and properly powered right and the act has been a continual downward trend <laughs> in depowering the effect. And similarly, cards like, and we haven't reviewed others yet, but we know that cards like Giant Growth have been a, a continual uh, guide to, you know, a quest to find different variants and interesting things that add more combat relevance. And then there's cards like Healing Sav that just have no hope, right? You've got you to continue to power them up to make them relevant. But Dark Ritual and I think lightning bolts are the the ones that were right in the middle of that road they were and continue to be too powerful for the standard format and variants of the standard format for the last several years but they're right in the sweet spot of the slightly higher powered eternal or eternal like formats like modern for example and dark ritual is not in modern but lightning bolt is which is a testament to the fact that they're those two examples are so closely tied to they they hit the sweet spot very closely to to write on in alpha and then it's just a matter of what side of the line do you want your format to be on as to whether or not they're legal today <laughs> i find well, that 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 particular lineage very fascinating well i think there's a little bit of revisionism in your narrative there in the sense that 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 dark ritual has for for the most part been a mainstay and one of the reasons it's been a mainstay through all the different eras of vintage type 1 you know, constructive decks is because one of the key reasons, which I, I think I need to specify, is that for the first 15 you know or so years of Magic's existence, maybe longer, the reason Dark Ritual was so good is because it was a way to deploy threats before Blue Blue came online. You know, before mm-hmm. that, <laughs> before sure. Mana Drain or Counterspell could be played. So you could get your Hypnotic Spectre into play before Counterspell or Mana Drain. You could get your Juzam Jin out before then, right? You get your Necropotence out, especially Necropotence before Mana Drain. Uh, because whether you were on the play or the draw, right, it takes two turns for the blue player, generally speaking, unless they drew a Sapphire or a Lotus, right. to get their blue-blue up. Right. 
And but Dark Ritual has been a mainstay throughout all these formats. So if you look at 2006, it's in the Grim Long decks. If you mm-hmm. look at 2020, it's in the Doomsday decks. If you look at 2011, it's in the Doomsday decks. If you look at 1995 to 2000, it's in 1995, it's in Necro Aggro decks. If, if you look at 2000, it's in Necro Tricks decks. So Dark Ritual has been a mainstay, but that's not been true for for Lightning Bolt. Lightning Bolt was a card that True. saw immense amounts of play from basically 1993 until, until well, I want to say, I mean, it did see play in kind of like the slot, late Sly area when Keeper was around and like, you know, sure. there were still people playing like budget red decks in 2000, 2001, 2002, and they were even played on the Magic Invitational, so it was at a high level. But somewhere around like 2003, Lightning Bolt pretty much disappeared from vintage play. Even it, when there were dominant red decks like Control Slaver. Yes. It was just not it was, played. It was essentially an unplayable card. It wasn't yeah. in the quote unquote type one and then very shortly thereafter vintage card pool. Right. It wasn't until now it wasn't to say it was entirely unplayed. There were instances in which it did see play when, for example, a grow deck or some other decks were looking for an efficient removal spell that could also double as a quick win. Mm-hmm. Um I think I think when Lightning Bolt started to see play is the convergence of two things. The first and most important thing was the was the emergence of Planeswalkers. Yeah. That's when Lightning Bolt really began to see play again because yep. all of a sudden you have a card type which was a salient feature of the vintage metagame which Lightning Bolt was very powerful against because there were basically no way to remove Planeswalkers except Lightning Bolt. You know, every yeah. kind of any every kind of planeswalker. But the yeah, second pl- planeswalkers thing, planeswalkers outpaced the, our ability to deal with planeswalkers in the early days for quite a long time. Right, early days of planeswalkers. Yeah, uh, lightning bolt really became a vintage staple when Jace the Mind Sculptor became a vintage staple. Yeah. The second thing that brought lightning bolt back into the main was the printing of Snapcaster Mage. Yep. Because all of a sudden you could do bolt snap bolt. And you, it's like eight damage. And that know, coincided with the printing of Delver of Secrets too. Yes, which makes makes a big difference. I think that's a big difference between Legacy and Vintage because in in Legacy, Lightning Bolt was always going to be good because it's such a tempo based format where you have these efficient creatures. Mm-hmm. That wasn't true of Le- of Vintage. Vintage wasn't oriented that way. Yep. Until Planeswalkers and Snapcaster Mage. So I I don't think they have now. That isn't to say that that Dark Ritual's presence has been uniform. I mean, my God, Kevin, Dark Ritual basically disappeared from. So I want to say after Pitchlong was dealt with, and then <laughs> Doomsday came back out with uh, Laboratory Maniac, Dark Ritual surged again. Yep. And then it disappeared until Dark Petition was printed, and then it because basically you were in that period where Lodestone Golem was just dominant. Oh yeah. And no one really played Ritual decks until. Until Dark Petition was printed, and then when Dark Petition was printed, I mean there were exceptions. So I'm oversimplifying, but basically, when Doomsday went away, there were people like Josh Wabucker and others who who you know held the held the flame, you know carried a torch for for Doomsday. <laughs> but Doomsday became very marginalized for a, yes. a number of years in the middle of the last decade. Yes. Until Dark Petition was printed, and then all of a sudden you had DPS decks. I mean Kevin Eric Froelich won. One of the first challenges, I think it was in 20, I can't remember, 2015 with DPS. So DPS had a presence with Dark Ritual behind it 
right, for a while, and then it faded again. It faded as we got into that kind of heavy <laughs> turbo Xerox surge slash, um, you know, shop dominance again. And now we're back in kind of a renaissance of doomsday, dark ritual again. So it, it it's not a a like uniform mainstay, but it it's on a with any within any five year period, you will have high profile dark ritual decks doing well, right? And not just not just Reed Duke in the Vintage Championship copy. <laughs> so so I think it's what I'm trying to say is that its presence has been more um, more constant, if not conti- certainly not continuous, but more constant than than Lightning Bolt. Whose presence has been yeah, yeah. really a function of a couple of key points in time, key developments. Well, I don't want to diminish uh, anything that you just described because that was a very good summation of the history of of Dark Ritual in Vintage, especially. My yeah, my observations initially were more about the the whole of Magic, where Lightning Bolt and, and Dark Ritual's printings have followed a similar pattern. Yeah, for example. Dark Ritual was a mainstay not only in Vintage, but in core Magic sets for the first oh, yeah. several. It was in Alpha Beta Unlimited, Revised, 4th Edition, and Ice Age. Ice Age. Yeah, Mirage. then it was in then yeah, that was in Mirage and 5th Edition, not 5th Edition, uh, yeah, 5th Edition and Tempest, then Saga and Masks. So all the large-scale yes. sets that were either... <clears throat> Either Through core the end sets, of the yeah, or or the the root of three set blocks, and then it stopped. It hasn't been printed again in a standard legal set since Mercadian masks. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing to think about. The, yeah. Is there so any that's what other I was talking example about, is that's of a card that goes point. so deep? Because we talked about Counterspell. Counterspell was stopped printing, stopped printed early, much earlier than that. Well, right? uh, no, uh, Counterspell has actually followed the same trajectory as Dark Ritual. Oh. They I, because Counterspell was printed until masks. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And it's not exactly the same trajectory, but and Lightning Bolt it, it was more restrictive than that actually because Lightning Bolt was Alpha Beta Unlimited and then Fourth Edition, similar to Dark Ritual, but then the next printing in a standard legal set was M10, a huge gap. Wow, a that's huge, amazing! Huge I remember that. Yeah. I remember what a big deal it was to have Bolt back. Not yeah. that I played standard <laughs> in that format, but well, and that was kind of an experiment on R and D's part about powering the the powering of removal spells available in standard. It was printed in M10 and then subsequently M10 11, and that was the last time Lightning Bolt was legal in standard. It's only been in promo and reprint since since then. So that's the phenomenon that I'm sort of talking about is is at about the at similar points in time though there's obviously a difference. Mercadian masks for Dark Ritual and earlier than that for Lightning Bolt you know fifth edition for lightning bolt r&d realized that these are above the curve for what we want standard to have access to they dipped their toe back in in lightning bolt for two sets but not since mercadian masks in for in bolt and rituals case in m11 so nine years in bolt's case have they been well, legal and standard well bolt also had a number of immediate variants so incinerate was placed in um yeah ice, ice age. age and i believe incinerate yeah. was reprinted uh, you're right, and also Shock is obviously the the direct yeah. comparison for Bolt, which was introduced in Tempest Block in Stronghold, and then that became the core set uh, preference Staple. for many core sets. Yeah. yeah. The other thing, just the last thing I want to point out about Dark Ritual is that it's, I think, associated. So there's, you know, a common association is that it's just used to accelerate like a big beefy black creature, 
right? Mm-hmm. But the I think um, among competitive magic, in the context of competitive magic, I think the primary association of Dark Ritual is generally with highly skilled legacy and vintage pilots who are very adept at playing intricate decks. And, and part of it is because Dark Ritual highly synergizes with an unusual swath of the vintage restricted list that you can use Dark Ritual to play. You can to play cards like Necropotence, which we mentioned, but also Yogmas Bargain, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Also, um, we have mentioned Doomsday, which was formerly restricted. Mm-hmm. But also just draw sevens. Yep. I mean, the fact that you can ritual into a draw seven, draw more Dark Rituals, then continue to ritual out, and in Legacy was used to play cards like Ill-Gotten Gains. Um, ad nauseum. Uh, ad nauseum, right? So mm-hmm. cards that are strate- generally regarded as skillful archetypes, right? Yeah. Not, not and, just like... And it's especially egregious with Contract from Below, wherever that's allowed. <laughs> that's, that's something I haven't had the privilege to play as we've <laughs> covered, but yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. So, well, so the point, the only point I just wanted to emphasize, also, Dark Ritual is stupendously powerful with Yawgmoth's Will. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. And that's, yeah, that's all we wanted to do when Yawgmoth's Will was first printed was see how many Dark Rituals we could get into our graveyard. And many, many decks were predicated on that fundamental concept of just temporary mana and reusing temporary mana. And related to that, I want to draw up, draw this back to the context of Alpha alone. Another thing that Dark Ritual does in Alpha is cement black and by contrast other colors in their the way they interact with mana there are only six spells in alpha that add mana to your mana pool and also have a color there's plenty of mana artifacts can i guess what they are i'm sure you could guess all of them if you thought about it six so six spells that aren't artifacts and it's a mixture of spells and permanents that add mana to your mana pool we've discussed many of them already in this show of course and we've already reviewed one of them i'm sorry we've already reviewed two of them that's more than I... Okay, you said that aren't artifacts. That aren't Six artifacts, spells. yes. Spells that with add color. Add to your mana pool. That are spells, not creatures that tap. No, no it's like a combination. The, the six includes oh, okay. permanence. Okay, well, that's pretty simple then. I, okay. It's, it's, so Birds of Paradise, Llanowar Elves, Dark Ritual, Sacrifice. Yep, there's four. What's the... There's another interrupt, another black interrupt, isn't there? No, there's not. not. Sacrif- no. Later okay. on, there will be, but not in Alpha. We've reviewed another one that you haven't mentioned yet. Remind me. Channel. Ah, uh, yeah, lovely. And then there's one oddball coming up that you may not think off the top of your head, but it's drain power. So of these six things, what Dark Ritual contributes to, and we've already reviewed the birds, of course, and channel. Channel is the weird one. Channel is the the kind of in-between point. But it cements black as the color of temporary mana boosts. Dark Ritual and Sacrifice, you know, expending resources to get a temporary boost. By contrast, it cements... Um, b- green as the color of permanent increases in mana. You got Birds of Paradise, Land of War Elves, and also by extension, um, Wild Growth, which in the current templating doesn't it, it doesn't add mana to your mana pool. It's a it's a weird exception to this rule, but uh, this quasi rule I've set up. Channel is the weird in between point. You could have made a really good case for Channel to be BB in Alpha, and it would have fit the pattern better because huh. black is the color of temporary mana. So it's really interesting that channel does what it does yeah. in alpha from a color God. wheel context. It would be so interesting if channel was black. Right? Look at how <laughs> so look at how interesting that would fit with cards like Necro and uh and Yogmoth's bargain. Yeah, it would be so very many weird. of the black engines are life intensive. Yeah. It would be very it interesting also, tension. I mean, also the fact that Elvish Spirit Guide is green has been significant to channel. Um yes, but, very but much the so. thing the thing that's clear though is the boons establish something critical about the color pie for each each color. Mm-hmm. Right? 
And so Dark Ritual being what doing what it does, I think, establishes a template not just for Alpha, but for the design of magic writ large. Yes. Yes, definitely. So I guess I should have had Wild Growth on this list of hypothetical things because Wild Growth well, and Mana Flare use a slightly different template because they don't add mana. They, they say it's controller adds. And so Mana Flare is also on that of list. Ma- Gauntlet of Might, similarly. Yeah, Gauntlet of Might uses a slightly different template also. <laughs> but that's an artifact, so that would have been fallen off my list. So at any rate, the, the positioning of Dark Ritual as cementing black in terms of temporary mana boost is interesting in terms of, in, in contrast to modern uh, magic design and modern color wheel interpretation because over time, and there's a particular point in time when this really switched, this activity of sacrificing things for mana was shifted directly into red. And it's really interesting because <laughs> when you look for cards that add more than one mana of one of these two colors, black or red, the first one in all of the history of magic is Dark Ritual. The next one is in the dark, and it's Coal Golem which is a five-mana artifact creature that you can sacrifice to add three red specifically. So it's funny that in the <laughs> early days, and I don't, I don't know if this was a purposeful choice that was well, then backed, backed up from, but in the early days of Magic, they really intuited that red was the other color that could do this kind of thing. But then after that, the next, the next one is Basalt Thrall, or sorry, Basal Thrall, which is in Fallen Empires and Sacks for Fallen BB. Empires. Yeah. Then the next one that's not part of a cycle was Tinderwall in Ice Age. So black and red really traded off this ability for temporary mana for the first couple like of printings. make up your mind. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And then the next several are all black. Just black owns this this activity yeah. then all the way up until Mirrodin because black then has Lake of the Dead, Cadaverous Bloom, which does add green, uh, Culling the Weak, well, Blood Vassal, Priest of Gix, Witch Engine, Phyrexian Tower, Bog Witch. Like, it's all black up until Seething Song is printed in Mirrodin, at which point red just takes over. With Seizing yeah. Song and Kark Clan Stoker and Desperate Ritual and Seismic Spike and a whole bunch of stuff, Rite of Flame. Heretic like Ritual. Yeah. yeah, there's a real pivot point when Seizing Song is printed and this becomes a red ability. And that, that's basically been the model since then. Black still has a couple cards here or there, but when you look at Rituals and that model of Rituals, it's all red these days. Yeah. So, fascinating stuff on Dark Ritual. It's so formative, so important to, to Magic's history and, and especially Vintage's history. Let's move on then and talk. So we got Dark Pact and Dark Ritual, and Dark. now let's get to Death Grip. These Ds have a, a strong uh, a strong black tint to them here at this point of the alphabet. Death Grip is a enchantment. It costs BB. It says BB colon destroy a green spell as it is being cast. This action may be played as an interrupt and does not affect green cards already in play. Couple of couple of templating notes here. Destroy, obviously hilarious. Also of note is that there's the target's not on here. Yeah. As we've destroy covered a green many, spell. Yeah. So destroy a green spell is pretty, it's pretty metal. That's a pretty metal uh, wording by today's standards, which I really like. I don't think any of our other counterspell adjacent effects use this destroy a spell language, do they? We haven't seen one. No. discussed one yet that does. No. Red on my blast, blown on blast. No. They, they all yeah. say counter. Yeah. So who knows why they thought destroy was the right word here. What's really mystifying about this, Kevin, is that we already have we have cards, Red Elemental Blast and Blue Elemental Blast, that blue elemental blast that, that counter or destroy a permanent play or counter a spell on the stack being cast. Mm-hmm. So 
since this only does half of that, you would think there was no difficulty, right? It's just a very simple thing to do. <laughs> they used the wrong half. <laughs> right. I wonder if they had printed a card like AirTie in Alpha, mm. would they have used this templating? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have no idea. And who knows, I, maybe we're, we're, we, we could allow for the fact that maybe this card worked differently in testing and was changed at some point and they didn't update the language, right? It's conceivable that this thing actually right. did destroy green permanents and not spells yeah. or vice versa. I need to find the uh, the the gamma text playtest card. Yeah. To see to see I should probably be looking up gamma cards as we go through this. Um there is a card though. There are cards that do destroy permanents of a particular color. So there's Northern Paladin. Mhm. Absolutely. In particular, which the text on that also use the lang- uses the language of destroy. Yep, which is more evidence in favor of maybe this functioned differently at some point. So maybe yeah. you're, you're, you're pointing to gamma as a good idea. Obviously, today's template in the modern vernacular is just BB colon counter target green spell. And as we've said many times, this is just yet another example of the completely dominant and punishing color hosers that were common in alpha. This one, uh, Steve, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This is not a mainstay in uh, old school at all, right? Do you see this played at all? I- I don't think I've ever seen it in old school. That doesn't to say that it's never seen play, but I've never yeah. seen it. Which is partly a metagame thing, right? Green is underrepresented in old school with a couple of exceptions, is it not? It, so as a black deck goes, you yeah. don't really need to metagame against green the it, way this well, is positioned. It depends on which old school, but in 94, 93, 94, there are kind of elves decks that have, you know, Lenore elves, elves of deep shadow, so on and so forth. And those mm-hmm. are pretty good. But yeah, I can't. I can't say that I've seen. You a wouldn't lot bring of green. this in to fight one mana elves. There are like multicolor green decks as well that use like Sylvan Library and Curd Ape, but but no, you wouldn't be using this. Yeah. I imagine not. There's this just too a... much too much sideboard space that's taken up by the different green decks, whether it's red green white or red green blue. Yeah, this card is a, a total beating if you can get it in the right position, but. I don't think not in the old school context. It could be that this be card is slow. underappreciated in EDH, though. Green is such a you you want this out when your opponent has green haymakers, right? Big five, six, seven mana spells that they're investing a lot in, and you keep those off the table. Now, granted, it's hard to play control against three green opponents in EDH, so that's part of the reason why this card's not played there either. But uh, it's still a pretty good hoser against those kind of spells. Kevin, I just looked up the text of Death Grip from Gamma playtest. And here's what it says. Uh-huh. <laughs> it says, caster may remove a green enchantment or creature for B. So well, there's a black, your answer. Yeah, black, black enchantment that activates for black. So I was right. This was individually intended to destroy permanence. Yes. And they changed it at some point, but didn't upgrade the destroy language. Fascinating. Yeah, it doesn't even say destroy, just remove. Remove, yeah, <laughs> which is hilarious. Not even discard, just remove. <laughs> Wow, so that's funny. My intuition served me properly on this example. So this card originally killed creatures and enchantments. So which which makes sense why it would say a green spell. Or it makes sense why it would apply to creatures and enchantments because those are the only two things that could be in play and have a color green in alpha, right? Yep. Because there's no there were no artifacts with color or any other permanent types. So this was originally intended to take things out of play, and they must have determined at some point that that was too strong. And so they switched it to spells, but didn't change the language. Amazing. 
Uh, Kevin, we should point out that this card is part of a mirrored pair. Oh, yes, absolutely. And we'll be reviewing the other one here when it comes up, but that one's Life Force. But we should mention that the text is the same. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, on the Gamma card... Is the Gamma Life card Force, the same? No, it says cancel a black spell or remove a black enchantment or creature for G. Oh, wow. Wait a second. So Life Force did all of it? Yeah, but it, oh, says, wow. <laughs> it says remove a black enchantment or creature for G or cancel, cancel. the black spell. <laughs> nice. Whereas, what was it I just said? I For death grip, it said cancer, caster Rem- may remove, remove yeah. a green enchantment or creature. It doesn't allow you to counter a spell. <laughs> I guess we should count ourselves lucky, Steve, that these words remove and cancel didn't also make their way into the alpha language. Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> and we're using alpha as a shorthand, but... If there's a difference between Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, we'll, we typically point it out. Yeah, yeah. This was not a card that was improved. We should have been doing this earlier in the set review, looking at these gamma languages, because this would have answered a couple of questions I'm thinking earlier. All right, so let's move on from Death Grip to Death Lace. Now, we've already pretty much covered the laces, so we don't need to cover yeah. this ground again. Steve, is there anything in particular about Death Lace that stands out to you? I have one observation in practice that makes Death Lace unique. What do you think? Uh, nothing. Yeah, so the one thing that I know of that is a particular use for Death Lace is in conjunction with the card Reap. And oh, yeah. There, yeah, the, Reap is a instant from Tempest that says, for 1G, instant, return any number of target cards from your graveyard to your hand. You cannot choose more cards than the number of black permanents target opponent control, controls. The, the current Oracle text is uh, as you cast this spell. So <clears throat> there was a deck... A combo deck back in the day, I don't remember when this was, turn of the century at some point, I don't remember. It was just called Replace, and it was a play on Replace, of course. Replace was a deck designed to, it had four Reaps, and various other mana accelerants, like Dark Rituals, like um, Black Lotus, etc. And it was designed to Death Lace your opponent's permanents. And if you could get to the point where your opponent had two permanents that were black, which is not hard to do when you've got Death Lace and Reap in your deck, then you could start getting back a reap and a black lotus or some other mana source with your reaps so you could get into this loop where each reap generated mana all it took was your opponent to have two black permanents and for you to have black lotus if you didn't have black lotus you needed them to have more black permanents to make the mana loop work like with dark ritual you needed them to have three black permanents so you could make it work to start the loop at least um so anyway there was this replace deck that was designed to generate unbounded mana through recursion with the card reap and death lace and that was pretty cool. I tried that deck a couple of times. It was not very good. <laughs> no, but that was one of the most famous 1990s combo decks. Yeah. And that that actually, I remember seeing it occasionally, very rarely. Yeah. And I would spin type one on, what was it, Apprentice <laughs> Magic Encyclopedia. Every right. so often, you'd, you'd run into an opponent playing it with like Intuition AK, you know, Replace. And that was, once it got going, it was an entertaining combo. Definitely, and it's really it was really fun. Just the notion of uh, turning your opponent's permanents black so that this reap generated you more card advantage. Lots of fun. That's, ama- that's amazing. Yeah. Let's move on to the one card in the death cycle here that is not black. <laughs> that is Death Ward. Death Ward is an instant for W that says regenerates target creature. Pretty good. It's actually only a what is it? 
yeah, one letter off from the current Oracle wording. That's impressive by alpha standards, right? (laughs) (laughs) Very. (laughs) Now, Steve, we haven't talked too much about regeneration as a concept yet. Obviously, we touched on it with Black Weenies and how Dredge Skeletons was a, a Black Weenie, but we haven't really reviewed a regenerate card yet. And so tell me what you think about the way regeneration was meant to work in alpha when it came out. Well, I think it's speculation, but my sense is that regeneration was was really supposed to be a way to rescue cards from dying in combat or from direct damage. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's really that simple. It's it's a thematic concept that you know aligns well with combat mechanics, much like flying. Right? It's an intuitive concept that that does something useful. I think. I, I don't know. There are a handful of regenerators in the set, right? Drudge Skeletons, um, a couple of... Troll, Sedge Troll, and the Wall of Brambles. Yep. There might be a couple... I think... Is that the full extent of them? Then there's the Aura Regenerate. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. It's spread across so many different colors. It is weird that it's in white, though, I think. Even though white is the color of healing, Yeah. Uh, this white doesn't really get regeneration. My take on that is that exactly what as you said, right being the color of healing meant that a a white mage could could apply the regeneration concept to anyone or anything. Whereas the ability to regenerate is only innate in the colors. Green and black. It, it, yeah, green and black. Well, and red to the tune of two yeah. cards too. And so you've got we missed a couple examples, Steve. So it black has the most. Drudge skeletons, wall of bone. Zombie Master and Will of the Wisp, right? Will of the Wisp, yeah. Red has Uthton Troll, and then it overlaps with Black on Sedge Troll. It's debatable whether or not that's Black or Red being regenerating there, right? And then Green has just the Wall of Brambles Brambles. plus the the Aura, and then there's also an artifact in Living Wall that can regenerate. And then there are a couple of cards, very few, but a couple of cards that reference preventing regeneration. Disintegration, Terror, and Wrath of God in particular. Yeah, and then technically, technically, even though it doesn't have the regenerate ability with the colon, for example, in Alpha, uh, Scavenging Ghoul is able to remove corpse counters to regenerate yeah, itself. Regenerate. <laughs> yeah, so black clearly dominates regeneration here, but I think your observation about white in terms of just being the healing color is the the one color that can apply regeneration to anyone or anything. Fair. I, this card is I'm incredibly mar- marginal, though, which is interesting. Oh, very. I'm interested yeah. in how uh, the regeneration concept applies vis-a-vis interrupts. Obviously, interrupts tend not so, to destroy things, but they still do. Like, um, a blue elemental blast could destroy an Uthton troll without the ability to regenerate, unless, in modern parlance, you would let the regeneration go uh, be applied before a spell, potentially. But in the alpha context, if you... Blue Elemental Blast and Uth Control, regeneration need not apply, right? Because of the interrupt window would destroy the permanent before any instance. Because the interrupt is faster, right? The destruction I would be- would complete before you got the chance to play a fast effect. I, I believe that's true. Um, yeah. Which is so strange, I th- and I think not intentional. <laughs> I mean, it's arguable There's- whether or not it's intentional. So I think th- so. The Alpha Rulebook does specify how regeneration works. Let me just let me just read the relevant sentence. Um, it says regeneration prevents a creature from going to the graveyard. This ability must must be used at the moment the creature would normally be removed from play. Uh-huh. Creatures that have already been discarded into the graveyard cannot be regenerated. Enchantments on a regenerated creature remain in play. When a creature is regenerated, it is always tapped 
A creature that is sacrificed may not be regenerated. So the idea is basically around death for a creature. Yeah. That in alpha, there's, you know, it uses the language of dying and death. Basically, a creature needs to be dying, meaning it's on its way to the graveyard in order for regeneration to apply to save it from going to the graveyard. That's the basic gist. Um, I should also point out, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, I can't recall, but the very first kind of archive or reference for magic cards was a man named Dave Howell, who was, along with Joel Mick, one of the playtesters, he published an FAQ in November 1993, Kevin, mm-hmm. where he had he was the official FAQ keeper for Wizards of the Coast. Um, and he so he published this is before you had kind of Oracle wordings or even D'Angelo official, you know, compiled official rulings. And um, so his rulings in 1993 were were critical. And there was one question here. A couple questions actually arose around regeneration. So I'll, I'll read a couple of them just to give a sense for what people actually thought at the time. One of the questions was, um, I've got a creature with regenerate cast on it. What if my opponent uses Nevenral's disc? Uh-huh. <laughs> he says, you can save the creature, but it loses the enchantment. Why? Because the enchantment is a fast effect, so there's time to get it off before everything is officially gone, saving the creature. All spells and fast effects are successfully cast, even if they don't have the full, in- full intended effect. So the creature is saved. We're working on a better explanation of timing issues, he says. But under the Alpha rulebook, all fast effects re- resolve simultaneously. So if a Divineral's disc would send the creature to the graveyard, it does make sense that you could put a regeneration, activate regenerate to prevent it from dying. Uh-huh. I suppose it depends on whether you, you dis- determine that it doesn't actually begin to die until the uh, Nevenerals disc fully resolves, but I think that's probably where the concept of a regeneration shield came from, yeah. or rather that, not this question, but that sort of interaction, right? Yeah, and as magic got more complex, there were so many different ways and contexts in which creatures could die that it didn't make sense to try and make the rules account for all the different things that would engage the possibility of regeneration to <laughs> wait for the thing to happen, right? And so it was part of the simplification of the rules. And I can't remember if the buried verbiage, sorry, verbiage lived until sixth edition or not. I can't remember. But it got you know, lumped in with destroy, and that made regeneration much easier to process. And so now regeneration is just a prevention effect, which, sorry, a replacement effect, which replaces yeah. destruction. Yeah, that makes sense. Is that how regeneration actually works today? Yeah, let me read you the reminder text in the Oracle. It says, the next time this creature would be destroyed this turn, it isn't. Instead, tap it, remove all damage from it, and remove it from combat. That's That's actually what Oracle text says on regeneration? Yes, that's the reminder text. What about the rules, the comprehensive rules? Oh, I I don't have those in front of me, but that's why I said it's a replacement effect, and it's the sort of ability that you can activate at any time when it's an activated ability, like in the case of Wall of Bone, for example just black colon so you can regenerate as many times as you want even without there well, being any effects going on just you can just set up shields so to speak and it's a replacement effect so it replaces so you can set it up right you can you can do it proactively like you propose the the uh, uh, the charms working that's right you in fact you have to today yeah. there's no op, there's no alternative it's not like well let me put it this way there are some cards that trigger off of death and give you the option to regenerate 
like um geez i think maybe clergy of the holy nimbus works that way <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> but you just described oh, scavenging no ghouls, never mind never mind counter. it doesn't even work that way anymore well sca- scavenging ghoul rather yeah but scavenging ghoul is now an activated ability scavenging ghoul really? gains counters and so yeah, I mean, it's an activated I mean ability it, where you remove counters to, to set up regeneration shields but isn't okay yeah, yeah I guess it's no it's longer contingent on any kind yeah. of action or effect destroying a thing that's the Got thing. It. They decoupled the relationship between those things. Now you just activate when you think it's going to happen, or it might happen, or you know it's about to happen, right? But then it, the ability waits. It's a delayed trigger. Not a delayed trigger, but it's just a delayed ability. Got it. Yeah. That's interesting. So so you can't wait until the effect resolves. You have to put it on in advance. I guess that's functionally yes. how it works in Alpha, right? I mean, so in Alpha, let's, let's, take, let's imagine you have a Pestilence and a Drudge Skeletons in play. Yeah. Right? I think we've already talked about this example, but let's say... Yes. You want to pile up pestilence triggers, so you pile up three of them. Yep. Right, and you let them resolve simultaneously. If you let them resolve and the card goes to the graveyard, it's too late. You want to put a regeneration shield on before the pestilence resolves, right? Uh, my understanding of the alpha is that the act of resolving the three pestilences would destroy the the drudge skeletons. At that point, you would get a choice, basically, whether or not you wanted to regenerate. <laughs> that's how I read. That's how I interpret the alpha rulings. Is it happens? It's kind of like it's it's related to, I guess, an interrupt window, or as we'll dis- we might discuss later on, like a damage prevention step. I think it's tied to the act that is destroying the card or the creature, and gives you an so, opportunity basically so, <laughs> to 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 pay the. It's kind of like a triggered ability almost on destruction, although yeah, they didn't word it that I way. I don't know if it actually matters. If it actually matters either way, I, because it because does matter the, though. It matters because of interrupts that destroy permanence. Blue elemental blast. Yeah, that's, what, that's why it matters. That's that's the the tiny corner case. Yeah. But in in no other case does it really matter because all fast effects will resolve simultaneously at alpha. So that's um, right. It, um, functionally, it doesn't matter unless interrupts are involved. Let me just see. So there's two things I wanted to just quickly check. In the alpha league, there's doesn't appear to be any card clarifications are associated with regeneration except on the card regeneration <laughs> which we will nice. we'll explain which we'll get to yeah we'll get to um the only card card clarification is they do indicate that on the venerals disc any cards that are destroyed may be regenerated i also wanted to point out though dave howell's faq on another question he says the question comes up so I cast this spell that gives all creatures and my players some damage. <laughs> I guess he's talking about like volcanic eruption or something. Yeah, earthquake. Or an earthquake or, yeah. The damage is enough to kill my adversary, but they've got an artifact that will give them a point for every dead creature. So I assume they mean soul net. Soul net, S- yeah. Since it won't work until the creatures are dead, doesn't that mean I've won? <laughs> he says, afraid not. Using yeah. an artifact is an instant. I think he means fast effect. Uh, a creature isn't officially dead until all instants are resolved. A regeneration might bring them back from the brink, or the Samite Healer, or something else. Your opponent, your opponent's artifact, means that the same instant, the same instant that all creatures are dying, he or she is using that artifact to gain life. When all the uh. instants are done, and the dust has settled, then it's time to sweep the dead creatures into the graveyard and gnash your teeth, since your opponent lives on. <laughs> that's fascinating <laughs> that, that that sets some precedent for how the lucky charm should work too right explain well because it's it, it's that discussion is equating the death of creatures to a fast effect meaning yes the death is happening and the 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 act of gaining the life is tied to that action 
in some way such that the game doesn't end in between the two. Now, th- isn't this complicated by the fact that you didn't lose the game until the end of a phase or step originally? No. That's not an alpha. That's not the case. That was introduced, I believe, in third edition. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I thought that was in place yeah. from the beginning. I think okay. that I think that was introduced with revised. It, yeah. That's that is not explained. And so, so just a second. Hold on a second. Dave Howell's interpretation doesn't mean that's the best textual interpretation from the alpha rulebook and the alpha card text. Fair enough. It's one right interpretation yeah. from someone who was in the original playtest group and presumably had the imprimatur of wizards. But what do you think is the most reasonable interpretation using the alpha rulebook and alpha text? Uh, of which scenario? Of well, this this scenario where your opponent's going to die and their creatures are going to die. Well, they're they're going to live if they can activate Soulnet. Um, that doesn't sit right with me, and it's not just because of the modern interpretation either. Because so, for example, um, ah, shoot. I can't think of a card in Alpha that interacts with your opponent gaining life. Is there a card in Alpha that interacts with your opponent gaining life? That triggers after it or prevents uh, you the, from gaining? Yeah, anything like that. I can't think of one offhand. Not that I can think maybe of. Maybe there's not. Okay, so maybe there isn't one. But um, I, I just I can't shake the notion that it doesn't feel right that there's no time in between Drudge Skeletons die or any creature dying and the Soul Net giving you life. There's no opportunity to interact in any point in there. That's what yes. this is setting up, is that Earthquake has finished resolving, right? and then Dutch Skeletons dies, and yes. then Solnet triggers and resolves all before anyone could lose the game. That doesn't feel right, right to me. No, I agree with you. I think that's probably that's that does not sit right to me. Now, Semite Healer is different, because Semite Healer prevents damage. Would prevent the death, absolutely. That's very yes. different. Dam- this is not damage prevention, though. Yeah. Right. Well, at any rate, the damage prevention concept is pretty complicated. I think the Death Ward is actually more tricky than we are even giving it credit for in this context because all the other examples of regeneration are activated through mana. This is the only card that if a creature was about to die, you would be casting it out of your hand. And maybe that's no different. They're all lumped together as fast effects. But it does, I think, merit its own type of rules because... This is appears to be the only card that you could cast after a creature after you knew a creature was dying. <laughs> you could still <laughs> cast a spell basically because it doesn't work that way with healing salve, right? Like right. with healing salve, you have to interact with the source of damage before it has resolved. Lightning bolt, for example. Your opponent lightning bolts your drudge no, drudge skeleton's a bad idea. Your opponent lightning bolts your grizzly bears, you respond with healing salve. You yes. can't wait you, for the lightning bolt to resolve no. and then say my grizzly bears is dying, right? Right. So this is a weird situation where you, there's a big difference between healing salve and death ward in that the source of the destruction has basically resolved and you're responding to the death, yeah. which is unique in that way. Yeah. So prevention is weird in the context of the rule, the timing rule that all things happen simultaneously, Yeah. right? Because prevention actually means, no, they don't happen simultaneously. You're actually Correct. preventing this thing from happening. So you really do, in some sense, to prevent something, have to have to play it in in a kind of a response. You can't you can't just like for example, if someone plays lightning bolt on your grizzly bears in this example example, yeah. and then something totally different happens. Like, oh, I don't know. Um, I cast ancestral recall, and you respond with red elemental blast, and then I act. I guess I can't activate. I can't. I, your elemental blast responds, and then I activate a prodigal sorcerer. And then response to that, you activate a rod of ruin on my prodigal sorcerer, <laughs> right? <laughs> like yeah. we can't let all that happen and then let it all resolve, you know. And then 
all of it resolved, and then I'm like, oh, I want to Death Ward my grizzly bear. <laughs> you right. gotta... that, that's definitely functionally bizarre and doesn't seem right. But I think yeah. that's the way it's that's the way it's set up. I think according to regeneration, because the regeneration rules were not written with respect to the difference between a spell and an ability. So I guess I think... they just lump Death Ward in with the activated abilities that these creatures have. Yeah, I I mean it's clear from there's another question from Dave Howell which I won't read, but he reinforces the basic point in the in the rule book, which is that regeneration basically occurs when a card is going to the graveyard and it prevents that from happening. Yeah. So I think. I think you're right. I think that scenario that that Dave Howell answered is just intuitively wrong. You said it didn't sit well with you. I think it's, I think it doesn't make sense from a textual perspective from the Alpha Rulebook, which is that Earthquake resolves anything else that it's on the stack with it resolves, and then the next step is that there's a byproduct from it, right? Which is that the creatures yeah. die, and well, the creatures and so die are a the byproduct. Real... They're not part of the effect. They're a byproduct. Of the effect. Well, and so my question, the, the necessary question which puts things in the modern context is, was there an equivalent to state-based actions or state-based effects in Alpha? Because <laughs> the player losing the game is a state-based uh, effect in yeah. today's parlance, right? And the state-based effect would happen as soon as the right, the first thing that would happen after Earthquake resolved would be the state-based effects. In fact, in, fact, in today's parlance, the player would lose uh, at the same time depending on you could choose the order i guess but they would lose before the creatures died is how it would work today is state-based actions or effects would be checked and what would happen is you would the game would say all oh, your creatures that have taken lethal damage are dead and you're dead yeah those you're things dead would happen before. at the same time right and I, obviously i'm not setting that up as what would happen in alpha but my point is, no, is this, right. this scenario and, and his answer is setting up the notion that you can respond to your own death in alpha basically well i think <laughs> that's no, what I, that's setting yeah up. no you can't do that no, I don't think... <laughs> right. No, I don't... I mean, so here's the interesting thing, though. I, I don't want to get stuck on the regeneration, but I think I think we, I, we've just come to a realization, or I have at least, that prevention is problematic under the alpha rules. Absolutely. It is. There's no two ways about it. That's why regeneration and damage prevention are now effects that, that happen, that you create a shield in advance, and then they are delayed replacements of whatever they're trying to replace, in this so case, damage are, or destruction. What are all the prevention spells in Alpha? There's Healing Sab. Mm. There is Samite Healer. Guardian Angel. There and is... Conservator and all the circles which we read. Conservators... The, the circles are just... I guess they are prevention. Just, they are. They're prevention, but just yeah. to you. In terms of just the creatures, then it's just Healing Sav and Samite Healer and Guardian Angel, right? Yeah. Everything else... I guess technically Fog presents, prevents damage to creatures as well. Although it's not, is it specified? It says creatures attack and block is normal, but none deal any damage. Yeah. So it, it doesn't specif- specify preventing damage to creatures. It says they don't deal any. Which it's unclear whether that's the same thing or not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, agreed. It's, not, it's, it's unclear. So really there's only three things in Alpha that specifically prevent damage to creatures. And they're all white. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the big challenge is because prevention, <laughs> if all spells and fast effects resolve simultaneously, Prevention actually nullifies something from occurring. I guess that you could, yeah, you can't really. You, so the famous example that comes up in Alpha League, Kevin, is this: mm-hmm. if your opponent is about to activate and blow up a Chaos Orb, and you want to disenchant the Chaos Orb, mm-hmm. what happens? Under ninety-three, ninety-four, or traditional old-school rules, basically disenchant or shatter on a Chaos Orb will prevent it from being activated. Okay, and what's the rationale Whereas, there? 
So the errata on Chaos Orb for old school, which we probably should have mentioned, uh-huh. is is one tap, choose a non-token permanent on the battlefield. If Chaos Orb is on the battlefield, flip Chaos Orb onto the battlefield from a height of at least one foot. Mm-hmm. If Chaos Orb turns over at least 360 degrees during the flip and lands resting on the chosen permanent, destroy that permanent, then destroy Chaos Orb. It says, note, because of how Chaos, Chaos Orb is worded, with it being destroyed after a flip, it can still be disenchanted or shattered in response to an activation, which will nullify the ability to flip since it is no longer on the battlefield. This is consistent with the wording of Chaos Orb not being sacrificed upon activation, as it probably would with modern templating. Also note that Chaos Orb chooses but does not target. That's basically so, how old school communities use it. That's the official Eternal okay. Central text. So, And that's directly tied to the Oracle text, which starts with if Chaos Orb's on the battlefield. That makes sense. But the, the really interesting part there is with respect to... Alpha Beta uh, Unlimited text... Oh, with respect to sacrifice, that's the thing. Yeah. The interesting thing here is about how sacrifice works. And unfortunately, we have very little precedent for that within Alpha about sacrificing to activate. Ironically, the only other permanent in Alpha that sacrifices to activate is Black Lotus. <laughs> wow. And, and it's a mana ability, so it obviously doesn't yeah, apply interrupt. to because it's, because it's an interrupt. Yeah. So we don't have any other... Chaos Orb is the only, apparently, the only fast effect in Alpha that involves sacrificing itself. That's why there's no good precedent for this. I am, and I, I really think it's, I don't know why they thought this. It must have been, it must have been convoluted, but to look at an alpha chaos orb, I would, hmm. It doesn't have the word sacrifice on it, right? No. And so the fact that flipping it from blah, blah, blah onto the table is not mechanically related to any other activity in magic means it's unprecedented, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> and then awesome. it's not destroyed. So cool. but, but it, it's noteworthy though that it says, "As is Chaos Orb." Like the last text yes. on the card is where it gets destroyed, which means that it's yes. basically sitting in play while its ability is on the stack, and you don't do anything other than it's, pick it up it's until its sitting, ability goes to it's resolve. It's sitting in play, and technically, it's technically on the battlefield even as you flip it. In some technically, sense. it is. Yeah, yeah. Even though that's that's not really relevant, but. Yes, you're right. <laughs> it's funny. So it's then, like, bring, yeah. So then, so, bringing so, this all the way back to um, well, the the point I was going to make is that the official alpha ruling is that because the alpha rulebook says a fast effects resolve simultaneously, then the interpretation is that both chaos orb and the shatter or disenchant occur simultaneously, which means shatter and or disenchant will destroy the chaos orb, but the chaos orb also destroys itself upon hitting something. So they both happen at the same time. The Chaos Orb will function and the Disenchant will work, but they both destroy, they're both all, they all destroyed. The targets that it hits are destroyed, the Chaos Orb itself is destroyed, and the Shatter and the Disenchant, in a sense, resolve, which is not how it works under 9394. I was going to say, that's a, that's, that's a pointless functionality because your Shatter didn't accomplish anything at that point. Well, it's the the point of it is the point of it is that disenchant and shatter do not prevent chaos orb from affecting well, its damn it its its work where it does it, whereas it does under eternal central Swedish so on. I think it, the the more interesting point is if you don't use chaos orb as your example, which is an which is a, a, a card without a precedent. What if you go to the prodigal sorcerer lightning bolt example? Yes. So in alpha rules, if you activate a, a prodigal sorcerer and someone mm-hmm. responds with lightning bolt, both fast effects will resolve. 
Okay. And is that the same in 9394? Well, 9394 just adopts modern rules. So what would happen is the particle sorcerer goes on the stack. The lightning bolt goes on the stack. They don't resolve simultaneously. The lightning bolt bolt resolves first, then the particle sorcerer. Okay. I got you. Well, and so this, uh, in the case of the alpha interaction with chaos orb and disenchant, then the, the real trick becomes, can you flip a card that is sitting in the graveyard? (laughs) <laughs> that's well, really the trick there's well, no, no there's no real precedent for that or answer to that question well in the rules well no the alpha rule is all effects and spells resolve simultaneously which unless means that unless that's they can't point. unless, yeah, they, unless can't, they can't and and i would argue ex- that you cannot flip a card that's sitting in the graveyard that's my point. yeah well that's that's a very reasonable interpretation in which case you would say then then the other alpha timing rule the the third one applies which is if something can't co-occur Remember in the example of Unsummon yeah. and Shivan and a sword? Yep. Then yep. the player who last... But that's actually... The rules specify that only in terms of spells. But the rule in terms of spells, if two things can't occur simultaneously, then the player who played the last card decides. Yeah. And that's that's what I would have ruled if it were up to me, but that's just part because so in, the the language on Chaos Orb is, is, is without compare. So yeah, that's the just problem an, it's, is, it's just the an intuitive is, thing. The problem is that the rules don't apply. The alpha rule book doesn't apply because that only applies to spells, not fast effects in a spell. Uh, okay, so, I didn't know that. So I think the alpha league rules interpretation is basically that this you don't res, you resolve everything simultaneously. So the resolution means that the chaos orb resolution and the shatter or disenchant resolutions will happen at the same time. But the effects the effects are happen maybe. Um, in other words. The Chaos Orb can't be in the graveyard at the time that you're resolving its effect. You still resolve its effect, and you resolve the, the Shatter effect, the, the, the byproduct of Shatter, which means that it's not in the graveyard when you begin to flip it. Fair enough. So, But Kevin, here's the, here's the real kicker, and I'll leave this for Alpha enthusiasts to puzzle through. And I've only <laughs> told this to one other person. This, this is about, I mean, obviously we were mainly talking about prevention and timing and prevention. Um, and we also know, by the way, that prevention becomes a huge mess after fourth with fourth edition. That's when things become really hairy, and they, they introduce batches for, you know, there's basically a prevention batch at, for every point in the game. Um, yeah. But here's the here's the kicker on Chaos Orb. So one possible textual interpretation of Alpha Chaos Orb. Now look at the Alpha text for a moment. One possible Alpha or textual interpretation is that the the second sentence. Sorry, the third sentence that says, when Alpha Chaos Orb lands, any cards in play that it touches are destroyed as is Chaos Orb, mm-hmm. could make that last clause conditional on the second clause. Which, mean, <laughs> which means... Nice. If you don't which, touch anything, it stays in play. Yeah, it stays in play and you can keep using it. Now that, <laughs> I, I have to say that I didn't come up with that. I actually played a guy in the Alpha League I won't name who it is, a very new player who actually like played back in the day and acquired a Chaos Orb, yeah. and he played it against me, and he missed, and he didn't put it in the graveyard. I was like, what are you doing? And he said, read the card. I was like, oh my god, I think you're right. But we asked <laughs> the league authorities, and they clarified that no, it, it's destroyed. Um, I think there's an yeah. interesting textual case for that, but um, <laughs> that's funny. There was, yeah, it, I, I think it's, it's cool to read. It's cool when you read cards fresh from their alpha text, you get novel interpretations, or at least novel interpretive possibilities. 
Um, well, we somehow managed to talk about Death Ward and get all the way back to Chaos Orb again, which is funny. <laughs> all roads lead to Chaos Orb. <laughs> but I do think Death Ward is funny in the in the uniqueness of it within Alpha and the questions it poses. It's also uh-huh. worth noting that we started doing this early on, but haven't said it for the last couple of cards. This card is misattributed to Dan Frazier in Alpha when it's actually Mark Poole's art, and they revised that in Beta. Kevin, there's one other interesting point in the Alpha rulebook that uh-huh. does actually allow players to resolve resolve discrepancies or irresolvable differences like this, ir- irreconcilable differences. Actually, what what Is I've it done. Chaos Orb in, flips. No, it's coin flips. <laughs> it's coin flips. It's close enough. Yeah, it says. Oh, really? It actually says in the Alpha Rulebook during the course of a game. This is under a section called about the rules. And there's three statements. There's one: if a card contradicts the rules, the card takes precedence. Second, be prepared, be prepared to encounter house rules, and it goes on about playgroups. And then the third point: it says during huh. the course of a game, a dispute that you cannot solve by referencing the rules may occur. If both players agree, you can resolve the difference for the current game with a coin toss. After the duel, you can come to a decision about how to play such a situation in the future. If players do not agree to a coin toss, both players retrieve their ante, and the duel is a draw. Wow. Fascinating. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) That's awesome. That's especially noteworthy in the modern context, especially when it comes to sanctioned tournament play, because that kind of outcome, obviously not from a rules dispute, but anything that anything other than a game of magic determining the outcome of a game of magic is actually grounds for dismissal from a tournament by today's standards. So yes. it's ironic how far we've come. I mean, anti is, represents the same concept, a similar concept, but this that notion is very interesting that they actually codified that in the rules that they didn't have. They couldn't explain all possible scenarios. Yeah, it's also interesting, and I don't want to go too far down this road because I don't think anyone would do this in casual, you know, Alpha League play or Alpha 40 play. But if there is an insoluble circumstance that comes up, and you you're in a in a losing game state, kind of like World Gorger Dragon wanting to draw a game, mm-hmm. you could potentially, you know, like around prevention or something like that, you could say, no, I'm not going to. And there's no authority that is ruled on the issue, like a card clarification. You could potentially say, I, I refuse to agree to this and either coerce your opponent to agree to you or force a draw. <laughs> wow. So. That's interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I would hope that no one would do that. Right. <laughs> but enough about that. Let's move on to Demonic Attorney. Now, we already touched on Demonic Attorney significantly when we talked about Dark Pact. So we don't have to re-adjudicate this one, pun intended. Uh, remove Demonic Attorney from your deck before playing it. If you're not playing for Anti, each player Anti is the top card of their library. We talked about already how this is uh, functionally functionally worse than Dark Pact in most cases, depending on corner cases where there's imperfect information. Anything else you want to add about Demonic Attorney? Nope. Yeah. We covered it well. Okay, this next one is a fun one. We got a, we got a nice row of fun ones coming up here. Demonic Hordes. Oh, yes. For three BBB, summon demons... Tap to destroy one land. Pay BBB during upkeep, or the hordes become tapped and you lose a land of opponent's choice. Worth noting that the alpha card does actually say BBB instead of the mana symbols. (laughs) (laughs) Much like uh, Force of Nature. Much like Force of Nature Nature coming up, yeah. No, no, sorry, it's not Force of Nature. It's It's Force of Nature that has the Gs. Oh, yeah, 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 sorry. Uh, um, So... This card is fantastic. This card I have seen play in in uh, old school. I don't think it's a mainstay by any stretch, but I've definitely seen Ben Perry ritual out yes. of Demonic Hordes in old school. And it's a super powerful effect. One of the things I'd like to note about this is this particular card is noteworthy, in my opinion, 
Come in. in the context of Alpha, because it is a it's a it's a large creature, one of the larger creatures in the set, being a five five for six mana, that also has an activated ability that involves the tap symbol, which gives you <laughs> a really kind of difficult choice as to whether or not you're going to engage this thing in combat, attack with it, or use it for its ability. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is the creature in Alpha that is at the pinnacle of that particular tension. There are other creatures in Alpha that have activated abilities. You know, your Royal Assassin, your Prodigal Sorcerer, your Samite Healer. Right. They're all tiny. They're all one ones. They're not. Yeah. They're there for their abilities. This one actually makes you make a kind of a difficult choice well, vis-a-vis attacking and blocking or stone raining your opponents. The only other one. The only other one that comes to mind is Guy's Liege, which after a certain amount of time, you will need to decide: Do I continue to? Uh, my yes. opponent's lands or attack. But there this you go. One, this one brings it up in more stark contrast because you five power is you know the that's, pretty much that's no slouch. Th- no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I love that particular tension about this card. In addition to all its other flavor elements. Yeah, this card is it, just tapping to destroy a land. Really, I think underscores the fact that land destruction was a salient element of Alpha. That is, you know, it still exists in Magic, but it's not nearly as prominent as it is today. And the art in this, I think, has become borderline iconic. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I, I genuinely love the art. This card looks so cool in Alpha and Beta. <laughs> it's noteworthy. We, we may have... T- I forget if we referenced this specific card earlier, but noteworthy that this um, uses both the tap to destroy language, so we knew we could destroy land, but it's not targeted. It says destroy right. one land. Yeah. yeah. And then if it, if it backfires on you, you lose a land of opponent's choice. That's also not targeted. Obviously, the Oracle text is targeted at this point, but I just find that interesting that this is just another variant on how you're selecting targets in Alpha. I would be so interested to see the game states in which this backfire condition comes comes into play. <laughs> yeah. I imagine... I'm not one of those people because I didn't have a strong aff- affinity for this card when it first came out because this was in Revised right when I started playing. In fact, I yeah. got one of these in one of my early starters or boosters and thought, Ugh, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. That's high risk. But I know there there are people back in the day, or even as recently as last week, that have been burned by this thing and watched their whole the whole side of their board get decimated slowly. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, just, Steve, I'm so I'm, ama- I'm sorry. I'm just want to say I'm so amazed by how deep these discussions of like old school card templating and so on goes. It's it's yeah. remarkable. I mean, you can you can compare alpha and beta text, but then you go back to gamma, and then you can look at the original FAQs. It's incredible. It's really astonishing. It's like a so, niche area of, of intellectual. I endeavor. love it too. I'm also really enjoying the comparison back to the gamma cards. And this is a card that suffered basically no change from gamma, which is really interesting. The gamma card is, it's also six mana, three of which has to be B. It's also a five, five. It says tap to destroy one land, pay BBB during your upkeep or demonic cords destroys a land of your opponent's choice and is tapped. I mean, it basically is unchanged from Gamma, <laughs> unlike so many other cards. Yeah. That's really interesting. Amazing. You know, I'm I'm looking, I can't help but look next to it, because the card right before it in Gamma is Demonic Attorney, and we skipped over it a minute ago because we weren't doing this before, but the Demonic Attorney Gamma text says, if opponent does not concede immediately, each of you anti an extra card for the top of your deck, the game then will count double. Oh my <laughs> god. Oh, 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 oh. That is awesome. That that's awesome. 
This game counts double. That's yeah. fantastic. You're really ratcheting up the tension there. <laughs> I I think what we mean by that, I mean, obviously it's incredibly ambiguous, but we assume <laughs> it means that if you're playing a best of three match, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's awesome. It counts as both games. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, love wow. it. Okay. All right. Anything else about Demonic Horde, Steve? No. Our next one's a big one. Oh, yeah. The biggest. So we're talking, of course, about Demonic Tutor. Demonic Tutor is a sorcery for 1B. You may search your library for one card and take it into your hand. Reshuffle your library afterwards. Obviously, there's a little bit of license here with some of the the frivolous language here. Take it into your hand, right? But ostensibly, this card has emerged unscathed all the years from its uh, alpha wording. And there's, there's not too much ambiguity there, in my opinion. Am I missing anything? No, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, and uh, this card, obviously, as we've talked about lineage so much, this card is the is the progenitor for so many effects like it. Is it the only tutor in Alpha? I feel ridiculous asking that. I think it is, I right? I think this so. is the only tutor in Alpha. I- and so it's so funny because there are so many cards that just become baked into the collective consciousness of the game in the in the community, right? It's because of this card that we refer to searching your library as tutoring. Tutoring. Right? It's the soon- verb was established by this <laughs> card title. Yeah. Yeah, it's... By the way, I, it's hard, there was a period of time for basically the first, I don't know, six or seven years of the game where every tutor card was was very quickly restricted. You know, <laughs> I okay. mean, uh, worldly tutor, enlightened tutor... I mean, enlightened tutor was restricted, mystical tutor was restricted... Vampiric Tutor was restricted. You know, all these cards were very quickly restricted. In Visions, within in Mirage with Mystical Vision, uh, was it Visions? The yeah, the first expansion set to Mirage with Vampiric Tutor. Um, it took a little bit longer for Demonic Consultation. It took five years, but that wasn't quite the same thing, you know, because it had a pretty steep cost. But tutoring is so interesting and fundamental to Magic and Vintage in particular, in a way that's hard to appreciate. You know. Like there's nothing that's just, I mean, is uh, I mean. By the way, Kevin, to just to reinforce the point I just made, remember when they legalized Portal, they automatically restricted Imperial Seal and Personal Tutor, right? Before eventually right. unwinding that. So, tutoring is immensely powerful, uh, just as a general effect. Um, and this is the not only the granddaddy of all, but arguably the most powerful. I've often wondered if Vampiric Tutor is more powerful than this. And there are lots of cases where I've gotten in these weird combo games where I'm upkeep vamp, and if I get the right card, I win right there. You know, I sometimes feel like vamp is better. Right. But but uh, demonic tutor's ability interaction with lion's eye diamonds and and you know his ability to interact just on the spot is a combo piece with the Ogmos will. It's just absurdly, absurdly powerful. Easily one of the most powerful games, powerful cards ever printed. And even cards like Grim Tutor, which you know are variants, are, try and balance it to the points that you made before, mm-hmm. are still immensely powerful. Well, this card obviously there's a, there's a lot of lineage to tutoring, and this forms the the fundamental right. This is the simplest one on its face. There have obviously been a lot of other variants, but I do think <laughs> I do think it's interesting to note how how that lineage progressed because you alluded to vamp, which is the place I was going to go first, right? Because searching your library for anything 
for any kind of card or effect was not a given in the game in the early ages, right? Because even if you look through the first few sets, searching your own library was very, very limited. What's the Think next about card? The next tutor in Magic is Transmute Artifact. Yes, I was going to say. <laughs> and then... And there's only one real. There's only two real tutors in Legends, and they're very they're land tutors, land tax and untamed wilds. And then Ice Age starts to have some tutors because it has Nature's Lore, another land one, but then it has Altar of Bone, which is a steep cost. You have to sacrifice your creature just to look for another creature card. Like that's a way depowered demonic tutor, right? And then the 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 real next iteration is Homelands, where you get Merchant Scroll. Yeah. And then the interesting notion, too, for me is that there's some some strongly depowered versions. Altar of Bone, Merchant Scrolls, obviously less po- much less power than Fold and Demonic Remind Tutor, but still our audience and myself what Altar of Bone does. Oh, God. Altar of Bone is a it's gold a card. From, it's a sorcery for green-white. It says, sacrifice a creature to look through your library for a creature card. A creature. Put that card into your hand. Oh, yeah. yeah, It's just Eladamri's call at sorcery right. speed that requires a sacrifice. Yeah. It, they obviously overcompensated on the power level there. But one of the things I find interesting is that in the mono black context of you know the direct descendants of demonic tutor, the very next one is vampiric tutor. Yep. Now that's Visions. an interesting precedent because out of all these other overpowered cards from Alpha, not many of them their next iteration was actually more powerful, arguably, right? They didn't realize for a long time that demonic tutor was too powerful. And then Vampiric Tutor ratcheted up the power in a very real sense from a mana cost standpoint and a, and a you know a timing standpoint. And then you know you get your you got your portals and your your starters and your portal three kingdoms, which kind of don't really apply. The next real tutor in the direct lineage that we got was Ristic Tutor in Prophecy, and then, and then Grim. And, and, and then uh, Grim actually was printed before that, but then it became legal after that. Yeah. So depending on how I you count the timing, Ristic yeah, tutor was terrible. <laughs> Ristic Tutor is terrible. And then in Plane Chase, you get Diabolic Intent, which is a demonic tutor that requires a creature sacrifice. sacrifice. And then the next card with is the Diabolic exact tutor? same oracle wording is Diabolic Tutor at twice, literally twice the cost. Yeah. So it's a really interesting progression where the mana cost actually went down to Vamp and then got corrected all the way up to Diabolic <laughs> later when they, on. When they printed reprinted Grim Tutor recently, was that in the standard legal set? Yes, Grim Tutor is technically in standard because it's in the core set 2021. Wow, is it any good? Yeah. Do you know? No, it's it's, it's unplayed. It's totally unplayed. Wow. <laughs> I know. Wow. It's really interesting how how delicate this line is. Now, keep in mind that tutoring, by definition, the power of it scales with the power... Not, the power of it scales with the the standard deviation of power for cards in a format. So tutoring is better in the like the alpha context when you can go get an ancestral recall or a wheel of fortune or something that is immensely powerful like those cards in a standard context where the power level is much more uniform there are good cards but there's no ancestral recall there's no like i'm going to play this and i win card and so the power of any tutoring function in a format like that is inherently uh, tamped down which is part of the reason why grim tutor is uh just doesn't see any play in standard yeah. There are other factors at play too, but it is interesting to note that uh, among the examples of cards throughout history that we've talked about, cards where you could reprint them or couldn't and and how, where they sit in the standard format, these are the yeah. other formats. Grim Tutor is is surprisingly on the other side of that Pliable. line, but last time we had played it in Vintage, there were lots of other reasons why it was good. Do you have a firm position about whether Vampiric Tutor is the better tutor? 
versus demonic. It's obviously I, incredibly contextual, but in the in the whole in a holistic sense. In a, in, a, in in my experience in formats like Vintage and Commander, the two places where I tend to play Demonic Tutor, I I still like Demonic Tutor more. But the case is very close. It's very close. And in many, many situations in a vintage context where there's so much downward pressure on mana cost, Vamp is the better card. And let's not forget that we're alighting one comparison here that because it doesn't use the word search uh, has console. fallen off of my radar here, but that's console. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I was going to so say that, that I, think Randy Bueller, I think Randy Bueller probably regard. I think I heard he once told me that he thought console was the most powerful tutor. It may well be. Um, but I was also thinking about Randy Bueller and Brian Weissman and, and um, Brian Manalakos's Nightmare decks. I don't think they used vamps, if I recall correctly. I think they all had four DTs, but I don't recall yeah. them having vamps. I'd have to go back and look at the deck. Now, obviously, one of the differences is that they're playing a format where you need to win on turn one, and they also are playing a format without a lot of cantrips, like Brainstorm effects. Sure. You know, sure. So. Yeah. In the Nightmare context, vamp is... the the. The weaknesses of Vamp are amplified. Yeah. As compared to a format like Vintage, where it's not as much a turn so one format and the there's mana, a ton of cantrips. Yeah, the mana matters immensely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you, have, and you have access to all manner of cantrips, so you can very reliably get access to the card on top. Yeah. That's cool. So the answer to your question is I still consider Demonic Tutor to be at the top of that list. I agree with Randy that Consult is on the abstract, it just it's the best of both worlds. It's just that the deck construction limitation pinholes you into certain applications from a format standpoint. Like there's <laughs> there's only really one way to use consult in commander. There's two ways to use consult in commander. One of them's deterministic and one of them's not. And uh but you're using it to exile your library, <laughs> which yeah. is not its intended purpose, right? It's 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 a it's an ancillary case. And but in a format where you're allowed to play four ofs, then consult quickly becomes really, really powerful. And it's just a, f- a shame that vintage has evolved away from that. But you could still, if you gave me unrestricted consult today, I guarantee you I can build a deck that would be dominant in vintage. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I've often wondered, I, I actually, uh, yeah, on Twitter, Rich, Rich, someone asked Rich Shea last year in the context of Fastbond what he thought the safest unrestrict was. And he said that he thought that the safest unrestriction was Imperial Seal. And I thought it after Windfall, I thought it was Fastbond and after that, probably Windfall. Yeah. Um, and I think actually Justin Gennari also agreed with, with Imperial Seal. What's interesting though, there was a point in Vintage not too long ago, Kevin, where I did an analysis and I looked at the landscape of strategic decks. And I realized that broadly speaking, there were two types of decks. There were decks that were used heavy amounts of the restricted list. And then there were decks that were basically four of, like dredge and workshops. And so I believed at that point in time, unrestricting consult would have actually probably been safe because the way that the blue and combo decks were designed, that they could not use consult because they were so dependent upon a certain number of restricted cards. So the blue yeah. decks were basically using the triumvirate of Time Vault, Tinker, and Yogmoth's Will, and they couldn't avoid those three cards. And then the other, like, big blue, big, you know, blue-black decks were, like, more dark ritual heavy and used, you know, used, like, one Tendril's main deck. You know, and, yeah. and at that point, I believe Burning Wish was still restricted. Even if it wasn't, you know, you, I still don't think they could have reliably used Consult. Now, I do think you could get a good Consult deck with Ad Nauseum. be pretty fun. Well, don't forget Thassa's Oracle. Oh, yeah. With Thassa's Oracle, it would be absolutely absurd today in yeah. Vintage. And Thassa's Oracle is already borderline dominant, and you would, yeah, you would have a dominant deck 
yeah. pretty pretty swiftly. But I was simply pointing out that <laughs> about ten years ago there yeah. would have been a good a good window to unrestrict demonic consultation. That there window is, is closed. St- there are definitely structural elements to metagames that influence its power strongly. Well, so, let's, so we let's... so it's an interesting debate. I just want to close by saying that 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 there's an interesting convergence though around drawing. So you pointed out that <laughs> that the same card text for demonic demonic tutor is on diabolic tutor, and there's a close uh, with ancestral and concentrate. I don't know if there's actually an, a a draw three card blue instant that is an uh, ancestral. Target player draws three cards. I don't know if there's a targeted one anymore. No, that's but in, in, it's instant speed. Yeah, yeah. There's a three. There's a three UU version that's that's draw three at instant speed. Okay. Yeah. Well, the point is that um, yes, yeah, so that's five mana. Um, yeah. The point is that both of these cards are immensely powerful. But the, the the closing point I wanted to make is that at the extreme, there's actually a convergence between massive amounts of draw and tutoring, and that just shows you how powerful tutoring is. That. Uh, at one point years ago, Kevin, I, I did an exercise trying to investigate the least unrestrictable cards in Vintage. And to some extent, the Unrestrict 30 format, or whatever you want to call it, UX Vintage, uh, Vintage yeah. Unleashed, yeah. Right, brings that into focus. And tutoring, unrestricted tutoring, like Demonic Tutor, is incredibly dangerous because the amount of draw that you need to make an equivalent to tutor is pretty large. So when I was playing long... Back in the heyday of long, either when Burning Wish was originally before it was it was originally restricted, or after it was an, uh, uh, you know was playing Grim Tutor and so on and so forth, basically what I would do is a draw seven like a win like a wheel would get you some mixture of lands and mana that was sort of functional to a tutor effect, especially mm-hmm. if you could like guarantee you would get another business spell. But that just shows you I, I was playing Vintage recently, in fact, where I had the option to play a tutor. Or just a huge amount of draw, right? It's like, in fact, it was it was in a very specific game state where it was like, I think I was playing breach combo. It was like, I can play a tutor effect right here, like a vamp, and win the game next turn. Or I can play, you know, like draw six cards this turn, like play a DAC, you know, cast a, a treasure cruise, and and I'll be I won't be able to win this turn, but I can likely it's not a guaranteed, but I can likely win next turn. Yeah. And it turned out I wasn't able to win next turn, and I ended up losing that. I think I lost that that match because I was playing against a, a combo deck because I wasn't able to secure the win with fast enough. It's no guarantee I would have been able to win even with the vamp because my opponent may have done something. I don't remember what they did, but the point is the point <laughs> is that there's an interesting trade-off or convergence between drawing and tutoring. It's some extreme point that also just shows you how rawly how raw powerful tutoring is because we we all universally acknowledge how how powerful drawing is but to actually get to tutoring you have to have an inordinate amount of drawing well it's the clark's third law of magic any sufficiently (laughs) advanced draw spell is indistinguishable from a tutor (laughs) exactly exactly brilliant thank you kevin (laughs) yeah i'm totally there with you and to bring it back to your observation about the the modern interpretation of ancestral the card i was thinking of was jace's ingenuity which is three uu instant draw three cards there's actually a better version of that in practice called precognitive perception from ravnica allegiance which is an instant for the same cost draw three cards with addendum if you cast this spell during your main phase instead scry three then draw three wow (laughs) so there's actually a slightly better uh, yeah. Jace's ingenuity, but either way, in the modern context, ancestral recall costs five, and it still can't target your opponent. By the way, wow, yeah, 
there are other variants thereof that produce a similar effect for four to six mana with different uh, different levers on them. I want to close by pointing out that Demonic Tutor was printed Alpha Beta Unlimited and revised, and then wasn't printed into Standard ever again. It has has been reprinted though a handful of times in reprint sets, a couple of Judge promos, and most recently there was a Judge promo. I guess it was last year. Yeah, I guess early this year, late last year, I forget. And the the most recent one is a version that I really, really love because it has a a young girl with a a doll on her lap, which looks like the doll is whispering into her ear. So, oh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a really creepy and a fantastic variation on the creepy doll trope for Demonic Tutor. Anything else on Demonic Tutor, Steve? Classic. Oh, we should say classic Doug Schuler art. I mean, the alpha art is just incredible. Oh, yeah. The last thing I just wanted to point out about Demonic, just to underscore how powerful it is, Kevin, is do you recall what my submission on the 2007 Magic Invitational was, the final Magic Invitational? Oh, geez, no. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> so I had a, I invited the Vintage community to help me design possible cards. And the two cards that I most was interested in, one was Lion's Eye Petal, <laughs> which I was just, you know, because I loved Lion's Eye Diamond so much, I wanted to do that. But the card that I actually thought through, and this was, I think, of my own design, although I may have had people help me refine it, was a sorcery that's black X. Uh, I think it was, I forget, the, it was basically a tutor, and it you can pay black, an additional black, green, red, white, or blue. Okay. And depending on what the additional mana color you paid, in addition to the black, determined which suite of or card types you could search from your library. So it followed uh-huh. the wishes. So if you paid black, black, you can get any card. If you paid black, white, you could get an enchantment or artifact. That's cool. Paid black, blue, instant sorcery, black, green, creature, land, black, red, sor- uh, sorcery. Sorry, it just for, I guess it would be instant for blue. No, yeah, it would yeah. be sorcery for red. Yeah. So that was my design, and unfortunately I did not win the Magic Invitational, but even if I had, I do not think they would have printed, would have printed my card. Uh, the design is perfectly cromulent in my opinion. The only question to me is development, right? Would they have to have tacked on additional colorless mana to make it balanced? My instincts yeah. tell me, based on what I know of Demonic Tutor, that just making it two mana would be pushing it. Black, black. But if it was B1 with then kind of a kicker of one of those other colors, that's that's printable in my opinion, right? That just makes it Grim Tutor yeah. without losing the three life, for example. Yeah. And we know how do you feel about Grim Tutor now. So I think with additional, <laughs> one additional colorless mana, I think that card's perfectly reasonable. And a good card, too. I'd love to play that card. It'd be super popular in EDH. I know that for sure. And it wouldn't. I don't think it would be broken in the vintage or even standard context. Now, did you yeah, have the idea I, that you could put more than one color of mana into it? No, no, no. You had to choose. Because if now, you put multi-kicker I, <laughs> on that son of gun, that's a heck of a card, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for, for every yeah, color I, of mana that you've paid past the first, you know, the initial mana cost, you get to search for a card of that type. That's a cool card. That You <laughs> might have to add another colorless mana to that. Because if you put four yeah, mana into it to get amazing. two cards out of your library, that'd be pretty bad. That'd be pretty serious. How good would that be in five color? Oh, yeah. It'd be, it'd be really good. So my card was called Twilight Tutor. Nice. Good name. Yeah. That'd be fun, though. That'd be really fun. I like your design. Hey, the jury's not out. We could see it later. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to one that we've alluded to earlier in Dingus Egg. <laughs> Dingus Egg is an artifact, a continuous artifact, mind, for four generic. It says... Whenever anyone loses a land, comma, egg does two damage <laughs> to that player for each land lost. 
<laughs> so it's it's pretty intuitive, even though some of the language is hilarious. Uh, loses a land, for example. The loses language is used twice here. Uh, it refers to itself in the third person as egg. And then uh, for, for each land lost, which is unnecessary, obviously, language at this point. The thing I want to know most is, well, why is this egg hurting me? Like, there's an egg sitting here, and when I lose access to my island, this egg pokes me? I, I don't get it. What's, what's this egg's problem with me? Yeah, it's it's thematically mis- like enigmatic and mysterious. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's interesting, too, that this is Dan Frazier art, and it's one of the the comparatively few Dan Frazier arts that actually try to put the subject into some kind of context. And by that, I mean, it's got the, I guess, allusion to a little bit of hay or something like a nest. Or, yeah. It looks like a dinosaur something. egg. Yeah. Dinosaur egg sitting in a little bit of a nest, but that nest is not even fully realized as a background. It's just some, some lines that evoke plants like hay or leaves or straw. And then that color as a wash behind it. So it's, he, you know, he tried to put a little bit of context here. So, Steve, we touched on this a fair bit when we were uh, reviewing Ankh of Mishra, right? And I think we may have mentioned it in one other context. But um, what is this card? What do you think about this card in the alpha context? And do you see it play in old school? Yeah, the first thing I want to point out, Kevin, is that this card was actually restricted in the very first Ben and Restricted List, official Ben and Restricted List announcement. And it was unrestricted yeah. two months later. I remember that, which completely blows my mind. Can, can you put that in context for <laughs> yes. our audience? Why I'm, I'm was happy, that? I'm happy to do so. So um, before the mandatory ban and restricted list announcement took effect and was announced with um, the first DCI floor, floor rules on January 26th, 1994, there were recommended rules. And generally speaking, the recommended rules that circulated on the Usenet from Wizards folks had adopted the house rule that all artifacts were restricted. Ah. So that wasn't universal, but it was one of the major norms before the very first DCI official mandatory floor rules. And so that, I think, was a carryover from that, where they restricted the first... So the first Ben and Restricted List announcement, let me just tell you all the artifacts that were restricted. Oh, jeez. They, they were, they, they were, well, bear in mind, the only sets here were ABU and Arabian Nights, right? Because this is before Antiquities. So the restricted list, I'll just read it all, was Alley from Cairo, Ancestral Recall, Berserk, Black Lotus, Brain Geyser, Dingus Egg, Gauntlet of Might, Icy Manipulator, The Five Moxen, Orcish Oriflame, Rook Egg, Soul Ring, Time Twister, Time Vault, and Time Walk. So the artifacts, Dingus Egg, Gauntlet of Might, Icy Manipulator, Soul Ring, Time Vault, and all the Moxen and Lotus were restricted. So you had actually a surprisingly large number of artifacts restricted. My sense was that they, pro- you know, they just swept some of those in. I mean, Icy Manipulator restricted, Gauntlet of Might restricted. You know, what what explanation is there, <laughs> Kevin? So your opinion is that for the most part, this was a, a holistic policy sweep, rather, you know, based on the card type rather than the actual effect. Yeah, obviously they didn't restrict every alpha car, you know, artifact in Alpha Arabian Nights, but yeah. I think that there was some sense that these were the most problematic unrestricted artifacts, and you know, these were the ones they probably wanted to hit first and just see what happens. That's my I sense. Think. By the way, I should also just mention that the Gamma version of this has <laughs> it says losing a land does one damage to the owner while egg is in play. <laughs> Uh, that's terrible wording. That's hilarious. It's yeah. also interesting that they powered it up. Did it cost yes, four in Gamma? It did. Four, yes, with okay. no activation. Yeah. 
So, <laughs> and also there's a, just a tremendous ambiguity around losing, right? Does that mean yeah. if you discard? Does it mean if it's just destroyed? Um, you know. Yeah, discard is, it's funny in, with, in comparison to discard just because the concept of discard and destruction were elided so much that you could be, you could be understood in the alpha context to apply this to discarding a land from your hand. And the, the fact that they also restricted Rook Egg led, leads me to believe that they had a broad interpretation of, uh, yes. of discard here. Yeah. So I think that probably contributed to why they restricted it. Because they didn't want people activating Bazaar and discarding lands and then taking damage. Or, or you know, getting mind twisted and then taking eight damage or something. You know, time it's twister, mind me. twist you. <clears throat> Yeah, it's interesting to me to compare this to the Gamma version, which, as you said, cost four mana, but only did one damage. And if you compare that back to Ankh of Mishra, which in Gamma also cost four mana, four mana and did one damage. Right, they so were these, paired. Ankh of, paired. Yeah, Ankh of Mishra and Dingus Egg were, were paired and mirrored in, uh, in Gamma, but then Ankh of Mishra was just powered up completely to the tune of half the mana cost for some and reason. And double the damage. Uh, well, they were both doubled though. Yeah, they both they, did they one both damage doubled. in gamma, and both do. Yeah, so yes, you're right. So Ankh of Mishra is basically quadrupled in power. Exactly, <laughs> half mana, double damage, <laughs> yeah. and this one was only doubled. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder why they thought that was the way to go when that's just when when Ankh of Mishra is so much more punishing. Like Ankh yeah. of Mishra punishes you for developing. Yes, Dingaseg is just piling on for when you get for when you get um already punished right maybe yes. that's the reason maybe they didn't want people to be have the feel bads of i lost my land and uh, I, I lost my life or maybe they just were concerned about like hippies and disrupting scepters and things like that you know with dingus yeah. egg it's it's impossible to know that's a good point that's a good point maybe the discard was uh, a very real part of how this was built when they were testing it yeah, this card's funny. It's it's funny to me, like so many cards in Alpha Beta Unlimited, that it survived as long as it did. This card was printed ABU and revised. Then it was printed in 4th edition and 5th edition and 6th and 7th and 8th. Like, every core set up to 8th edition featured Dingus Egg. This was just a core tenant of magic, as far as anyone knew, all the way up until the year, what is 8th edition, 2003 or something like that? Yeah, I mean, this survived. card is legal in modern because, because R&D thought that this was a core tenant of magic. It survived for two all editions years. past Ankh of Mishra, which is really <laughs> saying something. That's amazing. Why we thought we wanted this to be part of magic to punish it, people for losing their lands. You know, it may also be the case that they were concerned about it just being a combo with Armageddon. Okay. That's that's, po- that's possible. Like your opponent has ten yeah. lands in play. Okay, Armageddon, you're dead. I don't know. I'm speculating yeah. or balance. Yeah, that's dead. fair. That's fair. Who knows? But Armageddon lasted almost as long in the core set too. So it's interesting to me too that in the modern context, the the oracle wording of this is whenever a land is put into a graveyard from the battlefield. What that means is it's not contingent on destruction, right? This goes back to the ah. interpretation of the alpha word loses, right? Yeah. So there was no way in alpha for you to lose, quote unquote, to have a land go to the graveyard without something destroying it, right? Yeah. That, it was not possible for that to happen <laughs> in the alpha context. It's, it's amazing that the revised text has the same text. It talks about losing and then land lost. 
whenever <laughs> anyone that's right whenever anyone loses a land so it's not until fourth edition when they say each time a player puts a land into the graveyard from play that they actually got an updated language yeah that's, you're right that's funny <laughs> as we've discussed before even fourth edition was not immune to having ridiculous language too the um oh, so yeah. i find that interesting <laughs> that the, the interpretation of loses was not uh destruction it was not contingent upon uh, your opponent taking action or anything and so in the practical sense the modern card triggers off of fetch lands which is it would be very relevant if this card was actually competitively costed yeah so in a very real sense this card functions like half of an Ankh of Mishra already in the Fetchland world, right? Because <laughs> if you have this in play and you fetch, you take two. If you have Ankh in play and you fetch, you take four. That's pretty funny to me. Dingus Egg, I'm glad I don't see it in play. It's not the kind of card I enjoy. So from a little bit of a dud to another classic, Steve, we're, next up is Disenchant. This is 1W for an instant. Target enchantment or artifact must be discarded. <laughs> Obviously, we're back to the discarded language here in place of destruction, but that's not terribly ambiguous in the, in the context of uh, practical applications in Alpha. But much like Demonic Tutor, this is one of those cards that just became the representative of its type, its whole subclass of cards in the form of disenchant, right? That's why we, well, I mean, I and many other people refer to anything that destroys artifacts and enchantments as a disenchant. And then, like, when, you know, when uh, when Nature's Claim came out, we're like, it's a disenchant, but it costs green, right? And so there's there's a reason why that is, and that's because this card is one of those that has become not only the standard to represent its subclass of removal, but also just another one that the costing in Alpha turns out to have basically been the right cost all along, <laughs> and there was not much need to change it in any real way. And there's no better representation of that than this card is directly reprinted in the next set, Zendikar Resurgent, and at the same cost and or a different as Disenchant, nice. yeah. Nope, straight up reprint in the next set that's coming out, and many others before then too. It was like an M20 and and multiple other core sets, and obviously it was a, a staple in the early days, being in in Ice Age and Mirage and Tempest, etc. Urza Saga. So Disenchant is just Disenchant. It's universal. It's well understood. There have been many, many variants. Don't get me wrong. It's still, they've varied on it a lot, but the, the core of this card is still the thing you need today, and it's still representative of of what Disenchanting is. Yeah. There's so much to say, but since we are primarily and historically a, a vintage podcast, the point I want to make about Disenchant is to build upon one of the points that you made, Kevin. In relation to nature's claim, for many years, white was anchored by two cards, Swords to Plowshares and Disenchant, the, the kind of the, mm-hmm. the quad set in the deck, right, that, that are just as right. important as the counter magic. And I believe there was that one of the reasons white fell out of play for so long in vintage. I mean, it's, it's amazing to say that today because white is now a very prominent color. Mm-hmm. But there was about a 10, maybe year longer period, maybe even like 15 years, Kevin, where white was by far the worst color in vintage. Yeah. And we've talked about that on our, this show and our metagame reviews thereof. Yeah. And I believe, I believe that one of the key problems was shifting. I argued this at the time when I was writing for Star City Games was shifting disenchant to green greatly weakened the foundation for white and the reason for being played. Right. And Nature's Claim shares a lot of the burden for exactly that. Right. It's like you're printing a, a more efficient Nature's Claim in green. Goodbye, Disenchant. And Disenchant's never really seen play <laughs> right. since. 
Yeah, it's only niche play. But part of that is even when White came back, right? When, when Mentor came back and White came back, there were already so many variants of Disenchant to be looked at. And even when Disenchant proper was maybe the right thing to do, we had access to things like um, the the split card. What's the name of the split card um, that does an artifact or an enchantment? I know what you're talking about. I can't remember it off the top of my... Oh. <laughs> what's, what's the name of that one? And we'll find that one in a second. But then the other one, obviously, is Fragmentize. Fragmentize. Yeah, which Fragmentize bought back a lot of the equity from Nature's Claim, <laughs> right? right? Where you finally had a, a one-mana disenchant in the white color that could functionally play the same role as Nature's Claim in many, but many contexts. But the difference was that in that case, Fragmentize didn't represent a shift back to white. It actually call, was the culmination of that shift because the, yes. what, what pushed white back into vintage was Monastery Mentor, Containment Priest, and then you had printings like Rest in Peace and so on and so forth. But really, Monastery Mentor and Containment Priest were the the first driving forces. And now you have white embedded in Lavinia, in uh, Teferi, you know, and all these. Teferi, yeah. White is just, and then Fragmentize, I think, was like the culmination, you know, kind of the exclamation point, if you will, underscoring white's centrality back into the format. Yeah, yeah. And the card that I was blanking on, that both of us were blanking on, is Wear and Tear, which obviously became very handy because Just Guy became very powerful in the format, and Wear and Tear represented the ability to scale up and potentially destroy two permanents if your opponent ha- happened to have them, mostly in the Oath matchup. But obviously it was just generally more efficient on the enchantment side if you needed it to be. You know, it is interesting. Two things are interesting just about it in, in Limited Edition. The first is that Limited Edition has very few ways to destroy in artifacts. Mm-hmm. It's not until Antiquities that you get kind of the, the multiplicity of answers from Shatterstorm to Hercules Recall to Gate of Phyrexia, so on and so forth. And so two of the main answers are basically Disenchant and Shatter. Beyond that, you're looking at things like Disc yep. and Chaos Orb. Yeah, we touched on that a bit earlier, yeah. And so Shatter and Disenchant are incredibly important in Alpha. But the interesting thing is, Kevin, how many cards in Alpha are modal in being able to hit two different card types? Either just affect them in any way or destroy them. I don't think there are any others. Well, the, are there? the the blasts are right. Well, we talked about this when I brought up the modality in the blasts, but that doesn't that's does not really what you're asking. No, I'm is talking it? about card types. Yeah, yeah. So I think in practice, disenchant is actually the only one. It's funny <laughs> when you compare it back to like the gamma cards for death grip, for example, and or life lace uh, life force. Excuse me. <laughs> that's a humorous comparison because when they were originally designed, they could be very flexible, but then they weakened them when it came time to print them in alpha. So I think in practice, you're right. I, aside from things that can target any kind of permanent, like uh, the laces, for example, which aren't really what you're talking about, aren't, aren't truly modal where you're making a choice like that. I don't think there's anything else other than the blasts that really, that really is capable of doing that. And even as you pointed out, Shatter only has one mode, right? It's that's not a flexible card by any stretch, and so yeah, I'm I'm scanning the list here now, but I think that's it. I think that in addition to all of its power and its efficiency, Disenchant also is unique in that particular niche within Alpha, and it's no surprise also that for the reasons you described about swords and disenchant in particular that that they contribute strongly to white's utility in old school too 
one of the things that's no secret about old school is that the answers are actually way more efficient than the threats in old school because primarily because of swords to plowshares really but also because aside from mana artifacts there's not too there's there's very few one mana artifacts that are present any kind of threat in old school black vice and the rack really are kind of it and then so that means that disenchant is as expensive if not less expensive than almost all of the artifact based threats in the format too so what that means in practice just like it does with plow is that it's easier to answer a threat in old school than it is to present one in most cases outside of true weenie decks with multiple one or two mana creatures and so what you get is this is interesting well it's basically what the underpinning of the the construction of the deck was was that you had all these hyper efficient answers and then card advantage sources like james dayton brain geyser ancestral that were designed to just draw you into more of these hyper efficient answers that's part of the reason that that was such a dominant archetype in the early days of magic and subsequently vintage and it's one of the reasons why especially in the early days of old school i would observe that the deck was such a go-to for many players there are many players for which for whom old school was just here's my favorite version of the deck <laughs> for whatever version of old school i'm at and there was not a lot of creativity needed not to besmirch those players but there's just a significant portion of that population that was just drawing to that archetype and there's a good reason for it disenchant is a huge part of that whole phenomenon and all the the tertiary effects thereof yeah and old school i think there's a legitimate argument to be made for restricting swords to plowshares now there's a a lot of knock-on effects like hypnotic specter becomes more powerful and so on and so forth but Mm -hmm. if you got if they've already restricted mana drain out of the deck the next option is either jm day tome or swords to plowshares do you think disenchant is on that list or do you think that's too much of a reach um (laughs) i think it's more of a reach I think it's partly too strong of a restriction just because of the reasons you already observed. You'd have to dig pretty deep to inefficient effects in order to deal with artifacts and enchantments if you only had access to one disenchant. And the shatters and the crumbles of the world really pale in comparison. Right. It's amazing. Despite the number of answers to artifacts in antiquities, there's just nothing as overall pointed and efficient as disenchant. Right. Yeah, Artifact Blast is a cool card. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, you have to think of the work you have to do with Gate to Phyrexia. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I know that there are probably many players out there today for whom Disenchant is a very unsexy card. This is just boring, like, oh, I've seen this in so many sets now. If you've been playing for a couple of years, you've seen it over and over again, probably. But you have to give some props to a card that does as much work as as efficiently and correctly in terms of costing and effect as a card like disenchant that draws its roots all the way back to the first set and you know it's funny even it's it's unchanged even from uh gamma yeah <laughs> and gamma it was called d enchant but it was exactly the same as two mana required one white it was an instant destroy an artifact or enchantment i mean this card is pure and one of those things that remains basically un- this is like this is like um the great white shark this thing has never had to evolve. <laughs> and it's still just as effective a hunter as it was when it was first uh, first evolved. In prehistoric times. Yeah, exactly. Anything else on Disenchant, Steve? No, that was great. Oh, hey, I want to ask you something. This is some fantastic Amy Weber art, and I've always loved it. In the alpha version, of course. Uh, um, <laughs> to your eyes, what is happening in the alpha art for Disenchant? <laughs> 
Well, I assume... This is, this is a bit of a Rorschach To me, it here. looks like a saucer or a plate that's being um, chipped at, broken. By that little red crystal thing? Yes. Yeah. I think that's a fair reading as well. And I have... I can't put... I can't put myself into Amy Weber's mind when she was uh, when she was crafting this. I can't help shake the notion, though, that the red crystal that's pictured off to the side is very inactive in this art. Yeah. There's a little bit of a red glow, a tiny red glow around it, but there's no depiction of destruction. It's just kind of near or above the plate, and if there's no menace, there's no action or movement involved. I think your reading is a pretty good base-level reading, but at the same time... I just can't shake the notion that maybe there was something else implied. Well, you can't tell if the red object is the cause or a byproduct or just something in the space. But Yes. And maybe, just maybe, that we're reading too much in and the red object is actually just negative space. Maybe it's just a hole in the plate. And as such, it's a little bit of a trick of the eye that it looks like a prism. It could just be, given Amy's other abstract artworks, that it's just the absence of thing that is as you said, chipping away at it and be- beginning the yes. dissolution of the plate. Yeah. yeah. I, I I don't say this for many cards in alpha especially, but I, I have altered versions of Disenchants that I have for my altars project. And it was one of the more fun ones to do altars of because <clears throat> the the altarist, Revelance Light, they didn't make a new art or put it in a snowy background or whatever, like many cards for my project. They just changed the subject on the plate. Hmm. <laughs> and, so, and so my altered Disenchants just have different uh, winter or Christmas adjacent images on the plate, That's awesome. like Santa's head. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> makes them super subtle and really satisfying, and they fit right in with the original card. Yeah, it's really fun. <clears throat> All right, disenchant, fantastic, goes down in history. Let's move on then to disintegrate. Oh, this is a classic, right? Maybe not as iconic as Fireball, but has its own place nonetheless. Disintegrate is XR for a sorcery. Disintegrate does X damage to one target. If target dies this turn, it is removed from the game entirely and cannot be regenerated. Return target to its owner's deck only when the game is over. Oh, not the, only when game is over. (laughs) So Disintegrate obviously forms a pair with Fireball and cements red as the direct damage color in alpha. And also brings up the notion of preventing regeneration, which I alluded to a few minutes ago with respect to Death Ward. There's a, a short list of cards in alpha that do this. So the designers were pretty clearly aware of regeneration and the ability to get around it. It's also of note that templating-wise, this uses a couple of things. This uses target, one target. So that makes it clear in with respect to other cards we've discussed at target that this could target creatures or players in the alpha context. And also says if target dies this turn. Now dies is a modern parlance. In fact, um, it the the, alpha, the the current Oracle text says if it would die this turn, exile wow. it instead. So dies is actually there. Ironically, it's been kind of retconned as the preferred language for a creature going to the graveyard. But that was not the case. That was not firmly codified in Alpha by any stretch. Dies was ambiguous in Alpha. And it just so happens that we now use that term. But it says removed from the game entirely, which which was the, the word entirely was obviously there in Alpha in a, a number of cases was removed later in the favor of just removed from the game and then since been switched to Exile. So there's a lot of interesting templating things. This card's not very egregious in terms of templating mistakes or comedy as many other cards (laughs) we've already reviewed. It is interesting to me that... I mean, so look, Fireball has the extreme advantage that you can get card advantage from it, right? (laughs) 
Absolutely. And you can't get card advantage from dis- disintegrate, at least not easily. But the the thing you can do, it tacks two additional abilities to make this viable instead of fireball, right? That you can't regenerate and that it exiles the creature entirely. Mm-hmm. So I think it is notable that they recognize yeah. that they need to make this card, you know, boost it, burnish it enough to make it a, a, an option over fireball. Now, it's worth noting, those of us who have played competitively with alpha cards for however many years or whatever, uh, old school or vintage or other formats, we, I think, maybe I'm putting words into a lot of people's mouths here, but I feel like it's pretty common to equate exiling with alpha because of swords to plowshares. I feel like that's pretty ingrained that alpha has plow. It's the best removal set spell in the set and indeed possibly all of magic and it exiles, right? There are only two cards in alpha that exile. <laughs> <laughs> it's swords to plowshares in this. Right. Like that is a very, very niche and unique ability within the alpha context. And so it's pretty noteworthy that if you're not playing white, then the only other way you have to deal with a recurring threat, like say nether shadow in the alpha yeah. context is this. Yep. I mean, in terms of, in terms of foolproof answers, it's a great point. I love the fact that this card exists. I love the fact that it cements red so firmly in the direct damage space the within the alpha context. X. Yeah, yeah, right. The scalable X burn. Yeah, I enjoy it. That too. said, this card really, fa- really, really pales in comparison in historical application to its fireball brother. Yep. Well, you can tell they tried. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a good point. Tacking two extra abilities onto this demonstrates that they tried. And I have to believe too that. Um, <sighs> All of our all indications are that they didn't appreciate that Richard Garfield and his playtest partners did not appreciate card advantage to the degree that we do today. Right. Just full stop, right? They knew it was powerful, so, but I don't know if they knew the extent. Yes, exactly. That said, if you first pick a disintegrate in Alpha Draft, you're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> it's also worth noting, Steve, that it's really funny for me to think about this, and this is apropos of nothing. To me, this art is very evocative of Terminator 2. The moment from Sarah Connor's dream where she envi- yeah. envisions Apocalypse Day. And yeah. it's worth noting that I don't know when this art by Anson Maddox was painted. You have to believe that it was pretty proximate to 1993, though. And Terminator 2, it's, it's so bizarre to me to think about this. That Terminator 2 came out in 1991. I would I would not have remembered it that way. But just the simple notion that... Terminator 2 had been out for a couple years and then this art was printed. I can't shake the notion that it, it might have influenced this. It's just, it's so, just, it's just so evocative. So yeah. I don't know that to be truth at all. It's just they're, they're so closely related in my eyes. But anyway, that's apropos of nothing. Let's move on to just an incredible, incredible card in Disrupting Scepter. So, three mana, mono artifact, three colon opponent must discard one card of his or her choice can only be used during your turn. Obviously, there's a little bit of textual ambiguity with respect to discard, which I know we can get you to talk about. And the notion of only being able to be used during your turn is also one that I think bears comment. So obviously, this card is incredibly, incredibly powerful in the context in which it is used, both in the like the Alpha League and Old School and even Vintage back in the day. Where do you want to begin? Well, I want to begin with the deck. Mm-hmm. And type one. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's I think important to re- to remind people is that in in old well in contemporary old school, Jam Day Tome 
gets all the attention. It's the sexy card, right. the sexy artifact that defines the deck. And, you know, many of the most successful the deck variants run three or four tomes. What people forget is that in the original and most famous, not the original, but the most famous version of the deck, the deck ran two Disrupting Scepters and one Jam Day tome. Yeah, Brian Weissman was a big fan of Disrupting Scepter. Yeah, and and Disrupting Scepter in many ways is like obviously an inversion of the Jam Day tome because you, you pin your opponent down in terms of discarding cards and it creates immense card advantage, right? Instead of... In the Gamma version, it costs two to cast and two to activate. Which is wild. Can you believe that? <laughs> Which is wild. It, <laughs> um, of course, it's it's not random discard, you know, whatever, and so if your opponent's choice, but it's it is incredibly powerful to pin your opponent out of counter spells, especially against control decks, out of creature removal or counter spells or whatever, or even just threats. Like they have to choose between, you know, the, what cards they want to keep. Um, I think the disrupting scepter. Disrupting Scepter and Jayade Tome, if those two cards were kind of the, the active components, not the passive components of the deck, right? The unrestricted, kind of normally powered, <laughs> right? Not abnormally powered <laughs> components and major tools of the deck. I think that they found contemporary iterations in cards like Jace the Mind Sculptor. Now that's most visible in Jace's zero ability, brainstorm ability. But it's not also invisible in its Fate Seal ability, where instead of actually making your opponent discard, you're manipulating their potential hand in a way that can can build up to you know cumulative effect. Um, there hasn't been, I mean, there there are I should say shouldn't say that there are Planeswalker effects that have this built in, like Liliana, but they all are ticking down, right, Kevin? To just make you discard, make your opponent discard a card of their choice. That's an interesting question. So you're positing that every planeswalker that makes your opponent discard ticks down to do so? A- asymmetrically. Asymmetrically, yeah. I figured you were going to get that. So, yeah, like, obviously, Lily Under the Veil, like you said, ticks up, but it's, um, it's, uh, symmetrical discard. So, <clears throat> there's obviously one example that, that disproves the, the premise, and that is Devriel, Rogue Shadow Mage. That's the one from War of the Spark, where it only has one ability, and it's just, Three starting loyalty, minus one target player discards a card. But to your point, that one's ticking down. There's Angrath, the Flame Chained, which is five mana from uh, Rivals. And he says, for plus one, each opponent discards a card and loses two life. So there are some Nicol Bolas ones that also take cards out of your opponent's hand, too. Like the Ravager, which turns into the Arisen, which is... Uh... Oh, no, that, one's, that one doesn't take cards out of your hand. Which one is it? There's another Nicol Bolas that t- takes cards out of your opponent's hand. Oh, but that one goes down to do so. Yeah, yeah. So the Lilianas tend to be a- tend to be symmetrical discard, but the original Liliana, Liliana Vest, also goes up for target player discards a card. So there's kind of a smattering across the spectrum. A couple of them do actually gain loyalty to make your opponent or all your opponents discard. Got it. So, so I mean, th- getting back to Disrupting Scepter, though, this is an immensely powerful effect. I... An alpha, I actually prefer this card to Jam Day Tome. So shift, obviously this card hasn't seen play in, in, in vintage or type one since, since the nineties. Oh yeah. One last point though on the deck. Um, elemental augury was used in, by Mike Long in a magic invitational in a version of the deck that made it call, that, that actually kind of called it to be rebranded because it was called Keeper and Keeper was the, the main, 
I don't know, nomenclature for describing this strategy, this five, four, five color control strategy. Mm-hmm. When you and I met, yep. Kevin, right? And we were talk, we described this, this deck as keeper. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's more famously today known as the deck. But the main reason it was called keeper is because elemental augury kept his opponents, Mike Long's opponents from doing anything, much like the fate sale ability has the potential to do. Um, but, um, you know, whether it's discard or manipulating the top of your library so your opponent can't draw anything, they're, they're kind of of a piece. They're similar of a piece. I prefer in alpha disrupting scepter to jam day tome for two reasons. One is that jam day tome is really slow, just slow. It's slow when you don't have like a lot of artifact acceleration it, like it is in league. It's probably better in alpha 40, although the original Alpha 40 interpretation of Disrupting Scepter at the first Wizards tournament, Kevin, I don't know if you've, I've told you this, was that discard was broadly interpreted to mean uh, cards in hand or cards in play. So that yeah. once you once you emptied your opponent's hand with mind twists, you could then start using Disrupting Scepter to stone rain their board. I remember you telling me about that, and I remember I, that's a, a fascinating, <laughs> just a fascinating bit of interpretation vis-a-vis alpha now we've talked about all the different reasons for discard and destroy being conflated in alpha but the fact that there's actually a group of people who acknowledge it to the point of implementing it and playing it that way (laughs) i think it's fascinating yeah Yeah. so so the point i was going to drive at though is that in in alpha 40 at least in alpha league 40 40 card decks mean that like jam day tome is by the time you get it cranking if you don't have threats to deploy deploy quickly, it's it's hard to capitalize in a big way. And so I think you either have two choices. You're either playing a deck that has enough win conditions that you don't have to worry about that, or you're playing it um, in, a, in a larger than 40-card deck. The second thing is that Disrupting Scepter can go into basically any kind of strategy you want. Now, I saw a guy playing Mono Red with Jamday Tome, and he, he had like a 51-card deck, and it was fine. But Disrupting Scepter, basically the main idea is, is if, for example, in my elf deck, my green-red elf deck, the idea is turn one elf, turn two scepter, turn three, go to town. Mm-hmm. Start emptying my opponent's hand, and then anything they deploy, I can clean up with Fireball, you know, or or deal with with a Jade statue or something. So, so I think that Disrupting Scepter has a much larger scope of application. You can put it into a mono-green deck, which I definitely would play one, if not two, in mono green, mono red to get the the white blue counter spells out of there. Um, you can even play it in mono white for the same thing, or mono black, or any you know combination of colors. You probably wouldn't want to play it in a in a heavy permission deck because in a permission deck your opponent is trying to empty their hand quickly. Although it's probably fine for the permission mirrors in in alpha, but I think in general, disrupting scepter has larger scope of application. One other thing, I have used Disrupting Scepter in basically every version of my blue-red old-school deck <laughs> yeah. that I top-baited four times at Eternal Weekend with, and it was, I've always, I either played one main deck and one sideboard or something like that, and it's it's very, very good in that, because once you're playing against a control deck, especially the deck, Disrupting Scepter is really where you want to be. Did you, you find yourself uh, boarding it out against any decks that were lower to the ground? Definitely. Yeah. Not uniformly, but generally. Yeah. It's just so efficient. I mean, by, <laughs> really today, is. by today's standards, like you know, modern magic, this card hasn't been reprinted since ninth edition. It's not efficient by today's today's standards, but in the context of alpha and 
especially as compared to Jame Day Tome, costing one less on both the front and the back end. It's just really, really efficient, and it's, Kevin, it's hard to match. When were, when was the planes, first Planeswalker printed? So I remember that the first one was contemplated in uh, Future Sight, which was 2008. Yeah. The first, the original five were in Lorwyn. Is it coincidence or is it is it me <laughs> that that these that these kinds of utility artifacts like Jam Day Tome and Disrupting Scepter and any of the others kind of go away when Planeswalkers become more salient? Is it just that these kinds of like effects have been ported out of artifacts and put onto planeswalkers? As, as the has the des- design space opened up by planeswalkers consumed the space that the design space for base sets that would go to disruptive or utility effects like this? I think that the short answer is probably not, but you make a fair point, especially in the early stages. Like we, you've already asked about discard, right? This ability, like Disrupting Scepter, is literally on Liliana Vess, one of the first Planeswalkers. So there's obviously some thematic overlap. But at the same time, unlike War of the Spark and the first five in Lorwyn, the average set these days only has about three Planeswalkers in it. So while there is a lot of functional overlap in some basic abilities, like discarding (laughs) and, and doing damage and other things that many artifacts have done over the years... I don't think it's really taking up the the space in practice. Like the set Lorwyn itself still had a dozen artifacts in it. Fair. And so I think in practice, not really, even though there's a lot of overlap. So from a set perspective, that makes sense. But from a format perspective, that makes less sense. Oh, I see your point. Sure. Planeswalkers are better at doing this kind of thing by nature because they don't require mana each turn. Well, my original question was from a set perspective. So you answered it correctly. (laughs) But But yeah, from a format perspective. Yeah. I mean, if you have three planeswalkers per set and there are like six or seven sets legal and standard maybe more that's doesn't you yeah, know there's per- several dozen right. war the spark <laughs> through the whole measurement for a cocked hat but th- th- your point is well made <laughs> like at any given moment in standard there's probably 20 or 30 planeswalkers that are legal and if you add to that that the planeswalkers are specifically designed as iconic marquee cards to see significant play mm-hmm. then they're not just ordinary random cards in a set they are designed for play for competitive constructed play yeah so, so I just I just wonder if if they I should have sharpened my question by asking <laughs> if if the planeswalkers have pushed out activated ability artifacts more generally that have you know either disruptive or utility effects and because that would be the strongest parallel. To yeah, I see your point, and and I think in practice the answer is no, but in metagames the the practical answer is some cases yes. Okay. Well, I love Disrupting Scepter. It's one of my favorite cards. It's perhaps I perhaps overvalue it because <laughs> I play it in both Alpha and <laughs> Old School, <laughs> and I love playing it back in the day. Um, but uh, it's one of my favorite cards from Alpha. Yeah, and unfortunately, the effect itself oh. doesn't translate directly into Vintage today, for example. But we have a lot of effects that, in practice, mimic this vis-a-vis Narset, for example. Yes. Yes. One other thing about Disrupting Scepter in terms of the template I just wanted to point out, Kevin, is that it's ambiguous. It says you could only use it on your turn, which is, thank God they did that. But it's ambiguous at what point. Can you use it in your upkeep? Right. This actually comes up in Alpha. It's not until revised, if I recall correctly, that it says this can only be used as a sorcery. Yeah, so the versions of the card, um, I, th- I can't remember where it all changes. Let me double check here. So... 
Alpha beta. When you get to a revised, you finally get the tap symbol, and it says opponent must discard a card of his or her choice. But it says still only says during controller's turn. Fourth edition says right. use so ability if, only during your turn. Yeah, so and I, it doesn't require a sorcery on any of the printed versions. So if I have a relic barrier or an icy manipulator, and I want to tap it in your upkeep, can you respond by activating it? Yes. Yes, and apparently yes. Not in, in every not printed school, version. But, not in old school, but in alpha, you can. <laughs> Well, I think that's I think that's enough on disrupting scepter. Except that, just to point out, it has some other awesome Dan Fraser art. It's a beautiful silver scepter in a completely abstract, uh, what I guess line drawn interpretation of swirling paint. You know, <laughs> so it's Kevin, very there, Dan Fraser. There, there was I remember when I took an art class, maybe in sixth grade. They I've seen this medium before, where you have this like floating liquid that creates this swirl pattern. Is there a name to that? Because it shows up in so much of his art. I assume he used it on the on the actual art itself. I've seen a Dan Frazier art, unpublished artwork that Jeff Anand owned. Oh, yeah? It was an unused staff. It was like staff of something that was originally slated for Ice Age and then was never printed. I can. It's. I, I don't have time to pull it up now, but um, th- this that background is in enough Dan Frazier art do you have any idea what that medium is called? Because I assume it's not drawn. I assume it's using that medium to create that effect. Well, I, I am not knowledgeable enough about paint to, to know. This swirling style, I agree with you. It appears to be common enough in his style, and I have seen it in other places that it probably has its own wing of art interpretation associated with it, but I don't <laughs> know what it is. Yeah. I, well, he, I would associate he, it with Jackson you, Pollock, but I know it's not a, a direct association. Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I... Th- yeah, Jackson Pollock to me is is far less uh, figurative. Even yeah. you know, it's it's the drip paintings are just <laughs> you know the splatter shot more than an incredibly postmodern. That Agreed. swirl art to me, that swirl art pattern to me is firmly fixed in my mind. It says 1990s. That's fair because you don't really see that art since the 90s, and I think it had like a my sense is that probably my impression. This is could be entirely inaccurate <laughs> is that it probably had like a, a phase right you know you remember it's like you know it's like it's like the magic eye paintings remember how there was like a huge boom in those in like a, a few year period in the early 90s where like you could buy posters everywhere oh absolutely and those books like yeah it was like a phase a fad you know to me that swirl art is is like that it was like a couple year fad that <laughs> <laughs> just got permanently imprinted in dan fraser fraser magic art yeah well, it's definitely omnipresent here in Alpha. Next, we have Dragon Whelp. For 2RR, we're talking Summon Dragon. Flying. Red, colon, plus 1, plus 0 until end of turn. If more than red, red, red is spent in this way, Dragon Whelp is destroyed at end of turn. Now, it's interesting. That's some pretty unambiguous language, in my, in my opinion, from the uh, Alpha context. Even though destroy has used in a number of different ambiguous ways, in this context it feels pretty clear. But the, the Oracle Turks text says you sacrifice it at the beginning of the next ten step, <laughs> oh God. which is, in my well, opinion, that's power level errata. Like this thing should still be destroyed. When was the last printing? <laughs> uh, the la- that's really ironic. This card is not overpowered, right? In in any kind of classical sense, the last printing was in. Let's see, the most recent paper one is in the mystery boosters. This was in the mystery booster product. So just this past year. It was reprinted, and it obviously that it was reprinted with the Oracle text now, which is sacrificed at the beginning of the next end step. This card Sorry, has which which set did you say was most recent printing? The Mystery boosters. 
No, I mean, what was the most recent expansion set? So the most recent expansion that would have added this into any format looks like it would have been M10. M10 was the last core set that Dragon Wolf was in. It's only been in reprint since since then. Wow. Yeah. And the M10 has the same has the Oracle text or let's see the M10 one uh, is sacrifice. Yeah, it looks like the last several printings. Okay, so. There was, there's only been ever two arts for Dragon Wolf, which is interesting. And across 16 printings, there's only ever been two arts. <laughs> the second art, the, the newer art, was introduced in From the Vault Dragons back in, ah, I, don't, I don't know what year this was. The very was. first one. Yeah. The, the first or second, one of the earlier yeah. From and, the Vault. And so that has a new art by one Steve Belladin. That art and that text looks like it's been consistent ever since then. Yeah, because that that version had the sacrifice. But the sacrifice language was introduced when? It was introduced... Looks like with the From the Vault. Uh, the one before that was introduced in the Time Spiral printing, because this was in the, the extra time, oh. the time-shifted sheet for Time Spiral. Oh, right. And that's where sacrifice appears on the printed I card for the first time. I why they changed it. What possible reason? <sighs> It's destroyed all the way up to 4th edition. The 4th edition one says destroyed. Now, we know 4th edition's no bellwether of accuracy, but you're right. That's power level errata straight up, and I don't understand why. So weird. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. How funny. Um, I, I just want to say, so this is obviously not a card that was ever a vintage staple or type 1 staple. No. I don't even know if this sees play in old school. But this is a top 10 creature in Alpha League. Yeah. And in fact, in my opinion, this is more powerful, and not trivially so, than Siobhan Dragon, which I think a lot of players think is more powerful. But but let me just, just whet your appetite with this. Mm-hmm. Consider this for a moment. So it's obviously far more efficient. It costs a third less yep. to cast. <laughs> so it's, you know, with a, with a, even a single accelerant, it's a turn three play. Um, and it's basically five power every turn, for a th- you know you have to put three into it, but it's a five power in the air. It's a fast clock, and here's the real kicker: on the alpha strike turn, you can pump as much as you want into it. Yeah, you can easily you go can... five, five, ten if you had a, if you're a mono red Good game. Yeah, yep. So um, I, I find it to be. And by the way, I love the art on the alpha card. Oh yeah, <laughs> the new art is is tragic. <laughs> it's tragically. Yeah, the alpha art is adorable. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> and this card plays it's great. Perfect. Obviously, fire breathing plays great. All full, uh, full stop with berserk, but this card in particular plays great with berserk. Right, the turn the first turn you're swinging with this. If you have access to berserk, you could con- conceivably win the game. Right? Yes. You've just got sufficient pump to five berserk berserk. Yeah. Good game. Or or pump it eight times if the game plays sure. out that way, and then berserk single berserk. Yeah. Very powerful card. Yeah, if you're very good card. Uh, there's not there, there's a lot of cards that fit this description, and, and I don't need to say it every time. But this card is amazing in Alpha Limited. <laughs> if you get this in Alpha Draft or sealed, good this, game. This card is incredibly good because even though there are lots of iconic creatures at the five mana slot that are five, they're flying four fours. This one actually trades with all of them, and yeah, it, and it's bigger than a Hypnotic Specter. And all the other smaller yeah, flyers. Phantom monster, so et cetera, et cetera. It just compares yeah. favorably really with basically them. every flying creature in the format. I mean, a 5-3 flyer that can alpha strike for as much as you want for four mana, mm-hmm. that's a very good deal. <laughs> it's it's really better good. than illusionary. Yeah. <laughs> Phantasmal forces, illusionary monster, whatever, you know, you yeah. name it. Yeah. All the form, it really beats out the other four mana threats. If you can get a mana flare down, then good night. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. Cool card, beautiful art. Yep. Love the art. Love it. I mean, it's not beautiful art, it's just cool. <laughs> it's very 90s uh, high fantasy with with a cute twist. Yeah, it's almost like a Henson, a Jim Henson art yeah. Uh, yeah. image there. The cutesy imagery goes so well with the concept of a, of a small whelp, you know, dragon whelp. Definitely. So. Yeah. Next up is Drain Life. It's a sorcery for 1B. Drain Life does 1 damage to a single target for each B spent in addition to the casting cost. Caster gains 1 life for each damage inflicted. If you drain life from a creature, you cannot dr- gain more life than the creature's toughness. This is interesting. Without this card, Kevin... Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. It's just interesting the way this card is costed in that the additional mana is not included <laughs> in the mana cost. Where yeah. this is on a short list of cards from Alpha, and we'll get to a, a really great case later on, but a short list where the mana cost is actually changed in the printed text. Now this card is costed as X1B. That didn't happen. That happened pretty quickly after Alpha. I forget. Was it 4th edition? The revised one didn't. No, not 4th edition. Gosh, maybe I'm wrong. How, how long did it take for this to happen? So Drain Life changed to having an X in its mana cost in, oh, 5th edition. Yeah, 5th edition after Mirage was the... The turning point. Fifth edition doesn't have it, and then right after that, in the uh, Battle Bond set, it does have it. In 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 Beatdown, they added a Y to Fireball. Yeah, that was that was the same thing. Is, it, is that I said Battle Bond? I, I meant Beatdown. This is yeah, that was the same time. They started realizing they needed some more variables in their mana costs. Well, they thank God they took that out because <laughs> I think Fireball being X Y red is an abomination. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love it, but that's for different reasons, and we'll get to that later. Um, drain life. So without drain life, Kevin, we don't have tendrils of agony, <laughs> you know, yeah. which is, it is the, one of the most important win conditions in vintage period, full stop, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. You don't need X. I mean, X win conditions were basically, I don't know if contemporary vintage players appreciate this because most vintage players these days have been playing since the storm mechanic was created. <laughs> but but before Tendrils of Agony, X-Pels were actually common win conditions in Vintage. You used Stroke of Genius and Geyser in the Academy deck, or you used Fireball. You know, well, it wasn't Fireball. It was Caravex Torch in the Academy deck, you know. Um, or used Prosperity and Black Vise, you know, in the 90s. Um, I just People don't appreciate that anymore because you don't need X-Pels when you have Storm. You know, or yeah. or you have you know unbounded mentor tokens, right? Right. <laughs> Exponential of a different kind. Um, I I just wanted to point out that that yeah, drain life is. You know, there were different versions of this. There's I think a version in in Legends. It's like what is that? The that you gain life. And yeah, Soulburn. Life, Soulburn. That's it's a variant of this. Yeah, that uses red mana uh, as well. Yeah. Look, this card, drain life, is you know. The only the only thing time I'd actually think it showed up in a big way in a competitive any competitive constructive context constructed context I can think of is I do believe it was the win condition for the Pros Bloom decks of the mid nineteen nineties. Yeah, I think Drain Life was the main win condition. So it just that's your recollection. Yeah, it is. Well, you already mentioned that combo, so I don't need to elaborate more upon it. Yeah, we didn't we didn't really um, examine what that how that deck functioned, but absolutely that deck. Functioned by producing a, a somewhat large amount of black mana and then being able to drain your opponent. With Cadaverous Bloom and then also use... It generated the mana and then used the mana to play Prosperity yep. and then use the additional Which converted <laughs> at a 2-to-1 rate and back into mana. 
Yeah, until you eventually got to an, a large X. Um, you know, and there's all different kinds of ways of that. There, even the Lich deck, Charles's Lich deck that George Baxter wrote about, used a similar conversion building up to, I think it used Drain Life, if I'm not mistaken, Kevin. So it basically what it did was it used, let's see. No, it didn't. I actually take that back. I think it used Dark Heart of the Woods and Fast Bond, and then it generated mana, sacrificing a forest every time to generate three life to draw three cards until you got enough X mana to kill with a lethal fireball. Oh, okay. So I don't, I don't know if it used Drain Life, but it, but Lich decks could very easily. In fact, <laughs> maybe three or four years ago, we were debating how to optimize a Lich deck for 90s, old school 95. Yeah. Um, which is a really interesting exercise because you get Glacial Chasm, which is so exciting. <laughs> and I think we were considering Drain Life, actually. Because, yeah, Drain Life, I don't know. There is a way, I think, to go infinite. But I think, so Fast Bond will reduce your, your damage, life of lo- life loss to zero. Drain Life is pretty good. So you use probably Drain Life and Zuran Orb with Lich. And then you can, you can probably just get inordinate amounts of black mana and win with Drain Life. I can't remember how we landed on that. Different people working on that at the time. I can't remember everyone's name who was working on it. Otherwise, I'd give them a shout out here. <laughs> um, but taking it home back to Alpha, uh, it's a fascinating card. I had always, I had wondered if a deck that was basically like 13 drain lifes, 15 swamps, and some number of dark rituals would be any good. Someone said they put it together and it was really bad. But the reason that that, that reason that deck sounded more attractive to me than just say a, a big mana ramp fireball deck is because the fact that you're gaining life by doing, by playing the, your kill spell means that you don't have to worry about your opponent amassing an army on board. Right? So like, if your opponent's playing the elves deck, right, and they play an elf on turn one and then two elves on turn two and so on, and they start attacking you for four or five a turn and then giant growth and berserk, you don't really have to worry about the, them getting too close because you know you can you can ju- you keep gaining life as you're inflicting damage. So you know by like turn you might need some initial removal or something, but let's just say you do like a turn, let's say a dark ritual drain life for three on turn turn three, and then a drain life for for three. I guess it would be two on turn four, and then a drain life for three on turn five, drain life for four on turn six. You need you probably need some rituals to help that scale. But if you could do if you could do that you could you could kill your opponent while slowing them down from killing you by turn seven or eight easily right? Well, that's technically true. It's a difficult thing to set up, but mathematically it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I played with Drain Life in um, my first league deck, blue black. I threw one in just to throw it in because I was playing against uh, a lot of red decks who did a lot of damage to me, and I found Sonic Blast was too painful. And Drain Life was probably my MVP. It, gained, it just kept me in games that I otherwise had no business winning and helped me win a lot of matches. Yeah. So I thought it was pretty good. Well, it, we shouldn't uh, forget the fact that Mike Demonic Tutor and Disenchant, this card is the reason why we refer to damaging something, especially your opponent, and then gaining that much life as draining them, right? Good point. There are so many cards that have been printed since then to do something like this. It's lots of an increments of two and things like that. And we say, I'll drain you for two, right? This card is the reason why yeah. we say that. <laughs> How many cards have you said that about today? <laughs> I know, and it won't tutor. be the last, yeah. And so I, I love that card. I love all these cards in Alpha that are like that. The I want to point to the art, which is kind of 
understated, right? You've got a figure who is having some essence, well, drained from them. One thing I like about this art is the clothing that this figure is wearing is oddly modern. Like it's not a it's not a t-shirt and jeans or by any stretch, but it's like a hoodie. It's like a hooded wizard's cloak that looks a little too modern for the uh, D&D type setting of this game. <laughs> I'm not reading a lot into that by any stretch. I just think it's interesting that this this hooded garment doesn't look of the time that this game would ostensibly meant, uh, you know, be intended to evoke. And also, it's just yet another image where there's no background, there's no context at all, just a, a solid yellow wash in the back. Also of note is in the alpha printing of the card, there's no mana symbol. It does say for each letter B spent in addition to the casting cost, which is just great. Love it when the alpha <laughs> cards do that. Yeah, that's funny. The um, the gamma version of the card says for each B beyond casting cost, do one damage to, an, to a creature or opponent. You take that many lives... <laughs> but not more than the creature's toughness. That's what it says. Nice. You take that many lives. I like that. <laughs> One other element of, of drain life is that it cements red as the uh, uh, the sorry, it cements black as a secondary color for X spells in a sort. Red obviously has disintegrate, fireball, earthquake, and rock hider by association. Black has drain life, and it's the and then and then uh, green has hurricane right. So in terms of things that do damage, it basically cements black as the color that is the next most flexible after red, but also is limited in how it can do it, right? It requires black mana to do it. And that bit about requiring black mana to to do anything, to do a thing, basically, and scale up an effect was carried forward as a, a limitation of black throughout much of Magic's design, even to yeah. this day, right? Lots of black can do things, but you need to specifically pump black mana into them. It's not to say that black owns that effect. It's just this is really the progenitor of that notion that to, to do something that's black, you need to pump a lot <laughs> right. of specifically black mana It's very mana into restrictive it. in that respect. I like that aspect. Yeah. Okay, so next up we have drain power. Now, I alluded to this one a minute ago uh, about things that add mana to your mana pool. This is B. I'm sorry. This is UU sorcery. Tap all opponents' lands, taking all this mana and all mana in opponents' mana pool into your mana pool. You can't tap fewer than all opponents' lands. <laughs> now, obviously, there's lots of implications here vis-a-vis -vis the way mana worked and uh, specifically mana burn at the time that powerfully impact <laughs> the veracity of this card. <clears throat> And it's ironic, too, that it's um, this card comes right after uh, Drain Life because you could be excused for thinking that Drain Power and Drain Life are part of a mural of Douglas Schuler's where one is draining, being mm -hmm. drained into the other <laughs> because uh, the woman on this card is apparently in the same setting as the man on Drain Life and appears to also be gaining some power in the same way that the Drain Life guy is losing power. But that's neither here nor there. Steve, uh, this card obviously was completely neutered when <laughs> Mana Burn was eliminated yeah. from the game, yeah. uh, much like some other cards that we're going to yeah. continue to review. I won't mention and so, that, yeah, yeah it, it, has, um, it just has very little to do with magic anymore, basically, is what I would say. <clears throat> well, fortunately, old school formats uniformly, not entirely, but broadly speaking, not sorry, not universally, but uniformly, yeah. uh, include Mana Burn. Which is cool. Yeah, which is fun, thematic. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think this card is... <laughs> so it does say 
um, that you the, the the problem if you wanted to restore the functionality of this through the the uh, removal of mana burn, what you would need to do is you would need to take all the mana out of their pool, not just from their lands. Um, it does. So do it that. does say it does say taking all mana and all mana in opponent's mana pool. But the oracle text now says target player activates a mana ability of each land they control. Then that player loses all unspent mana. So it has the same effect today. Yeah, but but that actually makes it not entirely useless because then your if they opponent, had nothing to spend mana on. Yes, if they had nothing they, to spend mana on, then you get it. Then you get it right. Which is not. I mean, there are going to be lots of games. Like for example, in the like PO mirror, if your opponent you have four <laughs> mana, I have four mana. You know, unless you have a PO in hand, which you probably don't, you can probably use this to get or the mana top. from. Yeah, or a top. Well, if they have a top, then it's it's useless. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I guess I overspoke a little bit. You're totally right. However, there's one very real impact of this card, and that is if this card is a part of the Magic metagame, then your opponent is incentivized to tap out on their turn every turn, and that's the part where Mana Burn used to punish that and yes. doesn't anymore. Right? Yes. If you know this is a card that your opponent even is likely to play. You could very reasonably just tap all your lands on your end step and say, all right, I don't, don't spend my mana, but you don't get it either, right? <laughs> I would say the principle that, that players are incentivized to tap out every turn is already part of magic. I mean, if you if you were to go buy you know, a couple packs of Jumpstart and sit, sit down and play with your opponents, you want to curve out every turn. I mean... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Com- I completely agree, in, especially in limited context where unspent mana is mana lost. But in practice, in other formats, especially like Vintage, where they're highly interactive on the stack, right? that's def- definitely not the case. You're incentivized, in, especially in any kind of controlling deck, to leave mana open on your turn, into in your opponent's turn. And so I guess from that context, this card could have some application that you're just forcing your opponent to tap out when you might need them to. It gets less and less good, obviously, the more efficient counterspells become, especially those that don't yes. require any mana, right? In the days force of negation force of will world that we live in mental misstep mind break trap this card gets less and less good how do you view this vis-a-vis mana short i find mana short to be far more useful far more because it's an because instant. yeah the, the, the tactical options yeah. for when you you can use it are just far more interesting but that's partly because i view these two effects as both disruptive effects and mm-hmm. this one is far more limited and easier to play around than mana short is and also there's upside to this one which you don't get with mana short when this one ostensibly gives you the mana right you're meant to be able to drain that's why it's called drain power right you're taking their power you're supposed to be able to do something bigger and more bombastic but in practice for the reasons that you and i have both described your opponent is incentivized to tap out you're also no longer punished for tapping out as much vis-a-vis mana burn those two things conspire to make this one just far more weaker you can't count on getting anything from your opponent when this card resolves anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it's yeah. rough. Whereas with rough Mana Short, Mana Short is just purely a disruptive element. It's just get rid of all that mana so I can do what I want on my turn. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, this card is a relic, and it's also rare, yeah. so which is interesting. Yeah, a relic, a rare, not played in any format as far as I can tell, right? You've never seen this in old never. school or anything, have you? Yeah. And also, what is the deal with this X-Men art? <laughs> this, well, it's, this in looks some like you could be excused for thinking this was Storm. Yeah, it's it's so it's similar actually in some way to Drain Life. It's got a you know person of color here. It's got a generic you know a generic yellow background. It's got a uh, you know a, a, a unicolor garb, and it's got some sort of swirling mystical thing going about the figure off of off yep. the off the frame. So. Uh, 
<laughs> she's almost got the same pose though as Sarah Angel in some respect. That's true. Unlike Drain Life, though, her outfit is far more stylized. She has some kind of headwear that looks like a decorative yeah. headpiece, and her the the collar on her outfit is completely ostentatious. Yeah, yeah it's and awesome. it, she's obviously got a cape too, which it's not entirely clear whether or not that cape is integrated into the back of her outfit or her sleeves, or whether or not it's just an optical illusion that's flowing behind her. Either way, the, her outfit is far more superhero esque than the person on Drain Life, which just looks like a robe. Yeah, this card is weird. Oh, worth noting, uh, tap opponent's lands, taking all the mana. It is completely ambiguous what happens when your opponent has a dual land in the alpha context, which color of mana you get. Mm. It's just completely unknown. That's why, and the Oracle text, says target player activates a mana ability of each land they control. Your opponent chooses which colors you get by today's standards, whereas that's an un, it's, it's unanswered in the alpha version what happens when they have choices or you have choices. It doesn't really matter, I don't think, in practice, but it could. When you're going to resolve this, especially in a multicolor matchup. True. Yeah. All right. We've said it a number of times already. Here it is. Yeah. Drudge Skeletons. This guy, this little guy has done so much work in Alpha. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> That's right. We haven't even reviewed Drudge Skeletons yet. It already it's appeared in half a dozen cards. Okay. So for those who don't know, 1B, Summon Skeletons. It's a 1-1. One, one, B, colon, Regenerates. Which, again, the language for regeneration has changed a lot over the years, but in practice, the alpha wording is much close to the current oracle wording, which is just regenerate drudge skeletons. So what can we add that we haven't already touched on vis-a-vis Blood Moon, Earthquake, you know, not Earthquake, we haven't reviewed Earthquake, but we alluded to it, you know, the whole pestilence, the whole timing, the whole death word, the whole regenerate thing. What else do we have to add about drudge skeletons? <laughs> I don't think there's much to add. I would just say, I would just say that... If this creature has done not only a lot of work during our podcast, our, our episode, but it also does a lot of work in Alpha con- Alpha Constructed itself. Because, look, this thing is just a common that, that it can go into a lot of strategies. You can put it into Pestilence deck. You can put it in the mm-hmm. Pestilence Fungus Ore deck. You can put it as a blocker down below, you know, where you can maybe attack from above with Sengers and Hippies. It's a common, so it's not terribly expensive. Just having a, a really efficient, aside from Will of the Wisp, which is a rare, this is the most efficient regenerator in the in the format in in, in Alpha. So yeah, and yeah. its regeneration is cheap. Oh, the, all the regenerations are just one mana, right? Throne of Bone, I think, is a black. Uh, yes, in Alpha, they're all just one mana, which is which is good. I mean, maybe they could have extended it to you know whatever, but um, yeah, it wasn't until I think the Dark when we got the ship that regenerates for three mana. Wow, the Ghost Ship. So um. So, so the the point I just wanted to make is that this card is, if you if you end up wanting to play Alpha Constructed, you'll probably see probably see a lot of this card. And if someday some TO wants to make a let's call it limited edition constructed or even unlimited edition constructed, where you can play ABU, <laughs> I, yeah. I still think this card will see. I mean, obviously it's the same format. We'll see a lot of play. Um, yeah, that's basically it. Anything else you wanted to make say about it? Just that, similar to my observations about disintegrate. Uh, vis-a-vis Terminator 2. Drudge Skeletons came out in 1993, (laughs) and I can't help but notice that the movie Army of Darkness came out in 1992, and I've always really strongly associated this image of an army of skeletons, especially riding a skeletal horse in this case, with the similar imagery from Army of Darkness. And I just I just can't hip shake the notion that that Army of Darkness inspired this art. So let's just get this out of the way. A A couple things about the art. Number one is on magiclibraries.net, 
where you can see all the alpha, beta, gamma playtest cards. And by alpha, beta, mm-hmm. I don't mean limited edition alpha and limited edition beta. I mean alpha was the original stack of 120 cards that, that uh, Richard Garfield played with, and then beta was the second version of that, and then gamma was the final version before they made alpha, limited mm-hmm. edition itself. On that website, they have all the art on the gamma cards, and they have <laughs> all the sources of art from the gamma cards. And in the index of the sources of art, Kevin, I mean, just some examples. They have the D&D handbook. They have uh, Marvel comic books. They have uh, ElfQuest, Sandman comic books, uh, you know, Fantastic Four artwork, Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, yeah. The art, the imagery on the original card, even a Batman comic, X-Men, the art and <laughs> imagery was drawn from popular culture all over the place. So oh, I have yeah. I have to think that these, you know... This young cohort of artists that happened to be at this, you know, university in Washington that was contracted here probably drew a lot of influences from popular culture. And I would not be surprised the, the sources that you mentioned. Yeah. I also love the fact that this skeleton only has one arm. It only has a right arm carrying a sword. The left arm is just Perfect. inexplicably missing. <laughs> it's just fantastic. Yeah. Love some Drudge skeleton. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on So Many Insane Plays.